Lecture 17, Stalingrad: The Turning Point on the Eastern Front. In our last few lectures, we've been examining a series of turning points, major shifts in strategic impetus in、uh, the drift of the war in the South Pacific, in North Africa. And with this lecture, our seventeenth, we will turn our attention to the great turning point of the war on the Eastern Front, and that is the Battle of Stalingrad. We stopped our discussion of the German advance into the Soviet Union with the Russian counteroffensive before Moscow in December of 1941. That winter offensive had ground to a halt in February, and in March of 19. 42. The Eastern Front saw no significant initiatives. The Russians were exhausted from their winter offensive. The Germans still marshaling their forces for a new offensive in the summer. As winter turned to spring, Hitler had developed a new set of objectives for his summer offensive. He decided to abandon the attempt to take Moscow and to break the siege at Leningrad, and to concentrate instead on the south. On the Ukraine and beyond, the primary objective was to be the Caucasus oil fields, to deny Russia's resupply and to seize this valuable asset for Germany. The plan was an ambitious one. It called for a three-phase campaign: the encirclement of Soviet troops west of the Don River, and then a dash southward along the Volga to Stalingrad. There. General Paulus's Sixth Army and a Panzer Army, the Fourth, would establish a blocking position near the city to to protect the southern force, which would drive into the Caucasus. Phase three then would be the drive of German troops deep into the Soviet Union to the south, claiming the Caucasus oil fields. It was not as ambitious as Barbarossa, but its scale was still extraordinary. It was over 500 miles from Kiev. To the heart of the Caucasus, and the German army in the Soviet Union was not as strong as it had been the year before. In fact, it had 350,000 fewer troops at its disposal for this summer offensive than Hitler had marshaled in the summer of 1941. The total tank strength of the German army was less than in 1941, though now it would be concentrated in the south rather than trying to reach three different objectives. Hitler was forced to rely. In this offensive, on Romanian, Hungarian, and even Italian units—imagine the poor, unfortunate Italian units that had been shipped off to the Eastern Front—and these were not as well equipped nor as committed to the cause as their German counterparts. But if the German position was shaky, the Red Army's position was also problematic. The winter offensive during the worst winter in Russia in 140 years had left the Red Army absolutely exhausted. At this phase of the, in this period of the war, the Russians were still far more adept at defensive operations than offensive ones. They'd suffered tremendous losses, astonishing losses in 1941, of both men and armor. Stalin remained convinced. That when the Germans attacked, and everyone expected a new German offensive come spring, that this would be a renewal of their drive on Moscow. Therefore, the Red Army's best units remained in a blocking position in front of Moscow. 
The Germans had planned to preface their offensive in June by eliminating a Soviet salient in the line south of the city of Kharkov. But before they could do so, the Russians actually launched an attack themselves. Kharkov was the hub of German, the German communications network in the south of Russia and a prime target. Stalin and the Russian commander, General Timoshenko, decided to launch an offensive from the, so, the salient in May over the objections of General Chukov, who believed that this would be really folly when they need, the Soviets needed to be concentrating their forces uh, for offensives elsewhere. Timoshenko began his offensive on May 12th with great early successes, but he had, in fact, played directly into Germany's hands. Five days later, the Germans cut off the Soviet spearhead, capturing 240,000 Russian prisoners and destroying over 600 tanks of the 840 that had been sent into combat in this offensive. It was, I think, for most armies, this would have been an absolutely crushing, devastating defeat. But the Soviets were resilient. Timoshenko, I might add, had begged Stalin for permission to retreat to more defensible positions, but Stalin had refused, and so the Soviets were trapped, forced to fight on to the end. Thus, the German offensive in the summer of 1942 began almost with a replay of 1941, of Operation Barbarossa, not in its scale, but with still a smashing German victory. Hitler was absolutely exultant. In the south, General Munstein, who had conquered the Crimea in the fall of 1941, began the siege of Sebastopol in early June. And although the Russians held out for a month, Sebastopol fell on July 3rd, and over 100,000 more Russians were taken prisoner, 200 Russian tanks captured. This was, this was the offensive that was going to win the war, the Germans believed. The main German operation, the main German offensive, began on June 28th. It made rapid progress against the weakened forces of the Red Army. The Soviet position was actually made worse by their own misguided Kharkov offensive. And Stalin's continued conviction that the major thrust of the German attack would still be directed at Moscow. He simply couldn't, he wasn't going to shift troops while there was any threat to Moscow. The 4th German Panzer Army drove 100 miles in eight days, reaching the Don in the south. Uh, There was a sense this was was a replay, literally a replay of the great German victories of the previous summer. But the Russians fought tenaciously there, allowing a withdrawal finally toward Stalingrad, though it still looked like a rout. The Russian is finished, Hitler maintained. And his general Halder, chief of staff, agreed. Hitler decided that it was now possible to move directly to phase three of the attack. That is, the sending of massive numbers of German troops to the south toward the Caucasus. Without first securing his flank at Stalingrad. Stalingrad was important strategically. It was a blocking position to keep Soviet forces from the north from being shifted south to meet the German spearheads there. To strengthen the forces moving south, he diverted the Panzer Army away from Stalingrad and left the task of securing that city to General Paulus's 6th Army. This was an overwhelmingly infantry army with very little armor, and this decision would prove costly indeed. 
The 4th Panzer would probably have reached Stalingrad before the Soviet defenses were firmly established, and its presence uh, was not necessary to help the forces moving south cross the Don River. The 1st Panzer Army then streaked southward against weak Soviet defenses. By August 9th, it had pressed 200 miles southeast of Rostov and had reached the Maikop oil fields in the foothills of the Caucasus. This was the deepest German penetration of the war. Here, another key decision was made. The Germans split their forces. One element moved east toward the Grozny oil fields. The other pushed towards the coast of the Black Sea. What one sees here is, once again, I think, too many objectives for the German army. Hitler makes decisions. Things are going so well that he jumps the gun, besides the skip stages that were absolutely necessary. But within the German military, just as there had been the previous summer, a real sense of euphoria seemed to surge from the lowest ranks up to the top. The commanding officer says the Russian troops are completely broken and cannot hold out any longer, one German wrote home to his wife. To reach the Volga and take Stalingrad is not so difficult for us. The Fuhrer knows where the Russians' weak point is. Victory is not far away. That letter was written on July 29th, 1942. On August 7th, he wrote again, Our company is tearing ahead. Today I wrote Elsa. We shall soon see each other. All of us feel that the end, victory, is near. In September, however, the offensive slowed. The offensive down into the Caucasus. In October and November, Russian resistance in the mountainous terrain stiffened, and the Germans were now fighting not simply the Red Armians, they were fighting locals, Chechnyan local resistance forces who were unhappy about the Soviets, but they certainly didn't want the Germans there either. So the Germans wind up uh, engaged in combat with them. The advanced elements of the German army did reach Mount uh, Elbrus, Europe's highest mountain, and a team of climbers actually were dispatched to place the German flag near the summit. This was to be literally the high water mark of the German advance. But while this symbolic action was taking place, the problems for the German offensive were multiplying. The Germans were now stretched to the absolute limit of their capacity. Resupply was difficult and encountered shortages of fuel, difficult mountainous terrain, and tough resistance. As they moved farther and farther south as well, resistance activities behind the front mushroomed. German, the German army was certainly deep in the Soviet Union, but the front was far more fluid than it appeared if one drew simply a map. Army Group South had begun the offensive covering a 500-mile front. Now, it was stretched over almost 1,300 miles, dangerously thin by any definition. In September, Hitler was furious. He fired a number of his top commanders because the offensive, which had been going so well since it had been launched in the early summer, now was slowing down. The momentum seemed to be lost. Hitler was growing impatient. What was the matter? He, he obviously believed and argued there was nothing the matter with the plan. The plan was brilliant. It was his own, after all. The Russians were reeling. The Red Army was on the run. And still the offensive seemed to have lost momentum. What was wrong? Well, if there was nothing the matter with the plan, there wasn't anything the matter with the German troops, it obviously had to be the generals. And so there's a wholesale firing of commanders on the Eastern Front, just as there had been, by the way, after the failure of the offensive before Moscow a year before. General Halder, who had been chief of staff of the German army since 1938 and one of the leading 
if not the leading strategist within the German high command, was removed. He was replaced by a younger and far more pliable staff officer. With the German army now stretched deep into the Caucasus, this front of 1,300 miles, Stalingrad, really the importance of Stalingrad as the hinge of this attack was extremely important. The task of taking the city, as I indicated, had been left to General uh, Paulus's 6th Army. It was mostly infantry. And still, it had made steady progress throughout August. On August 22nd, in fact, the Germans had, had broken through, and a panzer corps had fought its way into the northern suburbs of the city. The Luftwaffe was called on to seal the fate of the Russians in Stalingrad. On August 23rd, 1942, the largest German air raid since June 22nd, 1941, was launched against the city. Air units from all over were brought to bear on Stalingrad. Over half the bombs dropped were incendiaries in order to set the maximum number of fires within the city. Nearly every wooden structure in Stalingrad, including acres of workers' housing, were burned in the raid. The results were absolutely spectacular. Stalingrad, before the battle had begun, already resembled a devastated city. The fires were so intense, so vast, that one could read a newspaper 40 miles away by their flames. It was a terror raid, pure and simple, to kill civilians, to overload services, and to create panic in the the population, to make it absolutely impossible for the Red Army to operate within this urban area uh, and to force a surrender. The whole city is on fire, a German soldier wrote home. On the Fuhrer's orders, our Luftwaffe has sent it up in flames. That's what the Russians need to stop them resisting. But the city did not surrender. On August 25th, the Regional Party Committee of the Soviet Union proclaimed a state of siege. Comrades and citizens of Stalingrad, their declaration stated, we shall never surrender the city of our birth to the depredations of the German invader. Every single one of us must apply himself to the task of defending our beloved town, our homes, and our families. Let us barricade every street, transform every district, every block, every house into an impregnable fortress. The Russians were determined to hold, and the Germans were determined to take the city. The battle for Stalingrad was assuming gradually monumental proportions. It was a ferocious battle of attrition, and it had enormous symbolic value. The fact that it was named for Stalin obviously plays a role here. And it was fought block by block, house by house, floor by floor, and room by room. The city itself was very quickly reduced to a state of rubble. And movement, which had been measured in miles or kilometers by the hundreds, over the course of the Battle of Stalingrad would be measured in meters. There had been nothing like it since the colossal carnage of the First World War. It was, as one historian has called it, Verdun on the Volga. The Germans were certainly aware of what this meant. General Dürr, one of the German commanders, described it in the following terms. For every house, workshop, water tower, railway embankment, wall, cellar, and every pile of ruins, a bitter battle was waged without equal, even in the First World War and its vast expenditure of munitions. The distance between the enemy's army and ours was as small as it could possibly be. 
despite the concentrated activity of aircraft and artillery, it was impossible to break out of the area of close fighting. The Russians surpassed the Germans in their use of the terrain and in camouflage and were more experienced in barricade warfare for individual buildings. Vasily Kuchikov was in command of the city, and in late August, Stalin ordered a change of command. Georgi Chukov, the savior of Moscow, now replaced the commander in the south, Timoshenko, and Chukov began to work his magic. While the battle raged in Stalingrad itself, Chukov followed the strategy that he, he had employed the year before in Moscow. What he did was to deliberately withhold reinforcements, to keep those reinforcements to the garrison at an absolute minimum. That is, there were reinforcements he was building up, but they weren't being funneled into Stalingrad. The troops in Stalingrad were going to have to hold. This was clear to the defenders there. Instead, he began to mass troops north and south of the city. This is exactly what he had done in Moscow, around Moscow in December of 1941, so that the Germans concentrating on the front and front just before them uh, would not be able to detect this buildup. Moreover, as Chukov knew, both the northern and southern flanks of the German 6th Army were held by Romanian troops, understrengthed, understrength and under-equipped. The Russian preparations for a counterattack were kept under very tight security. Still, by early November, the Germans held nine-tenths of Stalingrad. Hitler, in a very famous speech, um, the Beer Hall Putsch in Munich had taken place uh, in early November 1923, and every year this was a big event on the German Nazi calendar. Hitler would always go back to Munich, address the, what they called the Alte Kämpfer, the old fighters from the party. Um, and on this date, uh, in early November 1943, he gave um, one of his patented speeches in which he said something to the effect of, well, one can talk about different objectives in the Soviet Union, but I knew what I wanted. I've come to the Volga, to a particular point, to a particular place. Don't think it's because it's named for Stalin. No, it could have been named for anybody else. Then he proceeded to reel off all of the statistics which he always seemed to have at his disposal. There we will cut off so many tons of mag manganese. There we will seize so many tons of scrap iron. There we will cut off such and such, so many things of oil. Um, so it is an extremely important economic point for us. It's a crucial battle. And, you know, he said, we have it, actually. It's within our grasp. There are just a few small places left uh, that are beyond our reach. But we're very clever. We will take them little by little by little and ultimately prove triumphant. But the German position in Stalingrad uh, was a difficult one. It formed a salient with long, vulnerable flanks. And this is exactly the situation on which Chukov was planning. On November 19th, Chukov unleashed his offensive against the Romanians northwest and southeast of Stalingrad. The German high command was caught completely unprepared. The Romanians buckled, and on November 23rd, 1942, the two spearheads linked up 45 miles west of Stalingrad, encircling the entire 6th Army and one corps of the 4th Panzer Army. Paulus, seeing the desperation of his own situation, appealed to Hitler 
to allow him to break out of the encirclement and establish communication with German lines beyond the Russian positions. Hitler ordered Munstein to break through to Stalingrad, but he certainly refused Powell's plea uh, to allow the Sixth Army to try to break out. Instead, he promoted Paulus to the position of field marshal, uh, pointing out to everyone in sight that no German field marshal had ever surrendered, um, and calling on Paulus to hold on at all costs that help was coming from Munstein. The whole issue of relief, however, was rendered moot by a second Russian offensive on December 16th, pressing from the Don toward Rostov with the intention of cutting off all German forces to the south. A real catastrophe was now looming for the Germans. Inside the city itself, though, the battle would continue to rage and rage uh, in ferocious fashion. Uh, To give you some sense of the changing mood in this cauldron that became Stalingrad, um, I'd like to read you a couple of uh, series of, of just brief descriptions uh, from a, Germ- a German writing home about the Russians he's encountering. On September 1st, he wrote home, are the Russians really going to fight on the very bank of the Volga? It's madness. The Russians literally were pushed up against the river. Uh, any sort of reasonable military leader would have tried to get them back across the river. They were trapped. On September 8th, he wrote, this is insane stubbornness. September 11th, fanatics. September 13th, wild beasts. September 16th, barbarism. Not men, but they're not men, but devils. September 26th, barbarians. They use gangster methods. And then finally on October 27, the Russians are not men, but some kind of cast iron creatures. They never get tired, and they are not afraid of fire. At first, the Germans in the city, with the offensive around them, the Germans in the city of Stalingrad still thought they had been, they'd, they'd triumphed. Earlier on, a Russian described the Germans uh, as being almost drunk with victory in the city. They had uh, found vodka, were jumping down from their lorries, playing their harmonicas, dancing uh, like madmen, one Russian said, uh, on the pavements. But that mood uh, was soon to break. Um, one of the frustrations, I'm going to read a number of these, these descriptions of the combat within Stalingrad because I think both they're gripping and they also give you that sense of the enormity and the, and the, the brutality and the hopelessness in a way of the, of this, of this struggle. Of two armies caught in a very small place with no place to go except the ruins of this destroyed city, uh, and still fighting in this, this sort of craters of the moon sort of environment. You get the sense of frustration from one of the Germans. As he wrote home, we would spend the whole day clearing a street from one end to the other, establish blocks and fire points at the western end, and prepare for another slice of the salami the next day. But at dawn, the Russians would start up firing from their old position at the far end. It took us some time to discover their trick. They had not communicating holes through between the garrets and attics, and during the night they would run back like rats in the rafters and set their machine guns up behind some topmost window or broken chimney. The Russians seemed... Uh, in this situation, to be everywhere. The Russians, on the other hand, uh, with a sense of uh, of desperation, I think if you were one of these Russian troopers in Stalingrad, the sense of there being no place to go, no escape, there was no help coming. 
It was clear that reinforcements, though, there was a sense there might be reinforcements across the river. They weren't coming, and getting across the river was going to be impossible. So they fought and fought and fought, literally, as we've seen, house by house, street by street, room by room. This is a Russian account. We beat off the next attack with some stones, firing occasionally and throwing our last grenades. Suddenly, from behind a blank wall, the rear came down. From, from the rear came the grind of a tank's caterpillar tracks. We had no anti-tank grenades. All we had was one anti-air, anti-tank rifle with three rounds. I handed this rifle to an anti-tank man, Beryachev, and sent him out through the back to fire at the tank point blank. But before he could get into position, he was captured by German Tommy gunners. What Beryachev told the Germans, I don't know. But I can guess that he led them up the garden path because an hour later they started to attack at precisely the point where I'd put my machine gun with its emergency belt of cartridges. This time, reckoning that we had run out of ammunition, they came impudently out of their shelter, standing up and shouting. They came down the street in a column. I put the last belt in the heavy machine gun at the semi-basement window and set the whole of the 200, sent the whole of the 250 bullets into the yelling, dirty, gray Nazi mob. I was wounded in the hand but did not let go of the machine gun. Heaps of bodies littered the ground. The Germans, still alive, ran for cover in panic. An hour later, they led our anti-tank rifleman onto a heap of ruins and shot him in front of our eyes for having shown them the way to my machine gun. There were no more attacks. An avalanche of shells fell on the building. The Germans stormed us at every po- with every possible kind of weapon. We couldn't raise our heads. Again, we heard the ominous sound of tanks. From behind a neighboring block, stocky German tanks began to crawl out. This clearly was the end. The guardsmen said goodbye to one another with a dagger, my orderly scratched on a brick wall. Radimstev's guardsmen fought and died here for their country. The battling in Stalingrad would continue in this vein through November into December Uh, and into the new year. The 6th Army was given an order, finally, to fight to the last man. Utterly surrounded, with no way of resupply, General von Paulus surrendered the 6th Army on February 2nd, 1943. It was a catastrophe for the Germans. The suffering in Stalingrad, much of the sense of what we have of the Eastern Front in the Second World War, is from this incredible battle in Stalingrad. The temperatures had begun to drop again in uh, November and December. Uh, Men froze to death. Frostbite was suffered by troops on both sides. The Germans, terribly still unprepared for this this kind of warfare, now found themselves with a major defeat on their hands, and a defeat that could lead to real catastrophe. There were 200,000 German losses at Stalingrad, 90,000 prisoners of war. And with the defeat at Stalingrad, the entire front in southern Russia was now exposed. There was a very real danger when Stalingrad fell in February of 1943, that the Soviet army would continue to move west, cutting off those German units that were down in the Caucasus and that the entire Eastern Front could collapse for the Germans in one great counteroffensive by the Russians. This defeat at Stalingrad, with so much symbolic and strategic importance, was the turning point of the Second World War on the Eastern Front. It was the great Russian victory that turned the tide and taken in conjunction with the victories of the Allies in North Africa, the invasion of Italy, 
the defeat of the Japanese at Guadalcanal, 1943 would come into being uh, with great optimism on the, for the Allies. 1942, the beginning of 1942, only a year earlier, had been the low point, the nadir of Allied, the Allied position. And now, as 1943 began, before the spring would come in 1943, now the question was, where would the Allies strike, not that the Japanese or the Germans would attack? Lecture 18, Eisenhower and Operation Overlord. Hello. Welcome to our 18th in this series of lectures on the Second World War. We're going to be examining the preparations for what was the largest amphibious assault uh, in history, the D-Day invasions, the invasion, the long-awaited cross-channel invasion of Normandy and Fortress Europe. In the course of 1943, as we've seen, the Germans had suffered an enormous setback on the Eastern Front and Stalingrad. And slowly, the Western Allies had slogged their way up the Italian peninsula. But it was still the great cross-channel invasion, the second front for which Stalin had uh, been clamoring for years that was to hold the real key to the success, to victory for the Allies. This commitment to a cross-channel invasion had been, uh, was quite controversial. The British had favored a Mediterranean strategy, as we've seen, had encouraged an invasion of North Africa, then Sicily, then Italy, while the Americans had impatiently sought the cross-channel invasion, and of course Stalin uh, had been relentlessly demanding a second front which would relieve pressure on the beleaguered Russian troops in the east. It would not be until the Tehran Conference in November of 1943, when Franklin Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin all met for the first time, that Churchill finally gave way to pressure from Stalin, now reinforced uh, very vigorously by Roosevelt, and committed himself to make the cross-channel invasion of northern Europe the top priority for 1944. Churchill was not happy with this decision at Tehran. He would be ambivalent about it all the way down to May, uh, really almost to the eve of the, uh, the invasion itself. But he certainly, at Tehran, at last committed Britain to this great undertaking. The plan was to be codenamed Operation Overlord. And at Tehran, Roosevelt announced his decision to name Dwight Eisenhower as commander-in-chief. There was a good deal of controversy about this. Both Churchill and Stalin had expected and, in fact, wanted General Marshall. He was by far the most respected man in the American military establishment. Uh, Marshall himself had hoped for the appointment. Uh, but Roosevelt insisted on, on Eisenhower. On the one hand, he argued that he really couldn't imagine his life in Washington without Marshall. Marshall was his military confidant. He was the man that, that the president leaned on for advice. His calm, his steady, his rock-solid and steady personality were essential, his judgment essential in Washington, Roosevelt felt. And from a military point of view, Dwight Eisenhower had presided over as commander-in-chief three amphibious assaults already, 
Torch, Sicily, uh, and Italy as well. So there was a good deal of, of rationale for the appointment of Eisenhower. British Air Marshal Sir Arthur Tedder was to serve as Eisenhower's deputy, and Montgomery was given command of Allied ground forces and really given the responsibility for the actual planning of the ground operations, the invasion itself. Everyone in Europe understood in the winter and early spring of 1943 that the invasion was coming. Fortress Europe was going to be assaulted by the Western Allies. The question was where and when. The Allies had decided in their planning the attack would come in Normandy. Why Normandy? Well, the reasoning was that it contained two important ports, Cherbourg and Le Havre, for resupply. These were considered absolutely essential to any sort of sustained military operation on the continent. The projected landing areas lay to the east of the Cotentin Peninsula, which juts out into the English Channel and thus protects the beaches from the prevailing westerly winds. The Germans also, of course, expected the invasion to come in the Pas-de-Calais, 200 miles to the northeast. The distance across the channel was only 20 miles at that point. It offered the shortest route, both into France and then, of course, the dry, a quick drive through France and into the heart of Germany. The Germans very clearly understood that the goal of the Allied invasion was to get through France as quickly as possible, through the Low Countries and into Germany proper, and particularly into the industrial heartland of Germany, which was the Ruhr. An attack across the Pas de Calais would offer the most obvious, shortest route to that objective. But for the Allies, the ports across the channel from Normandy were larger and could handle the massive ship and troop concentrations that were going to be necessary. And so for these reasons, the Normandy area suggested itself as the best place for the, this great undertaking. The plan that would evolve uh, in the last part of 1943 and into 44 called for an invasion of six divisions, three American two British, one Canadian. This was to be the seaborne assault force. The Americans would be commanded by General Omar Bradley and were to land near the eastern base of the Cotentin Peninsula and drive towards Cherbourg, the nucleus of the First Army. The British and Canadians were to advance, were the advance guard of the Second Army, the British Second Army, and were to land farther east near the mouth of the Orne River. Their objective was to seize the city of Caen, which Montgomery believed he could do within the first 24 hours of the invasion. Caen was a major road and rail junction and a key objective for the D-Day landings. The troops, the seaborne troops, were to land at daybreak. But during the preceding night, two American airborne divisions were to be dropped west of the American beachheads to destroy communications and to block avenues to the beach. This would be the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions. One Airborne Division was to carry out, the British Airborne Division, to carry out a similar operation east of the British and Canadian landing sites. While the ground troops fought inland, prefabricated concrete harbors called mulberries were to be towed across the channel in sections and put in place off the Normandy coast. This was one way of resupply. It was an extraordinary engineering feat developed precisely for the Allied landing. The planning 
that went on through the winter of 1943 and into uh, the early spring of 1944 was intense and secret and was extraordinary in its attention to detail. The scale of the planning was absolutely awesome. This would be the largest amphibious assault in history, as we've indicated. And on its success, Roosevelt, Churchill, the Allied command felt hung the success of the Second World War. Operation Overlord would be the best-kept secret, remarkably enough, given the number of personnel involved, the long run-up, the planning, and so on, was an extraordinary feat uh, of security. It was incredibly tight, but in the spring of 1944, everyone in Europe and the United States knew that the invasion was coming. The only questions, as we've said, were where and when. Hitler was certainly very aware of the stakes of this approaching contest. He believed that the outcome of the battle would be the critical turning point of the war. And in November of 1943, he issued Fuhrer Order, Fuhrer Directive Number 51. For the last two and a half years, the directive states, the bitter and costly struggle against Bolshevism has made the utmost demands upon the bulk of our military resources and energies. The situation has since changed. The threat from the east remains, but an even greater danger looms in the west, the Anglo-American landing. In the east, the vastness of space will, as a last resort, permit a loss of territory, even on a major scale, without suffering a mortal blow to Germany's chance for survival. Not so in the west. If the enemy here succeeds in penetrating our defense on a wide front, consequences of staggering proportions will follow in a short time. It was clear for Hitler what the objective would be, and it would be the Ruhr. There was no territory to give in the West. For that reason, I can no longer justify the further weakening of the West in favor of other theaters of war. I have therefore decided to strengthen the defenses in the West, he wrote. Hitler's calculation was largely political. If the invasion failed... The Western Allies would not try again, he believed, for at least a year. And the Russians might actually seek a separate peace. At this point, after the catastrophe at Stalingrad, it was clear that the Germans were going to be on the defensive in the East, but they were still very deep inside the Soviet Union. So a political cue here one sees one's no longer talking about a grandiose new order in Europe and a gross Deutsches Reich. One's talking about survival of the Third Reich. And here the way to do this clearly was now a separate peace with the Soviets or with the Western allies. The Russians, though, now certainly on the offensive, were still an awfully long way from Germany. If they reached the start line of 1941, they would still be 2,000 kilometers from Berlin. So, as 1943 turned to 44, the Germans concentrate now on the anticipated invasion of Northern Europe. Field Marshal Gefren Rundstedt was named to command all German forces in the West, but Erwin Rommel, the hero of the Africa Corps, by far the most popular military figure in Germany, was placed in command of all ground units in the key areas of northern France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. This was an odd arrangement, and it would have important implications, because the unity of command would be in question from the very beginning, with Rundstedt commander-in-chief in the West, but Rommel in charge of the defenses of the key areas where the invasion uh, would likely come. Both Rundstedt 
and Rommel believed that the invasion would come in the Pas de Calais. Looking at the situation from a military point of view, and of course, Rundstedt thinking back to German plans from the uh, summer of 1940, believed that this was the obvious place. One had to make the preparations for it. Even if the Allies should go take a different route, the Pas de Calais was so crucial because it was this um, only 20 miles across the Straits of Dover, the narrowest part of the channel. Therefore, they had to concentrate there. Hitler, on the other hand, originally believed, looking at the map, that the invasion, when it came, would come not at the Pas de Calais, but in Normandy. In part, I think this was Hitler's own, was, was consistent with his own sense of daring to go, to do the unexpected, to strike where the enemy, at the least obvious place. And Normandy certainly didn't suggest itself as an obvious uh, target for the invasion. But over the course of time, Hitler himself was, was increasingly convinced by Rommel, by Rundstedt, by his military, that the major defensive energies of the, of the Germans should be uh, devoted to the Pas de Calais area. And, of course, the worst-case scenario carried the day. Even if the Allies, if, if the Allies were to land the Pas de Calais, they would simply have a straight shot across Belgium uh, and the Ruhr, and that had to be prevented at all costs. There might be time if they landed in Normandy, but the worst-case scenario was an invasion in the Pas de Calais. Despite the so-called Atlantic Wall, the German defenses, the defensive network had, that had been established along the coast, Rundstedt and Rommel were keenly aware of Frederick the Great's dictum that he who defends everything defends nothing. And as they looked at this western uh, coast of, of fortress Europe, running from Norway all through the Low Countries uh, to France into Brittany, this was an extraordinary uh, defensive problem that they had to confront. They had to make guesses. They had to make calculations. Adding to these inherent strategic difficulties, German defensive thinking was also hampered by, a ser- by serious differences about how to defend against the invasion. Rommel was convinced that the Allies had to be stopped on the beaches. Hit them as they come off their landing craft, halt them at the beaches, that if they get ashore successfully, then the battle's lost. You have to stop them within the first 24 hours. It was for this reason, Rommel argued, that first 24 hours of the invasion would be what he called the longest day, the day on which the fate of Germany uh, would hinge. Rundstedt, on the other hand, believed that trying to halt the Allies on the beaches was a virtually impossible task. After all, you would have to you would have to build up these defenses all across the likely landing areas over several hundred miles, and so the best defensive strategy would be to certainly hold at the beaches as much as possible, but to have a mobile strike force, a mobile defense. And vigorous, with a vigorous counterattack after the invasion, after the main thrust of the invasion had been identified. Both Rommel and Rundstedt, as well as Hitler, all believed, of course, that there would be a diversion. There would be, there might be some sort of diversionary attack one place, uh, and then the main thrust of the attack would come elsewhere. So between Rommel and Rundstedt, both charged in different ways with the defense of Western Europe, there are these significant differences. Complicating these arrangements was another problem, and that was that two important panzer divisions that were going to be key elements of 
any German defensive strategy, whether it was Rommel's Holtham on the beaches or, more obviously, Rundstedt's mobile defense position, these two panzer divisions had to be sent to throw back the main Allied invasion. Neither Rommel nor Rundstedt had the authority to dispatch those panzer divisions, uh, which were in the north, uh, closer to the Pas de Calais and Paris. Only Adolf Hitler could release those panzer divisions for dispatch to the front. So unity of command was was not achieved by the Germans as they prepared for this decisive battle. The Allies certainly planned to invade Normandy, but in early 1944 and right down to the uh, to D-Day itself, the Allies did everything they could to convince the Germans that the invasion would indeed come in the Pas de Calais. The Allies created a dummy headquarters under Patton's command with elaborate radio traffic, supply depots, railroad sidings, inflatable tanks, cardboard trucks, an extraordinary effort to confuse the Germans to, uh, who believed that no invasion would come without Patton, the, the, the hero of the American army, as far as the Germans were concerned, being a key player. The British also just created uh, a, a dummy army in the north, uh, to, uh, also with radio traffic, with a whole series of, of ploys, to make the Germans believe that an invasion of Norway was in the works, that the British were going to launch an attack in Norway. And although Hitler did not reinforce the German troops in Norway, the 13 German divisions that were stationed in Norway remained in place, even as the spring approached uh, and invasion season was upon the Germans. Ultra, the intercepts of the Allied intercepts of German code traffic reported that the Germans had indeed bought the deception. So the question of where uh, was successfully disguised by the Allies. Everyone knew that the invasion would come sometime in the late spring or early summer, and the timing would be largely dictated by weather conditions. The Allies would need calm seas. They would need clear skies if they were to take advantage of one of the great uh, advantages they, they possessed, and that was air superiority. So the question of when. The Germans understood this as well as the Allies. Late spring, early summer. This was the time that one could expect it. Eisenhower, in planning, had set June 5th for D-Day, and the cumbersome loading process had begun on May 31st. I always find it remarkable to think that this massive movement of troops, of, of vehicles of every sort, trucks, tanks, jeeps, uh, all sort of artillery pieces, all of southern England beginning on May 31st was simply in motion as these troops moved by train, some by foot, some in convoys, began moving to the ports from which they would load the ships and began to move. All along the route, uh, British civilians were out waving at the troops. It was clear to anyone around that this, this was the big event. This was the long-awaited invasion. It was finally coming. And yet the Germans uh, were in the, the dark about this. By the evening of June 3rd, the assault waves of the Allied Expeditionary Force were loaded up, all prepared for the invasion on June 5th. 
The ships assembled were extraordinary. 2,727 ships, battleships, destroyers, minesweepers, huge LSTs, landing uh, ships to to carry uh, tanks, heavy supplies, troops, and so on. 931 of these ships were headed for Omaha and Utah beaches, the two American uh, beaches to be hit, the Western Naval Task Force. The Eastern Naval Task Force contained 1,796 ships bound for gold, Juno, and sword beaches, the British, the code names for the British beaches. In addition, 2,600 landing craft, Higgins boats, and other smaller vessels that were simply too small to make the trans, the cross-channel trip on their own, had been loaded up onto these giant LSTs, so that altogether an armada of 5,333 vessels had been assembled in the south of England to prepare for this enormous undertaking. By June 3rd, all of the, the supplies, all of the men had been loaded. And then, on June 4th, a major weather front hit. Howling winds, plunging temperatures, and rain falling in horizontal sheets. Still, the thousands of ships in the vast armada had begun to move out of their harbors and to form up into convoys. Eisenhower got more bad news at his weather briefing at 0400. The situation, he was told by his chief meteorologist, is a a 28-year-old Scotsman. Uh, by the name of J.M. Stagg, one thinks about the responsibility that this man shouldered uh, in, in these days. Stagg told Eisenhower at 0400 that the situation was deteriorating rapidly, that the weather was going to get worse, and even more, it was unpredictable. Uh, it was not at all clear if the weather would break, when it would break, that predicting the weather for more than 24 hours under these circumstances was almost impossible. At 0600... Eisenhower gave the order to put everything on hold. The troops and the ships were miserable, caught in the storm out in the channel, uh, seasickness, uh, awful conditions uh, for the troops. Eisenhower now was confronted with a choice. To postpone the invasion would mean putting things off until June 19th. There were only three days in each two-week period in June when the two conditions he needed could be predicted. That is, when low tide and first light came together, essentially this had to, you had to have these conditions because of German defenses. They were concentrated in the tidal flats, so you wanted to be able to see them. The naval people bringing the, the boats in wanted to be able to see the underwater obstructions that would be obscured at high tide. And also the airborne operations required at least a half moon, and that reduced the availability of days to an even, to an even shorter period. If he postponed to June 19th and the weather were bad then, then, once talking about a postponement of an entire month, you'd lose a month of campaigning. The, the security might be breached. Uh, it was a nightmarish situation for, for Eisenhower. Then, at 2130, on the evening of the 4th, at Southwick House, a weather briefing suggested that there might be a 36-hour respite after all, a brief break in the weather on the night and morning of June 5th, June 6th. A cheer went up from the, uh, the, the gentlemen who were present at, the, uh, at Southwick House that, uh, at that meeting. Uh, they were gathered for, uh, at the mess hall. 
uh, room there. Uh, as one person who was present said, he'd never seen so many middle-aged men cheer as vigorously at one time as, as when Stagg brought the news that, about this possible weather break. In fact, Stagg was quite certain about it. The pressure on Eisenhower at this moment was intense. Lee Mallory, in charge of air operations, urged postponement. Air Marshal Tedder, Eisenhower's deputy commander, agreed. Air operations, it was simply too dicey to undertake air operations if, if the weather was going to be this chancy. Eisenhower turned to Montgomery and asked him, and Montgomery, ever ready for this sort of thing, said, I would say, go. Eisenhower paced the room and then decided, overlord, the largest, most complex, and diciest amphibious assault in human history, an assault on which the outcome of the war would ride, would be launched on June 6th in weather conditions that boded only ill. It was a gamble of astronomical proportions. When Eisenhower awoke at 0330 on June 5th, the wind was literally shaking his trailer. Rain fell in sheets, and the storm continued to rage. At a weather briefing, Stagg arrived with good news. He insisted, despite all of, all of the, the conditions that Eisenhower and everyone present could see, the howling wind, the rain coming in sheets, Stagg absolutely insisted that the weather was going to break and added a new note. It would only be a break, and then conditions would deteriorate again. The operation would have, at most, at most, 48 hours of reasonably good weather. Already the ship convoys had been forming up since midnight and the men were forced to ride out the storm, bobbing in the heavy surf. At this point, Eisenhower could still have ordered a postponement. And at a last briefing with his staff, while the rain continued to pelt against the window, Eisenhower, supported once again by Montgomery, made the final decision. Okay, he said simply, let's go. Eisenhower would draft a message to the troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force, which I think is one of the most powerful and moving documents of the Second World War, and I would like to read it. This was to be given to all troops involved in the Normandy landings. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The freemen of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, 
and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessings of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Dwight Eisenhower. Eisenhower, in these terribly tense moments on the eve of D-Day, also drafted a second message. He put it in his pocket. He wrote, Our landings in the Cherbourg-Lahav area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack was based on the best information available. The troops, the Air and Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. That was a message that he desperately hoped he would never have to print. At 1900 hours, on the 5th of June, Eisenhower would visit the 101st Airborne Units. They were to be among the first to land in Normandy. The die was now cast. The invasion was about to begin. The machinery was all in place. The ships underway. The great moment had at last arrived. Lecture 19, D-Day to Paris. In our last lecture, we examined the planning for Operation Overlord, the cross-channel invasion of Hitler's Fortress Europe. That was to come on June 6, 1944. The outcome of that battle would be decisive for the outcome of the war. Everyone involved was clearly uh, aware of that. And on the eve of the invasion, as the troops had gathered in the channel, the seaborne assault forces already in the channel, Dwight Eisenhower, the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, went to visit members of the American airborne units that would be dropped into German-occupied Europe, into Normandy, in the night of June 5th, June 6th. In this lecture, we're going to examine the course of events on that June 5th, June 6th, and then the Allied movement from Normandy toward Paris and the liberation of that city and of France. We begin with Eisenhower himself. We'd talked in the last lecture about the loneliness of the decision that he made when many of his commanders, especially his air commanders, Lee Mallory, Tedder, Tedder in particular, whose views Eisenhower respected greatly, were worried, in fact, favored postponing the invasion. Mallory, Lee Mallory estimated that under the best of conditions that the airborne units that were going into Normandy would suffer 80% casualties. This weighed very heavily on Eisenhower as the decision had been made and he waited for the invasion to begin. And at 1900, on June 5th, Eisenhower visited the troops of the 101st Airborne. I think many of you have seen the film clip of Eisenhower walking among these uh, airborne troops. The troops are in their uh, their charcoal faces ready for uh, their 
loading up to go. Eisenhower walks around, talks to them. He seems confident. He seems not quite jovial, but just exudes that sense of confidence, a confidence that he certainly did not necessarily have at that moment. I think he went because these were the troops that he was sending into combat and into the most, into harm's way first. And I think that that sense of the 80% casualties, that figure that Lee Mallory continued to press upon him, weighed very heavily on Eisenhower as he talked to those to those troops. There would be about 13,400 American, 7,000 British paratroopers who would be dropped into Normandy, the first Allied troops to land in Nazi-occupied Europe. Those parachute units were about to undergo an amazing operation. Standing there waiting to get, climb into the C-47s, uh, their equipment alone was daunting. I'd like to read you the description of what one typical airborne trooper had with him as he got ready to climb into the C-47 for this flight. One suit of olive drab worn under my jumpsuit. This was an order for everyone. Helmet, boots, gloves, main parachute, reserve parachute, May West, the inflatable yellow inflatable uh, life jacket, rifle, 45 automatic pi- pistol, trench knife, jump knife, hunting knife, machete, one cartridge belt, two bandoliers, two cans of machine gun ammo totaling 676 rounds of 30 caliber ammo, 66 rounds of 45 caliber ammo, one Hawkins mine capable of blowing off the track of a tank, four blocks of TNT, one entrenching tool with two blasting caps taped on the outside of the, the steel part, three first aid kits, two morphine needles, one gas mask, a canteen of water, three days' supply of K-rations, two days' supply of D-rations, six fragmentation grenades, one gammon grenade, one orange and one red smoke grenade, one orange panel, one blanket, one raincoat, one change of socks and underwear, and two cartons of cigarettes. So loaded with equipment were these airborne troopers, if they sat down or fell over backwards, they literally had to be helped up by their buddies uh, to climb into the troop transports that would carry them to their date with destiny in Normandy. The One always thinks of this extraordinary armada that had set sail from England headed for, for the continent when one thinks of, of D-Day. But this armada of C-47s, these transport planes that would take off on the night of June 5th into June 6th, was also a sight to behold. And I'd like to read you one description uh, of what that looked like to those who were taking part. First of all, the pilots, most of the pilots who would be flying these troop transports were going into combat for the first time. They had not been trained for nighttime flying, remarkably enough, or to deal with flak or bad weather. The C-47 was primarily designed to carry cargo or passengers, not for this sort of operation. The C-47 was neither armed nor was it armored. Their gas tanks were neither protected nor self-sealing, so they were extraordinary, extraordinarily vulnerable aircraft. There were so many planes in the air that the, that the chance of a mid-air collision was on everybody's mind. It took 432 C-47s to carry the 101st Airborne to Normandy, about the same number for the 82nd Airborne. 
They were flying in what was called the V of V formation, stretched out across the sky. It was 300 miles long. Nine planes wide, all without radio communication. Only the lead pilot and each serial of 45 planes had a Eureka set with a show of lights from the plexiglass uh, Astrodome for guidance for the following planes. The planes were 100 feet from wingtip to wingtip in their groups of nine, 1,000 feet from one group to another, with no lights except the little blue dots in the tail of the plane ahead. It was an extremely tight formation, even by daylight standards, but to do this at night was very chancy indeed. They crossed the channel at about 500 feet or less to escape German radar detection and then were to climb to 1,500 feet to escape the anti-aircraft fire along the Channel Islands. 600 feet was the jump altitude. When they crossed the coastline, heading out across the channel, everything was fine. The formation had, had been able to, to come together to form up. But then as they moved across the channel, they encountered an enormous cloud bank. And when they did, the formation simply came apart. Some dropped below the cloud bank, some climbed above it, some peeled off to the right, some to the left. It was absolute, it was absolute chaos. And then when they finally crossed into, into France, the, they were widely separated. Uh, and as they, as they appeared, came out of the cloud bank over the continent, uh, as one of the pilots said, in fact, many of them said, all hell seemed to break loose. Searchlights, uh, tracers, anti-aircraft fire, everything. And the troop carriers began to move toward the jump zones. The problems with the C-47s meant that very few of the 82nd or 101st Airborne units actually were dropped where they were supposed to. Many of the, uh, a number of the units were actually dropped across the, out into the, into the sea. The planes had gone all the way across the Cotentin Peninsula and dropped them on the other side. Uh, others had come in very low, dropped them at too high a speed. Uh, so that the paratroopers were scattered rather than coming down and they were supposed to come down in sticks. Um, but instead, they seemed to be were scattered everywhere. It looked like a catastrophe in the making. One American paratrooper who had landed safely uh, managed to, was looking up and saw a C, uh, another C-47 coming across at extraordinarily low altitude. He saw them uh, uh, disgorge a stick of paratroopers, and he wrote later, their chutes were pulling out of the tray packs and just starting to unfurl when they hit the ground. Seventeen men hit the ground before their chutes had time to open. They made a sound like ripe pumpkins being thrown down to burst against the ground. In addition to those who were dropped actually out at sea, or those who were dropped too low, or were dropped with the planes going too fast, other paratroopers that night drowned in water that was two feet deep. The Germans had flooded uh, fields around the Normandy area. These, the flooding could not be picked up by aerial photographs or allied intelligence because of reeds, hay, and so on. And so when paratroopers came down in what looked like a field in the dark, of course, hit the ground uh, and rolled as they were supposed to do, they wound up with all of this equipment rolling up in their parachutes in water 
two feet, three feet deep and were unable to, to disengage themselves and simply drowned. One other group of paratroopers came down in spectacular fashion in, in the absolute center of the village of St. Mary Glees, a critical, a critical point in airborne operations they were supposed to take. They were not supposed to land in the town. As coincidence would have it, a fire had broken out in one of the buildings in the town. Uh, lights were on. The huge fire was going. The villagers were out putting out the fire. And, of course, the German troops were out as well in the village as down suddenly out of the sky after hearing the droning of planes coming over, thinking, of course, this would simply be another Allied air raid. Instead, the sky was filled with parachutes coming down, and the troopers landed right in the middle of the village and were cut to pieces. One man, a radio operator, who landed on that night, would recall he landed with his radio, his his radio set in a leg bag attached to his leg, so additional equipment, fell into the water with 140 pounds of radio equipment securely fastened to his body and a, and a back injured by the opening shock that is when the parachute snapped open. He lost his knife as he struggled to cut his way out to the surface and was reprieved at his last gasp when his parachute collapsed and ceased to drag him along the bottom. The terror of that first night, he recalled in 1967, remains so vivid even today that sometimes I wake up in a cold sweat and nearly jump out of bed. What might not have been a propitious beginning to this most ambitious operation turned out to be a godsend. The Germans began to receive communications from all over Normandy, from all over the area, that paratroopers had landed, paratroopers had landed. And so even though the French resistance had begun to cut communications uh, for making it difficult for the Germans to get accurate reporting from the landing sites. At German high command, they begin to say, well, there are paratroopers here, 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 and here. It didn't seem to make any sense. What was the, what was the actual, what was the actual, was this simply a diversion? Was this simply a small action? What was going on? It was not at all clear. As the paratroopers were climbing into their planes, the BBC had broadcast in its, 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 broadcast to France, which were done every evening. The second part of Paul Verlaine's poem, uh, The Song of Autumn, which was the code word for the French resistance to know, to say, this is it. Uh, this is, this is the, the second half of it. The invasion is coming. And so as the paratroopers were getting, flying across the channel and preparing to land, French resistance groups were out beginning to cut lines of communication and so on. The Germans decoded this, understood what this meant, uh, but were unable to act on it. The Opfer, the German counterintelligence people, were enormously frustrated by this, believing that they understood that this this was the signal, uh, but were unable to to act on it uh, in a forthright fashion. The Germans then were slow to respond because of the chaos caused by the cutting of communication and also these contradictory or at least what seemed to be bizarre reports from the front of of paratroopers. At dawn on the 6th of June 1944, the vast armada that had been composed in Britain approached the shores of Fortress Europe. The Germans there were caught off guard despite the uh, breaking of the code, 
Rommel, so confident that the weather was was so abysmal, so terrible, that no Allied landing would come now, had actually left uh, Normandy, left France on his way back to Germany. It was his wife's birthday to to visit her. Other key commanders of the German high command in France were away from their posts going to war games because also they were convinced that the weather would prevent any sort of Allied landing at this particular point. Gerhard Rundstedt, the German commander for the Western Front, was slow to react, certain when, the, when finally enough coherence could be achieved about from the reports that a landing had taken place in Normandy. Rundstedt was still slow to react because he believed this was the diversion. It was too far away. It was not the Pas de Calais. And he was wary of taking uh, uh, premature action. Finally, he demanded that Hitler release the two panzer divisions, but Hitler would not be awakened, and thus 12 precious hours were lost and several more before they, the panzers were, could actually get underway. A great deal is usually made of this, of Hitler sleeping through the night, Nero fiddling while Rome burned. But in some ways, one suspects that even had Hitler been awake, and had been apprised of the situation, developing situation in Normandy, that he would have also been wary of, dis, of dispatching his panzers uh, that far south and would still hold on to them for some time because of the fear that the real invasion would come at the Pas de Calais. The plan that had been devised for D-Day was that the operation was to unfold in three stages, what was called the break-in D-Day itself get the lodgement to, to, to safely land, then the build-up, and then finally the breakout. All went well at the Allied invasion beaches except at Omaha Beach, where the Navy launched troops too far out in the choppy sea. There was ferocious resistance on the part of the Germans. The Americans were pinned down for hours. Uh, until late in the afternoon, it appeared that the situation at Omaha might might really get out of hand and that the entire invasion front might collapse as if the Germans could split the Allied invasion front. But late in the day, the Americans finally were able to move off the beach and to begin to press inland. The British landing at Gold, Juno, and Sword beaches moved ahead. Their landings went much more smoothly. They moved inland much quicker. But they, too, failed to take their original objective on D-Day. Montgomery had been, though he would later maintain this was not the case, confident that he was going to be able to take Caen the first day, in the first 24 hours. This was their objective. But although the Germans had been caught off guard and had been slow to respond, they put up terrific resistance, especially as the British began to move inland toward Caen. By the 7th of June... 100,000 Allied troops had landed on the coast of Normandy. Within 10 days, a half a million Allied troops had come ashore. By July 1st, almost a million Allied troops had managed to land. It's an interesting, it's interesting as one thinks about what might have happened had Eisenhower decided to postpone the invasion. Because on June 19th, one of the largest storms in, in the English Channel in the 20th century hit, a huge, ferocious storm. It destroyed the mulberry off the American landing beaches, this artificial uh, port that had been established. 
it would have been an absolute disaster if it had been if they'd tried to launch it then, or it might have been postponed yet again. The D-Day invasion had succeeded. I think there is a tendency to think in retrospect that victory there was a foregone conclusion, but it was anything but that. Anything but that. Um, and the the extraordinary feats of heroism uh, on that day, uh, I think 50 years after the fact, still boggle the mind. Uh, I'm struck as I think about uh, the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the D-Day landings when a number of American rangers who had taken part in one of the most remarkable achievements of that day, the especially trained group of, of rangers, uh, were supposed to climb Pont de Hoc, this, this sheer bluff, to get these German guns at the top. Uh, they had managed to do it, climb this against uh, terrific resistance. And as I looked at the veterans standing there on this 50th anniversary, standing at the bottom, look at, at the beach, looking up at the, these sheer bluffs, one man turned to a, one of his buddies and said, would somebody here please tell me how we did this? Um, it was such an, uh, such an amazing individual feat. The day was filled with those. There's a second tendency, I think, a second and an understandable temptation also to think of that dramatic day, the longest day, as Rommel referred to it, as in itself decisive for the outcome of the war. But that epic battle in which 4,000 Allied soldiers would become casualties was, in fact, just the beginning of a long, murderous campaign in Normandy, whose outcome was still in doubt weeks after June 6th. Indeed, the Allies were still bogged down in Normandy a month later, the Americans slogging through the hedgerow country, the so-called Bocage country. St. Lowe would fall only on July 18th, and the British were still pinned down before Caen. That unfortunate city had been the British objective for D-Day, but would fall to British and Canadian troops only after a massive RAF raid virtually leveled the city on July 18th. What's remarkable, in a way, about the Battle of Normandy is that one gets, almost gets the impression that the Allies were so focused in the planning on D-Day itself, getting the troops ashore, landing them, being able to supply them, that, that less thought had actually been given to the terrain, the conditions of combat in Normandy itself. The Americans in particular, finding themselves in Normandy, in this Bocage country, the hedgerow country, uh, Allied intelligence was unprepared for this, remarkably enough. These, these hedgerows were anything but sort of small decorative shrubs. These, in many cases, were centuries old, huge hedgerows, mounds that were almost like bunkers with a deep system of roots so that they couldn't even be, a tank couldn't even penetrate them. And each road, each field was boundaried by these, these hedgerows. As a consequence, a German force, even an undermanned German force, could fight, hold up an advance for uh, much of a day, move back to the next hedgerow, the next hedgerow, and so on. It was absolutely murderous for the troops bogged down uh, in this area. It would not be until August that the American breakthrough occurred when General Patton was at last dispatched to the continent to lead the American Third Army, and it came roaring out of the Cotentin Peninsula and raced to the east-northeast toward Falaise. At this point, 
General Montgomery, and at this point, and late, and, and certainly in retrospect after the war, always would maintain that the original plan, his original plan, had called for him not necessarily to take combat, to use that as the hinge, and then the Americans would, would be the door that would swing for the, for the great breakout. This is some creative retrospective thinking, I think, on the part of General Montgomery, but certainly it would be Patton, whose third army, would begin the war of movement, breaking out uh, and tearing into the Germans. The Falaise, fel- an entire German army group, would be trapped by the Americans coming from the south, the British and Canadians moving down a bit from the north. The killing and destruction in the so-called Falaise pocket was so intense, the slaughter so overwhelming, that Allied pilots flowing, flying over the battlefield at 1,500 feet could smell the stench of death rising from the battlefield. In mid-August, the second Allied invasion occurred on the Mediterranean coast of France, led by a joint American and French force that rapidly began to push northward. At this juncture, the only issue remaining for the campaign in France was the fate of Paris. Would the Allies attempt to seize the city? Would the Germans defend it? Leading, almost everyone agreed to, to the city's destruction. Eisenhower's intention originally was simply to bypass Paris. It was, as far as Eisenhower was concerned, of very little strategic importance. The political significance of it, the symbolic significance of it, was obviously important, especially to the French. But... In terms of military operations, Eisenhower believed that it would simply slow down the Allied advance. It would, the Allies would be forced to, to supply the city of Paris, the civilians of Paris, and that this would, this would, would be a diversion of much needed resources. Initially, the decision to bypass Paris had been supported by General de Gaulle, who had been promised by Eisenhower when the two were in Africa, that Paris would be liberated by French forces. The question now was which French forces? As the Allied troops broke out of Normandy, resistance forces in Paris, indeed all over the country, had risen up. The French resistance, which had uh, had struggled against the Germans and German occupation since 1940, now came out in full force. De Gaulle had created a general staff for what he called the FFI, the French Forces of the Interior, and had convinced Eisenhower to recognize him as a co-equal of the other national commanders under Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force. De Gaulle was, in the best of times, a difficult person to deal with. His sense of pride had been wounded over and over and over again by the Allies, who were not completely, uh, did not consider him completely trustworthy, uh, nonetheless, de Gaulle was particularly worried that the Parisian resistance with its heavy communist influence would seize the city. If the city were going to be liberated, de Gaulle argued, it had to be liberated by the FFI, by his forces, liberated from without, not by the communists within the city. He ins- He ordered the Parisian resistance under no circumstances to unleash what he called a premature rising against the German garrison. There were two concerns for for de Gaulle. One was that if the resistance in Paris, largely dominated, he was afraid, by the communists, did in fact rise against the Germans, that it would lead to the destruction of the city. 
that the Germans would use this as an, the fighting in the city, city would destroy Paris, the jewel of, of Western civilization, as far as, as de Gaulle was concerned. Uh, and second, he didn't want there to be what he called a second commune. There was the, the commune of 1871 when the Germans had surrounded Paris and a left-wing uprising had sent the city and French political culture into a, 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 a crisis. On August 22, 1944, with the threat that de Gaulle would, on his own initiative, send French troops to Paris, Eisenhower relented. And General Leclerc was ordered to advance with his French armored division on the city. In a mad dash for Paris, 120 miles away, Leclerc, supported by American forces, entered the city whose resistance had risen anyway. De Gaulle was unable to actually control events in Paris. And accepted the surrender of the German garrison. The Germans had indeed planted, begun the process, German demolition teams had begun the process of, of mining the Eiffel Tower, uh, the Louvre, all the bridges on the Ile de la Cité, the Ile Saint-Louis, the major cultural uh, uh, monuments of Paris. Uh, but the general there, the German general, was finally convinced that he did not want to be the man who would be remembered for the, destroying, the destruction of Paris. The fall of Paris then was the final installment in the battle for France, which had commenced on D-Day, June 6th. By early September, the Allied armies had reached Belgium and Holland and were approaching the German frontier. The war in Europe in the late summer of 1944 seemed to be drawing to a speedy close. And indeed, The summer of 1944, both on the eastern and western fronts, did represent the beginning of the war's final phase. The Allied success in France was matched by a devastating defeat meted out to the Germans by the Red Army in July, when the entire center of the German front in Russia collapsed, and the Russians began the long, arduous push toward the eastern frontiers of the Third Reich. But the war was not over. The dying continued for almost a year after D-Day. In fact, the largest pitched battle in American history remained to be fought, the Battle of the Bulge in December and January of 1944-45. But after the events of the summer of 1944, after the success of D-Day, the outcome of the war in Europe was no longer in doubt. The tide had been irrevocably turned, and the liberation of Europe from Nazi tyranny was at hand. Lecture 20, Operation Market Garden and the Battle of the Bulge. By the late summer of 1944, the Western Allies stood in control of most of France. Belgium, Holland lay before them. The frontier of Germany beckoned. In this, our 20th lecture in the series on the Second World War, we're going to examine Allied operations from the fall of Paris in late August of 1944, through the winter, looking at particularly Operation Market Garden, the Allied plan to get across the Rhine in 1944, and then the German counterattack, the Ardennes Offensive 
in the winter of 1944 and into January 1945. At this point in the war, with the fall of Paris, the breakout out of, out of Normandy, it really did seem as if the war might come to an end in Europe in 1944. The Germans seemed to be reeling, were defeated. At this point, a debate broke out within the Allied High Command between General Montgomery, the British commander, who would advocate what he called a single thrust strategy aimed at driving directly toward the Ruhr and possibly even on to Berlin if necessary, and General Eisenhower, who would prefer a, a broad front approach to the strategic advance toward Germany. The Allies would encounter several problems in this period. One was a shortage of troops. We would discover in 1944 that despite the enormous mobilization of manpower in the United States, that the American army actually was too small for the task that it had been assigned to fight in two theaters of of war in the Pacific and now in Europe. There would also be a problem of overconfidence extraordinary overconfidence on the part of the Allies in the summer and fall of 1944, for which the Allies would pay a terrible cost in the Ardennes in the winter with the German offensive that would come to be known as the Battle of the Bulge. The Allied debate over offensive strategy really burst forth with the fall of Paris on August 25th. The city of light was spared by the Germans and by the Allies. It was declared an open city. Uh, Leclerc and Bradley's troops entered the city. Some of the American troops were somewhat bitter because they got to march down the Champs-Élysées, march through the city at the other side, only then to get put back on trucks or march and move on toward the front after the Germans. But shortly thereafter, the British 2nd and Canadian 1st, the American 1st Armies, slammed into Belgium, and by September 15, almost all of Belgium and Luxembourg were in Allied hands. Meanwhile, Patton's Third Army had swung into the northeast portions of France and was making rapid headway. Indeed, the German frontier was now only a few miles away. The offensive needed to halt, not so much because of German resistance, which seemed to be cracking at every possible place, but simply because the armies were outrunning their supplies. Supply would become one of the major problems as well. Fuel shortages began to develop. The only real operative ports, beaches, were still in Normandy, and as the farther the American troops, the Allied troops pushed, uh, the farther away from those supply, resupply centers they came. The debate then centered around General Montgomery's position, who Montgomery argued with Eisenhower, urging what he called a single-thrust strategy, with the British 2nd and American 1st Armies, under his command naturally, driving toward the Rhine and the Ruhr, while the Canadians and the Americans under Patton would halt in order to conserve fuel and supplies, and those scarce supplies and fuel would be funneled to uh, Montgomery's forces in the north. Eisenhower, on the other hand, advocated a broad front strategy with all armies moving ahead simultaneously, putting pressure across the, uh, on the Germans, stretching German resources across a broad front. Montgomery was certainly unhappy and later argued that Eisenhower's decision prevented not only 
the early encirclement of the Ruhr, but a dash all the way to Berlin. Montgomery, after the war, would maintain that Eisenhower had made a terrible decision here. That victory really was within the Allies' grasp in the summer of 1944, and that if only he, Montgomery, had been given the necessary fuel, supplies, had been given precedence over Patton and the others, then it would have been possible to concentrate Allied forces, smash the Germans, cross the Rhine in the north, and drive directly to the Ruhr, knocking the Germans out of the war early. Or then, even continuing on, this great juggernaut headed toward Berlin. Montgomery is probably correct about the advance to the Rhine. There's no question that had he been given the resources, Allied forces under his command, the British Second Army, American First, could have driven toward the Rhine with great, with great force in the summer of 1944. But crossing the Rhine was still going to be a very difficult proposition. And Montgomery was wildly optimistic about the possibility of a drive toward Berlin or even actually into the Ruhr itself. The Allies lacked the supplies for such an ambitious policy, uh, and there was no solution in sight to that supply problem. This was something that Eisenhower understood. That problem, the problem of, of getting supplies to the advancing Allied armies, was eased somewhat by the capture of Marseille. Um, but the Allies still badly needed a major port in northwestern Europe near the action, moving tr- supplies from Marseille in the south or from Normandy, still was taking too long. The obvious choice was the Belgium port of Antwerp, one of Europe's largest and most important ports. And Antwerp actually fell to the British on September 4th with the port intact, an important uh, achievement for the British. But the problem was not solved by the seizure of Antwerp because Antwerp lay on the Scheldt River, 60 miles from the North Sea, and the Germans continued to control the Belgian and Dutch territory that bordered the river's estuary. So that while it was pot- one had the port, one still had to send supplies up and down that river to get to the port, and the Germans were able to harass and make any sort of, of ship movement and make it really major supply resupply impossible by that route. Hitler planned to hold on to this estuary for as long as possible. The Allies certainly knew this, to deny the use of the port. And indeed, the Germans continued to hold out in the Scheldt estuary until November 9th. And until that time, Antwerp was absolutely useless to the Allies. A second debate would break out in the the Allied camp in roughly this period. Montgomery, thwarted in his single-thrust strategy, now put forward a new plan a plan to cross the Rhine in the north, in the Netherlands. If it worked, he argued, the Allies would jump the only major river barrier that guarded Germany and would outflank the northernmost fortifications of what was called the Westwall, sometimes the Siegfried Line, along the Dutch-German border. It would also threaten the V2 launch sites in Holland, One of the aspects of the D-Day attack that we did not mention in talking about the operations on the continent was Hitler's launch in the aftermath of D-Day of the so-called V-weapons, Vergeltungswaffen in German, it means revenge or vengeance weapons. The buzz bombs that would chug, 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 and could be heard uh, coming across the channel, Uh, the first missiles of, of certainly of modern warfare, You could see them. They could actually be shot down, traced on radar and shot down by the RAF or the Americans 
with some difficulty. These were terrifying enough, but the Germans would also begin shortly thereafter launching the V-2s, rockets that fired into the above the stratosphere would come down with devastating impact on London uh, and could not be could not be seen could not be anticipated they simply would arrive with devastating impact so getting to these launch sites in the low countries was a major concern for the allies in Holland in particular in 1944 however a drive to the Rhine in Holland would require crossing four rivers and three canals before reaching the lower Rhine at Arnhem. It would require airborne troops to seize bridges all along the route, with British ground troops pushing north to relieve them. The plan that Montgomery came up with to drop large numbers of airborne troops all along the way, as far north as Arnhem, about 65 miles away, they would seize the crossover, seize the bridges, allowing uh, the Allies pushing from the south along uh, a route north uh, to actually cross the rivers and get across the Rhine. This last bridge at Arnhem was 64 miles away. Eisenhower was dubious about this this plan, but he agreed approved Montgomery's plan, and what came to be known as Operation Market Garden was launched. The American 101st and 82nd Airborne Divisions, the British 1st Airborne Division, the so-called Red Devils, were to be dropped with the bridge at Arnhem to be taken, the key bridge at Arnhem to be taken by the Red Devils. Market Garden began on September 17, 1944, with a huge parachute drop, It was a daring enterprise uh, and an enormous enterprise. There is a film called Bridge Too Far from the Cornelius Ryan book by the same name, which has a visual depiction of of this. It's remarkable even in in the later filming. An enormous parachute drop. That went successfully, but problems quickly emerged. For one thing, there were two German panzer divisions within the vicinity of Arnhem. What is remarkable about this, and symptomatic of the period, I think, is that Ultra had already informed the Americans, or we had been informed by Ultra, of the the presence of these armored divisions in the area. And yet, the, the drop, the parachute drop, went ahead on schedule. I think what one sees in this is the beginning of, a, it reflects, I think, this excessive optimism, the sense that the Germans were beaten uh, we were now going to be able to push the Germans out. And even though these two armored divisions were present, they could be brushed aside. It is this overconfidence in this period uh, that would prove to be nearly fatal. The British drop was also too far away from the obje- objective, and their advance was quite slow. The a- American 82nd Airborne had difficulty capturing the bridge over the Val River, uh, and so there was a great deal of delay in the operation. Things didn't go as smoothly as, as, as anticipated after the initial drop. Also, the advance of the main force, the ground force moving from the south, was glacially slow. It moved along one major road, and the Germans quickly brought this under artillery fire so that the progress to, to relieve the airborne troops in the north the progress was unbelievably slow. 
Finally, relief arrived to all of the paratrooper units except the British Airborne at Arnhem. This was indeed, as Cornelius Ryan has argued, a bridge too far. It was too far away, and after nine days of intense fighting, the Red Devils managed to break out of breakthrough German lines and to link up with the relief force. When they did so, of the 9,000 British paratroopers that had gone into Arnhem, 2,400 emerged to link up with the relief column. The failure of Operation Market Garden, and it was an abysmal failure, ended all hopes of crossing the Rhine in 1944 and for all intents and purposes really ended the possibility of, of the war coming to an end in the West in 1944. There would be no easy crossing of the Rhine in the North. U.S. forces under Hodges, First Army, and Patton were probing into Germany, but the going was very, very slow. German resistance was tenacious. The terrain was bad. Patton was bogged down in Lorraine, slogging away uh, in the most unproductive campaigning of Patton's career in Europe. The First Army would take Aachen, the first German city to fall on October 21st after a month of slow and heavy fighting, particularly in an area called the Hürtgen Forest, where the the fighting was brutal, uh, resistance terrible, the terrain difficult. The fighting in the Hürtgen Forest was especially bloody and resistance terrific. Patch's 7th Army and Delatre's French troops were advancing from the south, but they encountered the Vosges Mountains, long, low range along the border of Alsace, and also their advance slowed. So what had seemed to be this, in, this initial burst out of France and coming after the liberation of Paris, now on all, in every direction, north, east, and from the south, all were slowed. Even the existence of the Red Ball Express, this, this extraordinary uh, resupply system of roads being taken over, uh, and run in, in a one-way street literally to the front and then with the, re- the trucks revolving on a 24-hour basis, couldn't keep up uh, the necessary supplies to the troops at the front. Summer had turned to fall, and victory in Western Europe was still elusive. In this situation, Hitler decided to take one last gamble in the West. He wanted one last offensive, a desperate effort to split the Allies in the West, an offensive to drive between Montgomery's armies in the north and the Americans farther to the south, with Antwerp in the middle. When Hitler presented his ideas for this to his commanders, Rundstedt and the others were absolutely mortified. Of all times, this was the time to to marshal one's resources. This was the time to begin to pull back to defensible lines, to hold. The Russians were still hammering away in the east, advancing on a broad front toward Germany. Now the the key was to find defensible positions, to pull back beyond the Rhine, to hold the the Americans and the British, to force them into a long, slow, arduous advance. Hitler would have none of it. Instead, there was going to be a coup de grace, a, a dramatic stroke that would s- smash the Allies 
in the West and possibly lead to some sort of negotiated peace. Hitler's plan was to smash into the Allied forces through the Ardennes, in the Ardennes. Then send armored spearheads dashing for Antwerp. This would isolate Montgomery's forces in the north. It would deny the Allies the use of the port. He assembled 24 divisions, including 10 panzer divisions equipped with the new, the newest German tanks, the Tigers and the Panthers. It was a larger force than the Germans had used in the invasion of Western Europe in 1940. And many of these troops, especially the armored divisions, were battle-hardened veterans, not of the Western Front, but of the Eastern Front, who had been brought back SS units as well. Waffen SS units brought back elite troops for this assault in the West. The Allies had only weak forces at this point along many areas of the front, weak in the sense of under-equipped, understaffed, uh, and certainly inexperienced. It was at this point in the war that already the needs of manpower were, were being felt, and the, the Allies were already contemplating the idea, the Americans already contemplating the idea of actually pulling ground troops out of the Army Air Corps units stationed in England and Italy and giving them rifles and sending them into, into infantry units. Um, the area that was weakest, there were only four divisions of Hodge's 1st Army along the Ardennes. The Germans, and there was an amazing intelligence lapse here. On the one hand, one, one wonders, the, the Allies looking at this situation in the winter of 1944 now, they have force, fairly strong forces in the north. Patton's position is still down in Lorraine in the south. And the Ardennes, right in the center, this key area in the center of the line, is considered by the Western Allies to be impenetrable to the Germans. The Germans can't launch an offensive operation there, particularly in the winter, and particularly with armor, despite the fact that the Germans had invaded through the Ardennes in 1870 and in 1940 with, with great effect. In addition, intelligence reports were filtering back to Allied high command that there was a considerable amount of troop movement Tank movement uh, from east to west. Radio silence meant that ultra was of little help. But in fact, the very the, the lack of radio traffic should have been should have alerted the Allies that something something was afoot. Part of this was explained away. The Germans were closer to their own turf. They didn't need to use radio transmissions as much. There were other ways of communicating. All of this was true, but. What one senses here, this, again, almost fatal overconfidence of the Allies. The Allies did detect the transfer of panzer divisions from the east and actually intercepted messages concerning German air reconnaissance over the Ardennes. And yet no particular steps were taken uh, to face the possibility of a German offensive, simply seen as being impossible. It was one of the great intelligence failures of the Second World War. On December 16, 1944, the Germans launched what Hitler called Operation Autumn Fog. He caught the overmatched Americans unprepared. German troops, some of which were dressed in uh, American uniforms, were able to infiltrate Allied lines. They picked English-speaking and American-sounding Germans dressed them in American MP uniforms behind the lines to change uh, signs and to generally cause havoc and confusion. 
The German forces overwhelmed the outnumbered Americans over a 70-mile front, and panzers headed for the Meuse River. Low overcast kept the allies, kept allied air power neutralized for a week, so that what was the great allied advantage, complete air superiority, indeed air supremacy, was of no value. This was actually one of the great strokes of luck for the Germans, that the weather was so bad during this time. The fighting was intense and conditions terrible. Heavy, wet, snowfall, it turned out to be the coldest winter in Europe in the 20th century to that point. The 1st SS Panzer Division was particularly aggressive. It would be during this German offensive in the Ardennes that troops largely from the Eastern Front, used to fighting in conditions of the Eastern Front where prisoners were not taken, where the, the, the rules of war were not observed, where the Geneva Convention meant nothing. These SS troops were now employed in the West, uh, leading to the murder of a number of American prisoners of war. The most notorious incident, of course, near Malmedy, where uh, 86 American prisoners were machine gunned uh, and shot by uh, SS troops. Isolated U.S. units continued to hold out, especially at two key road junctures in eastern Belgium, at St. Viet and at Bastogne. These were crucial, crucial road junctures that the Germans had to seize. Speed was of the essence for the Germans. They understood this. They were lucky. The weather was still holding out bad for the Allies. And so they needed to break through. They couldn't be held up. The longer they were held up, the, the dicier the operation became. St. Viet fell on December 22nd, but Bastogne held. Reinforced by the elements of the 101st Airborne, Bastogne would be surrounded and the Germans would offer, the German general offered uh, the American commander there, Anthony McAuliffe, the opportunity to surrender. This, of course, has gone down in the lore of the Second World War. Um, it's not quite give me liberty or give me death. But when the German commander sent uh, formal word with the, using all of the courtesies and so on, the formal courtesies of, of German military lore uh, to offer surrender to the American forces at Bastogne, uh, McAuliffe supposedly stumbling around said, oh, nuts. And his, one of his, his uh, associates said, well, just say that. Send that message back. And so to the German offer of surrender and the sort of flowery, formal uh, German proposal, the response went back nuts. It would go down as one of the one of the great uh, comments of the Second World War. I think McAuliffe regretted it almost ever after since he was constantly asked about this uh, after the war. But it seemed to be the essence of defiance. The 101st as well as McAuliffe's troops held out. And on December 23rd, the skies cleared and the Allied planes were at last able to take off. They were, Allies were able to employ their air power, and they decimated the German armored spearheads who were deprived of fuel. Here one sees the impact of something we're going to talk about in a future lecture, which is the impact of Allied air power, hammering away at German oil supplies, so that one of the goals was not simply to reach Antwerp, dep- deprive the Allies of the port, split the Allies, but also to, to get the oil supplies of the Allies built up in the West. On December 26th, Patton's troops, who had turned from Lorraine and raced northward, broke the siege of Bastogne. 
Montgomery, who had been charged with lifting the siege um, and who would create enormous ill will over this episode, arrived at Hodge's headquarters. And according even to one of Montgomery's own uh, own men, said he arrived at Hodge's headquarters with the air of Christ come to cleanse the temple. He had he had ridden to the rescue of the Americans who had mucked everything up. Um, Patton would lift the siege of Beston December 26th. Montgomery did not launch his assault to to come to the relief of the Americans until January 3rd. At this point, the German offensive had ground to a halt without crossing the Meuse River. Autumn fog had been a wildly ambitious German operation. It created a bulge in Allied lines 45 miles wide and 65 miles deep, hence the, the, the name, the Battle of the Bulge. But it really had no chance of reaching Antwerp. Rundstedt wanted to withdraw, to pull his troops back, but Hitler refused. And by the end of January, the bulge in Allied lines had been eliminated. Hitler had sacrificed his last reserves and his best armor in this undertaking. He had delayed the Allied offensive in the West, but he had exhausted his strength on the enterprise and an enterprise which had virtually no chance of success. Everything would have had to break right for the Germans for this operation to have achieved the strategic objectives that Hitler had foreseen. And, of course, it desperately weakened German strength in the east, armored strength particularly, at a critical juncture. The Russians were preparing a massive offensive in Poland from mid-January, and German troops there would find themselves drastically overmatched. And Hitler also refused to withdraw troops to the east bank of the Rhine, as Rundstedt and the others had begged him to do. Instead, he demanded that the German troops would fight for every inch of German soil. It was absolutely suicidal. His commanders understood it. The German troops would find themselves caught between the Allies in the West and the Rhine uh, and were in for a desperate winter. The failure of Hitler's offensive in the Ardennes would mark the last gasp of Nazi Germany in the West. There was at this point... By the end of December, beginning of January 1945, the Germans could not win the war in Europe. The last gasp, the last hope for some sort of miraculous victory had now vanished. And yet the war would go on until May of 1945. But Germany now would be in retreat and on the defensive. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by The Teaching Company. These lectures are titled World War II, A Military and Social History, Part 3. Lecture 21, Advance Across the Pacific. In the last set of lectures, we've been examining events in Europe. 
in the European theater of operations, examining strategic dilemmas, strategic problems confronted by both the Allies and the Axis powers. In this, our 21st lecture, we're going to shift our focus geographically across the world to the Pacific, the, examining the American strategy in the Pacific, the debates within the American high command about routes for, for the advance towards the Japanese home islands, and to examine the beginning of the campaigns that would lead American forces slowly, inexorably, and with terrific losses toward the final assault on Japan. The war in the Pacific was to be largely an American responsibility in the division of labor. The British were to take care of Southeast Asia coming out of Burma, India, and so on, while the United States would shoulder the responsibility for the larger Pacific. So that whereas we've been talking about conflicts between British and Americans over strategy, the Mediterranean strategy versus the cross-channel invasion, there would be no replays of this inter-allied conflict in the Pacific theater. Rather, here the strategic debates would be between the various armed forces of the United States, the Navy versus the Army, MacArthur versus his uh, Admiral King and his Navy counterparts. Initially, in 1942 in, and 1943, progress was slow. The initiative had been wrested away from the Japanese at Midway and at Guadalcanal. And gradually, the gap between the industrial capacities of the two powers began to widen. The great fear of Yamamoto at the outset of the war, that if the war went beyond several months, if the Americans were not brought to the bargaining table within a matter of months, that over the long haul, Japan simply could not compete with American industrial strength, American industrial production, and American manpower. As time passed, this became increasingly clear. The gap would grow at a spectacular pace that would profoundly affect the outcome of the war. Initially, Franklin Roosevelt had favored one commander-in-chief for the Pacific Theater, in many ways the, cor the counterpart to Dwight Eisenhower in his position in Europe. But Admiral King and FDR both had hoped that Admiral Nimitz would be that man. On the other hand, General MacArthur, the defender of the Philippines, and his dramatic escape from Bataan had made MacArthur a hero in the United States. The solution, King, Nimitz, Roosevelt, were all fairly convinced that one commander-in-chief was necessary and believed that it should, in fact, be, be Nimitz. But there was the problem of MacArthur. What to do? What to do with the Philippines? The solution, and one that was not an entirely happy one, was a divided command structure in the Pacific. General MacArthur would be commander of Allied forces in the Southwest Pacific, responsible for Australia, the Solomons, New Guinea, the Bismarck Archipelago, the Philippines, the Dutch Indies, except for Sumatra, while Admiral Nimitz would retain his position as commander of the Pacific Fleet and become commander-in-chief of North, Central, and Southern Pacific theaters of operation. The Southwest Pacific then was an army operation, and MacArthur reported directly to General Marshall, 
while the Navy ran the other operations and Nimitz remained under the control of Admiral King. Britain, meanwhile, retained operational control over Burma and the rest of Southeast Asia. In this emerging, with this divided command structure, there was obviously a strategic debate. The Navy favored what came to be known as a Central Pacific strategy and advanced through a series of island chains, the Marshalls, the Carolines, and the Marianas, island chains and individual islands which were certainly obscure, hardly known by anyone in the United States before 1942-43, but would become etched in the experience and memories of hundreds of thousands, indeed millions of Americans over the next few years. This Central Pacific strategy, this advance through the Marshalls, the Carolines, the Marianas, offered, Nimitz argued, the most advantageous and direct route to Japan. It would allow a concentration of resources. And these three far-flung island chains contained over a hundred, over a thousand small islands, and the Japanese simply couldn't defend all of them. The United States, in this, according to this strategy, would be able to pick and choose its targets. It would be able to maneuver. The Japanese would be stretched to the to the utmost. And finally, the conquest of the Marianas would bring the Japanese home islands into range of American heavy bombers. The Solomons, New Guinea, and even Rabaul, the major Japanese base and garrison, could be bypassed, and the Japanese troops there simply allowed to, as the Navy put it, wither on the vine. The key to this strategy was the capture of the Japanese naval base at Truk in the Carolines. The Army, on the other hand, and MacArthur most certainly, preferred a drive along the northern coast of New Guinea, then an attack on the Philippines. Not surprisingly, this strategy would concentrate the American effort in the Southwest Pacific under, no surprise at all, General MacArthur's command. The result, just as there had been a compromise on command structure, there would now be a, a compromise on strategy. In April of 1943, the Joint Chiefs of Staff opted for a two-pronged strategy, merging both Army and Navy proposals. They believed that the Navy's Central Pacific strategy should, in fact, be the highest priority, but recognized that too much blood had already been spilled in the Solomons and New Guinea simply to abandon operations there. So the American advance on Japan would proceed on two axes, the Southwest, an Army area of operations, and the Central Pacific, a Navy area of concentration. The offensives were based on what came to be known as the island hopping technique, seizing key islands or parts of island chains, then jumping forward several hundred miles, followed by another leap, leaving possibly pockets of Japanese defenders isolated. Japan would be kept guessing, would stretch their resources to the breaking point, and the Allies, the Americans, would move inexorably on toward the Japanese home islands. The offensive in the Southwest Pacific would come in 1943 and into 44. The Joint Chiefs had laid down the guidelines for strategy that MacArthur and Halsey, Admiral Halsey, under MacArthur's general direction, would follow in 1943. This operation was called Operation Cartwheel. The two key targets of this operation were in the Solomons, New Guinea, northwest of Guadalcanal, and Bougainville. Successful landings there would permit Halsey's forces to bypass most of the Solomons 
and provide air bases for assault on Rabaul. The importance of land-based aircraft and air-based, uh, land-based air power was driven home in March of 1943 in what came to be known as the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, when General George M. Kenney in his 5th Air Force under MacArthur began experimenting with B-25 Mitchell bombers, lightweight two-engine bombers, attacking at low level. During the winter of 1943, pilots had been specially trained for these low-level operations, and then in March... Ultra-indicated Jap- a Japanese convoy containing seven troop carriers and eight destroyers had left Rabaul for New Guinea. B-17s, the big four-engine bombers, tried to attack and in fact sank two of the troop ships. Then the B-25s and lower dive bombers sank all of the troop carriers as well as four destroyers. For the first time, Land-based aircraft had destroyed a Japanese fleet without the aid of naval forces. It strengthened the American resolve to gain advanced air bases and the determination to build airfields, to use air power in conjunction with the Navy and armed and ground forces uh, to pressure the Japanese. Admiral Yamamoto I think sensing that, that, that awful sense of the tide in, turning against him, inexorably turning against him, tried to reverse this virtually tidal wave of rising U.S. air power by sending 300 Japanese planes to attack American bases in the Solomons and New Guinea in a series of major air raids, but in each suffered very serious losses without reversing the balance of air power. Believing that he had, in fact, achieved a victory, he'd been getting incomplete reports there of, of, of great damages to American uh, aircraft, Yamamoto decided to visit Bougainville to congratulate his pilots. There was an intercept, ultra-intercepted this his, uh, and his plan to visit. Eighteen American P-38s, Lightnings, jumped his plane, shot it down as it approached Bougainville, and Japan lost one of its great military figures before Operation Cartwheel was even underway. Yamamoto, who had warned of the dangers of an all-out conflict with the United States, would not be alive to see his worst fears realized. Cartwheel was launched in June of 1943 against New Guinea and the Solomons. New Georgia and Bougainville would allow Halsey's forces to bypass most of the Solomon Islands and provide air bases for raids on Rabaul. The sense that Rabaul was their key, it and truck, these two key Japanese positions uh, had to be taken. And so air bases for raids on Rabaul. Assaults began in late June. Fighting was intense and horrific. In the rugged, jungle-choked terrain, intricate Japanese defenses, for the first time, in combat in the war, the flamethrower would be used as a, a major weapon uh, in combat on the ground. A series of naval engagements resulted in Japanese defeats at sea as well as on land. And Bougainville especially, was especially important since a foothold there would allow the Americans to build airfields closer to New Britain and fighter planes would then es- could escort bombers on raids against Rabaul. By November, Japanese resistance in Bougainville had come to an end, had been broken. Meanwhile, 
MacArthur continued his operations along the northern New Guinea coast using American and Australian troops. Progress along the coast was agonizingly slow. The Japanese fought tenaciously and in December launched an attack on New Britain in torrential rains, fighting in the monsoon season, something that virtually everyone thought was impossible and was absolutely miserable. Nonetheless, by the end of 1943, the Allies were closing in on the fortress at Rabaul from the western end of New Britain and Bougainville and New Georgia. By March 1944, the Allies had seized Los Negros and the Admiralty Islands and now closed the fence around Rabaul. At this point, it might have been, the temptation was to launch a major assault. In fact, MacArthur had thought from the outset that there would have to be a major battle over Rabaul, where the Japanese had uh, a great many troops. But it was already decided that uh, it would be possible, seeing the way the course of the conflict was going, to actually bypass it, simply to seal it off, not have a frontal assault on this highly fortified Japanese position. And this is exactly what happened. So there's progress being made in a slow, agonizing way, fighting engagements across the islands in the southwest. Meanwhile, in the central Pacific, Admiral Nimitz had, build up, had built up far larger naval forces than were available for Operation Cartwheel. The 5th Fleet under Admiral Spirits commanded eight carriers, seven battleships, seven heavy and three light cruisers, 34 destroyers, and in addition, a new advance in technology had, was now available to the Americans. That was the arrival of the Hellcat fighter plane. It would become the best carrier-based aircraft in the Pacific, and the, the day of the Japanese Zero was quickly going to pass. The first objective for Nimitz in the Central Pacific was the Gilberts. The objectives, two small atolls, hardly visible on the map. One was Mekin at the northwest extremity, but the other, a tiny island near the center, was going to be the real key. This was Tarawa. Tarawa was well defended by a garrison of some 5,000 Japanese troops. It was actually not one island, but a number of islands and coral reefs along a 15-mile lagoon. The key point was Bitio, a stretch of island two and a half miles long, but at its widest portion across, only 800 yards deep, a tiny island. The taking of Tarawa was considered essential. Intelligence had warned Admiral Spirance that the November tides were highly unpredictable and raised fear that the invasion force would, be, would become stuck on the reefs that were just underneath the surface of the sea, just around the, uh, the, coral, um, the coral reef that surrounded the islands. The admiral, however, decided not to postpone the attack. He didn't want to wait until December. And so on November 20th, 1943, Marines stormed ashore at Tarawa. The first three waves were able to take advantage of a new item in the inventory of naval and amphibious warfare. This was the Amtrak, the uh, vehicle which was able to uh, move across the reefs. The tide was low, uh, just as intelligence had feared. 
But instead of being caught in the reefs, these anthrax were able to go over the reefs and deliver the first three waves of marines onto the beach where they encountered fierce resistance. For all of the remaining waves of incoming marines, the deeper, clumsier landing craft ran aground on the reef, on the coral reef. Uh, the marines were dislodged hundreds of yards from shore and had to wade in chest-deep water through withering Japanese fire until they reached the beach. It was a brutal encounter. By nightfall, the beachhead was only 300 yards deep, and 1,500 of the 5,000 Marines on shore were either dead or wounded. Resistance on Tarawa would end on November 23rd. But Tarawa, bloody Tarawa as it came to be known, was a rude shock. A shock to the Marines and to the American military planners and also a shock to the American public. Here was this tiny atoll, hardly could be found with a a magnifying glass on the map. And 1,000 Americans were dead and 2,000 were wounded. For the Japanese, the toll was even grimmer. Of the 5,000 Japanese troops on Tarawa, 17 survived. Was this, American planners and the public, worried? Was this a prelude? Is this what all of these islands would be like? This island-hopping strategy, this advance across the Pacific toward Japan, was each one of these islands going to be contested in this sort of way with this level of casualties? It was a terrifying prospect. From the Gilberts, Nimitz would make a leap to the Marshall Islands. There, things went far more smoothly by by bypassing the outer islands and leaping 400 miles into the center of the chain. The neutralization of the Japanese base at Truk uh, in the uh, Carolines and the western rim of the Marshalls was important. It was a very important naval and air base that could threaten all American operations. This was carried out in mid-February when carrier-based American planes destroyed over 200 Japanese aircraft, sank eight warships, damaged one carrier, and ended trucks' value as an air base and a naval, a base of naval operations. The assault then was pressed on into the Marianas, to Guam and Saipan and Tinian, all hallowed names in Marine Corps and naval history. The decision was made to leapfrog all the other Caroline Islands and to move a thousand miles northwest to this series of, of islands, Saipan and Guam and Tinian. These, unlike the islands already encountered, certainly unlike Tarawa, were substantial islands. And they lay only 1,200 miles from the home islands of Japan. Taking them would open a variety of strategic options. An assault on the Philippines in the West, something that MacArthur was certainly still very keen on a northwards thrust toward the Bonin Islands within 700 miles of Japan, establishing important air bases for long-range American bombers, the B-29 with its, with its great range, 
was already becoming available to American forces here. So as the, the taking of, of the Marianas would move American air power, land-based air power, within striking distance of Japan itself. So the Marianas loomed extremely large in American strategic thinking in the summer of 1944. Nimitz's key objective in the Marianas was to be Saipan. And on June 15th, 1944, as the Allies were, had, had been on shore for a little over a week in Normandy, American forces stormed ashore at Saipan. It, there, the fighting was, as it had been at Tarawa and elsewhere, incredibly bloody. On July 6th, 1944, Admiral Nagumo and General Sato committed suicide to inspire their troops. And on the night of July 6th and 7th, the Japanese launched a massive frontal assault, a suicide charge that decimated the remaining Japanese troops. It was a suicide charge. Marines had seen this before, but nothing like this, of this scale, this magnitude. The, the suicide of the, command, the Japanese commanders seemed to st- struck the Americans as being not, not, not brave, but as, as, as simply bizarre, fanatical, um, beyond comprehension. And one gruesome chapter would remain as 8,000 Japanese civilians committed suicide on Saipan throwing themselves off the cliffs on the northern side of the island, blowing themselves up with hand grenades, drowning themselves in the ocean, in many cases with American troops uh, within earshot of the Japanese, pleading with the civilians not to take this sort of action. What, What provoked this? Was it fear of the Americans? Certainly the indoctrination of the Japanese that if if they fell into American hands, they would be, the women would be raped, the men would be mutilated and murdered uh, was part of it. The cult of suicide uh, that was very powerful within Japanese society also would play a role. uh, And then just the, the desperation and the fear of surrender. For the Americans witnessing this, there was, there was a horrifying sense that this really was a prelude, a preview of what would happen if American forces, when American forces, reached the Japanese home islands. If Japanese civilians would commit mass suicide on Saipan, the Japanese commanders would commit suicide. If there would be a, a banzai charge, a suicide charge of large numbers of Japanese troops, when it wasn't about victory, it wasn't to reverse the tide, the outcome of the battle, this was already sealed. This was about dying. This was something else. And it, there was a, a horrifying sense that each step closer to Japan was simply going to bring greater and greater uh, scenes of this sort of horror. While the fighting was going on on Saipan, American forces continued to press Naval forces continued to press on. The Battle of the Philippine Sea in June of 1944 would see more horrific losses for the Japanese. The Americans in uh, this conflict, this struggle, would use carrier-based aircraft 
to intercept a number of Japanese, a huge number of Japanese uh, planes, the huge American air superiority, about 1,000 uh, versus about 200 Japanese, led to staggering losses for the Japanese, uh, who lost 275 of 373 planes shot down to only 29 losses for the Americans. Two American subs sank two Japanese carriers. It came to be known as the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot. So crippling a defeat uh, was this for Japanese forces. It was a defeat not only of air power, but of Japanese naval power as well. And it was a defeat from which the Japanese would never recover. On July 24th, Tinian was invaded to, once again, repeated scenes of fanatical suicide charges, blind heroism on the part of the Japanese, or, or crazed fanaticism, depending upon one's point of view. It was over within eight days. Guam was invaded on July 21st where the beachhead was resisted, and once again, more suicide charges, but the outcome was never in doubt. On August 1st, organized resistance on Guam ceased. The loss of the Marianas was a shattering blow to the Japanese. Tojo's government fell nine days after the fall of Saipan, and the United States was now in a position to strike the Philippines, as MacArthur wanted to do, and to threaten Japanese oil supply from the East Indies. The Americans also began preparing new air bases for the B-29 superfortresses that were arriving steadily, preparing for the strikes at the Japanese home islands. The progress across the Pacific was filled with these intense, short conflicts and a growing horror that the war in the Pacific while going extremely well for the Allied cause, for the Americans in, the, in, in this island-hopping technique, that a new kind of war had been entered into with an enemy that uh, was almost beyond comprehension. One American pilot who was fighting the Japanese at this point, a naval aviator, said in, in his memoirs about this particular period of the war and then what would follow the emergence of the kamikazes, that one always wanted to think that the, the soldier, the airman, the sailor on the other side was somebody just like you, somebody who wanted to do his job, believed in his cause, and then wanted to go home. But at a certain point in this campaign of island hopping across the Pacific, Americans came to believe that, as he said, for us, the war was seemed to be about winning. For the Japanese, it seemed to be about dying. Lecture 22, Turning Point in the Southwest Pacific, Leyte Gulf and the Philippines. Hello and welcome to our 22nd lecture in this series on the Second World War. In our last lecture, we followed the progress of the American drive across the Central Pacific, uh, examining Admiral Nimitz's strategy, the island hopping technique of moving across the various island chains of the, of the Central Pacific, uh, aiming toward the home islands of Japan. 
In this lecture, we want to shift our focus to that second axis of American advance across the Pacific. This, the Southwest Theater, dominated by, of course, General Douglas MacArthur, an army theater for the most part. And yet it would be here that one of the the major campaigns of the Second World War would occur. Indeed, the largest naval engagement of the Second World War would take place, and that is the Battle of Leyte Gulf in October of 1944. So we want to examine two major engagements that would really seal the fate of Imperial Japan. One is the Battle of Leyte Gulf, which would inflict a terrific defeat on the Imperial Japanese Navy and render it really for the remainder of the conflict uh, of secondary importance, and then the liberation of the Philippines. Douglas MacArthur had promised when he had left the Philippines in early 1942 that he would return. He would fulfill that promise in this what would become one of the, the largest engagement battle uh, in the Pacific during the Second World War, the battle for the Philippines. The prelude to both of these, the Battle of Leyte Gulf and the Battle of the Philippines, uh, has to be seen in MacArthur's original intention to begin the conquest of the Philippines by invading uh, Mindanao, but Admiral Halsey suggested bypassing and landing instead at Leyte on the eastern edge of the Philippines. MacArthur and Nimitz would ultimately agree about this, but Nimitz insisted on the invasion of the uh, of a series of islands about 500 miles to the southeast of Mindanao, the Paulus Islands, and for as an advance base for the invasion. On October 20th, or the original date for the invasion was set as October 20th, 1944, the invasion of Leyte. But first, it was going to be necessary. MacArthur believed to seize Peleliu, and the 1st Marine Division was sent to take this small island as a, to, to, as a blocking position for the invasion. The tragedy of Peleliu would begin on September 15, 1944. The fighting on this island was, in, in a series of, of engagements where one is always tempted to say this was the most savage, this was the most brutal. Conditions on Peleliu were, were unbelievably bad. The fighting took place in 115-degree uh, heat against heavy Japanese fortifications in conditions that were really indescribable. I think, in fact, the most powerful book of personal recollections about the entire Second World War is written by a veteran of the Peleliu campaign. That's E.B. Sledge, Gene Sledge's With the Old Breed, an absolutely devastating account of the day-to-day -day conflict on Peleliu in this unbelievable heat against great Japanese resistance. The Marines and Army units involved in the Peleliu campaign would suffer 6,000 casualties, and resistance on Peleliu, which was expected to be, uh, to be squashed within a matter of a week, maybe two, would only brought to an end on November 26th. And, ironically enough, Peleliu would ultimately be irrelevant to the success of the, the Leyte landings, unnecessary, as it turned out. On October 20th, U.S. Army forces landed on Leyte and within three days had seized the capital and two important airfields. MacArthur landed on the first day, making the statement as he walked ashore, people of the Philippines, I have returned. The Japanese, at this point, 
were in a desperate situation. Could the tide of events in the Pacific be reversed? Objectively speaking, I think if Yamamoto had been around, he might still have argued, he might have argued, well, at this point, there is no, there is no way to reverse the tide of events. Possibly, possibly, with one dramatic stroke, uh, somewhere around the Philippines, maybe we, it would be possible to inflict a major defeat on the Americans and somehow, if not reverse the tide, the overall tide of events in the Pacific, at least to blunt the American offensive. The Japanese developed a plan for a major naval engagement. The objective was to force a decisive naval battle with the American Pacific Fleet, which might still provide victory for Japan, victory on a much more circumscribed scale than had been their original intention. Admiral Toyota devised a master plan that called for the entire combined fleet to converge on the Philippines. A northern force under Ozawa was to move south from Japan as a decoy to lure Admiral Halsey's third fleet away from Leyte. This northern force of Ozawa's included Japan's four remaining aircraft carriers. This, this was clearly a decoy for the Japanese. The four carriers contained only 110 aircraft. And while this force was to be seen as a decoy to lure Halsey's third fleet away from the Philippines, at the same time, two Japanese task forces were to steam northward from the Singapore area wind their way through the congested waters of the Philippines and merge on Leyte Gulf from two directions. Their mission was to destroy the American transports carrying the, the troops for the invasion of the Philippines and the supporting warships. A twofold objective, destroy important elements of the U.S. fleet and nip the American invasion of the Philippines in the bud. This then was the Japanese objective. One of those task forces under Admiral Kurita contained five battleships, including the supership's Yamoto and Susashi, the two largest battleships in the world, as well as 12 cruisers and 15 destroyers, an enormous naval task force. It would move through the San Bernardino Strait and close on Leyte from the north. Meanwhile, Admiral Nishimura's force of two battleships, a heavy cruiser, four destroyers would steam through the Saragayu Strait to the south and would be joined by yet another task force dispatched from Japan. Toyota's plan was daring. It was typically ambitious. Uh, the maneuvering of these three task forces uh, with timing to converge in the Philippines uh, with the decoy force and so on was typical, I think, of Japanese naval planning. And if it succeeded, it would deal a severe blow to the United States and possibly even reverse the balance of forces in the Pacific. But it relied heavily on precise timing. It relied heavily on maneuvering through very congested waters. And the entire operation was to be undertaken without carrier-based air support. Only land-based planes from the Philippines would attempt to offset the great American air superiority provided by the American carriers. 
The battle would take place between October 23rd and October 25th. On October 23rd, American submarines sighted Kurita's huge force and alerted Admiral Halsey. They also sank two heavy cruisers and disabled a third, but Kurita continued on toward the San Bernardino Strait. On October 24th, American aircraft attacked and sank the giant battleship Musashi and damaged three others. When Kurita turned west, Halsey believed he was withdrawing and therefore shifted his third fleet northward to intercept the Japanese carrier force, Ozawa's decoys, to the north. He did not even leave a covering force at the San Bernardino Strait, and he did not inform Admiral Kincaid, whose seventh fleet remained on station with only five small escort carriers, three destroyers, and a number of smaller vessels. He had taken the bait. He had seen... He had word of the carriers, and he was off to get them. Kurita then swung back, pushed through the San Bernardino Strait, where his vast armada broke on the startled Americans. He thought that he was confronting the big American carriers, and he pressed in for the kill. This was exactly the decisive engagement that the plan had called for. But... And this was very rare for the Japanese, who were extremely good at nighttime maneuvers. Japanese naval practice was, was, was very skillful in nighttime maneuvers. His force became dispersed. Uh, confusion uh, followed a while, sort of fighting. Uh, several destroyers were sunk. One of the small carriers, American carriers, indeed, the Japanese seemed on the verge of inflicting an annihilating defeat on American forces. Nothing remained between Kurita and the Leyte invasion force except a, a number of small carriers. Victory was indeed at this point within his grasp. But because his attack had uh, moved beyond his control. His, his, his vessels were dispersed in a way that he was uncomfortable with, and also because he still thought the big American carriers were present. Instead of pressing his attack, he broke off, believing that the large American carrier force he thought present would annihilate his strung-out forces. Instead, that large carrier force was hundreds of miles away with Halsey searching down the Japanese carriers of this northern decoy force. Kurita withdrew back through the San Bernardino Strait, and a, an opportunity for the decisive engagement that the Japanese sought had been missed. Halsey, meanwhile, did press his attack against Ozawa's forces in the north. He sank all four of Japan's remaining carriers. 500 aircraft landed and ship-based were lost. The United States sank three battleships, four cruisers, 11 destroyers, in fact, destroyed Japanese naval power in what proved to be the largest naval battle in history. It was indeed the decisive engagement that the Japanese had hoped for, but the outcome went in the other direction, uh, and in fact, a more predictable direction. It was at the Battle of Leyte Gulf, as this engagement came to be known, that the Japanese introduced a new weapon, and one that, although it was not capable of reversing 
the tide of battle would certainly have a dramatic impact on American morale and would inflict terrific casualties. This, of course, was the kamikaze, or the divine wind, the special suicide planes, suicide units, employed by the Japanese now in desperation to break the, break the momentum of American forces. The term kamikaze, or divine wind, referred to the typhoon, that had destroyed the Mongol fleet of Kublai Khan in the late 13th century, saving Japan from invasion. A suicide unit now composed of pilots who deliberately crashed their TNT-laden planes into American ships would now be launched at the Americans. The Kamikaze Special Attack Corps was to inflict both material and morale damage on U.S. forces. The first attack came on October 21st a foretaste of what was to come. But the main assault would come on October 25, 1944. 200 Japanese suicide planes would slam into the American fleet. The response of American sailors seeing this, of, of pilots desperately trying to, naval aviators desperately trying to shoot down these places, the, the, the stunning, the shock of seeing planes come in for what looked like a standard dive bombing attack only to keep going and keep going and keep going uh, was, was unbelievable. If one sees film footage of these engagements with the kamikaze roaring down in the Battle of Leyte Gulf, I think it's some of the most dramatic footage of the entire Second World War, shot in many cases in color in a way that the scenes from the European theater so rarely were, but a flack of all sorts of anti-aircraft fire, a hail of, of anti-aircraft fire, and these Japanese planes bearing down onto the American planes and then slamming into the sides or the decks of the, of the carriers or, other, or the other ships. The kamikazes at the Battle of Leyte Gulf would sink 24 American vessels, seriously damaged 27 others. They would inflict 2,100 casualties, 738 of whom were killed. The kamikazes, along with the banzai charges, the refusal to surrender, uh, these sorts of practices that one had seen with the Japanese, the mass suicides elsewhere, simply drove home yet again completed, in fact, a Western view of the Japanese as a fanatical enemy ready to die rather than face defeat, rather than surrender. And once again, it's the sense of, is this a preview of what we are to anticipate as we draw closer to the Japanese home islands? Mass suicides on Saipan, these, these kamikaze attacks, the bonsai charges, was there no limit to this? And in this, in this sense, I think the Pacific theater would offer in terms of combat, such a different frame of mind for American servicemen confronting this enemy, even, I think, a more stark and, and strange experience than those Americans who were confronted with the real evils of the SS. The Battle of Leyte Gulf, then, would seal the fate of the Japanese Navy in the Second World War. The invasion of the Philippines, which followed, would go a long way toward breaking the back of Japanese military power in the Southwest Pacific. Leyte was invaded on December 10th, Mindoro on December 15th, the invasion of Luzon at Lingayan Bay on January 9th, 1945, against General Yamashita, 
would mark the beginning of the American assault on the Philippines. Clark Field, which had fallen to the Japanese at the very beginning of the war, would fall back into American hands on January 30th, 1945. The fighting from Manila from February 3rd to March 3rd was a struggle unmatched in the Pacific theater. It was more reminiscent of Stalingrad, of the major battles in Europe, of urban fighting, than any other conflict in the Pacific theater. Block by block, war on a European scale. It's estimated that 100,000 Filipino civilians died in the fighting or fell victim to Japanese atrocities as the Japanese were pushed out of Manila. Uh, Almost a replay of the rape of Nanking. Torture, scenes of torture, horrendous torture, execution of Philippine civilians suspected of being resistance fighters or simply civilians who happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. The Bataan Peninsula fell by late February 1945, as did Corregidor. The fall of these positions, so important symbolically for the United States after their loss so early on in the war in 1942, marked a major, I think, morale booster for uh, the American population, certainly thinking about possibly the end of the war against Japan. The Japanese would withdraw into the mountainous interior of Luzon and bloody fighting would continue until the very end of the war, all the way through the summer of 1945. Japanese resistance would continue in the Philippines. MacArthur sent American troops to each of the islands, ignoring a Joint Chiefs of Staff decision to bypass them. As far as MacArthur was concerned, he had pledged to return. He had pledged to liberate the Philippines. He had made a pledge to the Filipino population. And while in some ways it didn't seem to make a great deal of military sense, it was a pledge to a Philippine population which had the largest resistance groups in all of of Japanese-occupied Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Indeed, the Philippines would be really alone in terms of outside of China as fostering a major resistance group to the, to the resistance organization against the Japanese. The battle for the Philippines was the largest military engagement fought by the United States in the Pacific. The United States would suffer 48,000 wounded and 14,000 deaths in the liberation of the Philippines. The Japanese would suffer 350,000 losses. It was the most costly defeat for the Japanese in the entire Pacific War. At this point, with the fall of the Philippines, with the defeat of the Japanese Navy at Leyte, with the Americans moving along the central Pacific axis and now also through the southwest, the war in the Pacific could have one could argue, should have come to a close at this point. The first American bombing raid on the Japanese home islands had come in June of 1944. It would be the spring of 1945 when the massive raids would begin, the major B-29 raids launched by General Curtis LeMay, something that we'll talk about in a future lecture. The war might have come to an end at this juncture. American submarines were slowly but surely choking Japan, Submarine warfare, American submarine warfare against the Japanese had been enormously successful. 
slowly the Japanese were cut off from their trade, cut off from their raw materials, cut off from food supplies, the stranglehold of the American Navy on the Japanese home islands, and especially through the use of the submarine, was growing. The noose was growing tighter and tighter. Air power was about to be visited upon Japan in a major way. Up until the spring of 1944, the United States, in what few efforts it had made to actually bomb the Japanese home islands, had largely concentrated on high-altitude daylight precision bombing. In the spring of 1945, that policy would change, as we will see, and the United States would move, go over to a different sort of bombing policy. The war might have ended here, but it did not. The advance would have to continue. There would be no Japanese surrender. The Americans, advancing now again across the Central Pacific, continued to move. Nimitz planned to continue his drive through the island chains toward Japan, and while Manila was the, the Battle of Manila was still raging, Nimitz would launch an attack on the Bonin Islands, which stretched from near Saipan, close to the Japanese home islands. These islands, the Bonin Islands, would eliminate attacks by Japanese fighters operating from the islands. American fighter planes would now be able to use bases there to escort B-29s, and this might also serve as an advanced base for the superfortresses themselves. If nothing else, this last island chain would provide emergency landing facilities for B-29s returning from Japan to their air bases in the Marianas, in Tinian, to Tinian in particular. The islands were not the sort of jungle islands, the jungle choked terrain of Guadalcanal and so on, but rather were volcanic. The, and the island targeted for the first invasion was perhaps the, perhaps the most inviting, was Iwo Jima, which means sulfur island. It was a barren, desolate, pork-chop-shaped island, and it was to be the key in the new American advance closer to the home islands of Japan. The Battle of Iwo Jima would be launched in February of 1945, and would go, would last through March. Iwo Jima abounded with bubbling sulfur pits, casting a dense, acrid smell over the island. The beaches held no sand, but instead consisted of black volcanic ash, so soft that just walking across it was difficult. A man sunk up to his ankles in this black volcanic ash. Although the island's volcano, the 550-foot-high Mount Suribachi, was dormant, the Marines found that if they tried to dig into the ash, the ash-covered beaches, the earth was hot to the touch several inches down. This battle, the Battle of Iwo Jima, and the battle which would follow it, the Battle of Okinawa, would mark the last two stepping stones in the, in the American march across the Pacific. At this point, in the spring of 1945, February, March, the war in both Europe and Asia seemed to be coming to a close. The Battle of the Bulge had been successfully brought to a close in Europe. The, German, the Germans' last gap offensive blunted. And in the Pacific, the inexorable march of American forces across the Pacific now seemed to be honing in on the Japanese home islands.
it was at this point that already one began to see, and we'll talk about this in future lectures, that questions about the post-war world, thinking about a post-war environment began to occupy Franklin Roosevelt, would occupy Winston Churchill, certainly occupy Stalin. But there was still the business at hand. The business at hand was the final defeat of Nazi Germany and the defeat of Imperial Japan. And that was going to, to extend across certainly the spring in Europe and through the summer in the Far East. Lecture 23, The Final Drive for Japan, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, and the Firebombing of Tokyo. Hello. Welcome to our 23rd lecture on the Second World War. We had stopped in our previous lecture with the American forces just off the shore of a volcanic slab of rock in the Bonin Islands the island of Iwo Jima, a name that very few people would have been able to identify before February of 1945, but has been certainly with us ever since. The battle for the Philippines was still very much underway as Marine and Army forces gathered for the assault on Iwo Jima. The goal in taking this island was that it would eliminate attacks by Japanese fighters on American aircraft making their way toward the Japanese home islands. It would also possibly be a forward base for American aircraft, eliminate Japanese radar, uh, and early warning for American assaults on the Japanese islands. And finally, it would be an emergency landing strip for the gigantic B-29s that were now beginning to take part in these raids. The assault on Iwo Jima was originally planned for January 2nd, but had been postponed until February 19th because of the very slow going on Leyte. The Japanese position on Iwo Jima was very strong indeed. The garrison there was reinforced during January during the delay, reaching 21,000 troops. And the Japanese defenses were made even more effective by the terrain. Mount Suribachi dominated the southern end of the island, the wider northern end was dominated by a plateau that rose 350 feet and rippled with a set of rough volcanic ridges. Both Suribachi and the northern ridges contained numerous caves reinforced by a network of pillboxes and bunkers. These positions housed mortars, huge artillery pieces, and machine guns linked together by an elaborate system of tunnels, underground barracks, and ammo dumps. General Tamamichi Kurabayachi did not intend to contest the American landing on the beaches. This he had seen in previous campaigns and believed it had been a mistake for Japanese forces. Instead, he would have fire directed on those landing zones, but would not have Japanese forces present close by. He could bring murderous fire on the beaches, and because of the volcanic ash and a series of steep volcanic terraces, that rose abruptly from the beaches, movement off the landing zones would be slow. This he realized. When the Marines came ashore on February 19, 1945, 
They were pinned down on the exposed beaches and suffered terrible casualties. The four days of pounding by American naval guns and aircraft, instead of the ten days of, of firing that the Marine commanders had requested, had done little ultimately to reduce the Japanese gun positions and artillery and mortar fire would rain down on the Marines. 6,200 men were pinned down on a 3,000-yard strip of sand, two Marines for every yard along this beach. It was a slaughterhouse. As one historian described it, sand hummocks appearing as giant dead anthills moments before spewed machine gun fire from apertures hardly visible above ground level. Mortars fell in cascades from hundreds of concealed pits. Heavy artillery and rapid-firing anti-aircraft guns, barrels lowered to rake the beaches, slammed shells into the oncoming landing craft and support vessels. Land mines sown like wheat in a field exploded in sickening blasts on the terrace as Marines stumbled across them. Fifteen-inch coastal defense guns and large mortars rained down from Suribachi's base, slopes, and crater. There was no way to dig a foxhole. As fast as loose volcanic ash was scooped out, the hole filled up again as in a bin of wheat. Men burrowed into the sand or pressed against porous rocks or hugged the sides of shell craters. Anything for a shield from the withering enemy fire. When vehicles and artillery made it ashore, they were immediately mired to the hubs in the sand. Damaged Higgins boats and larger landing craft quickly filled with water and made them unmovable. It was a scene of twisted boats, of burning jeeps and trucks and bogged down cannon. Still, somehow... Miraculously, by nightfall, the Marines had made it off the beach, had fought their way across the island, and had actually cut off Mount Suribachi. In the days of intense fighting that followed, the Marines would inch their way up the heavily defended shores, slopes of the volcano. On February 23rd, a patrol reached the summit and planted a small tattered flag. Later, Elements of a platoon, some 40 men, made it to the top carrying with them a much larger flag, an 8-by-4-foot flag that could be seen well from below. As the, four Marines, as the handful of Marines struggled to raise the flag, AP photographer Joe Rosenthal snapped what would become the most famous picture of the Second World War. Of the 40 men of that platoon that had fought their way up the slopes of Suribachi that day to raise the flag, only four would survive until the end of the battle. The raising of the flag was a moment of great symbolic value, but the battle for Iwo Jima had just begun. Now the Marines faced the task of moving onto the northern plateau with its rugged terrain and intricate fortifications. The troops pushed forward yard by yard against ferocious resistance. The fighting was intense as they, the Marines sought to clear the cage using flamethrowers, dynamite. They fought hand-to-hand, facing fanatical resistance, including an array of devilish booby traps, often on bodies, sometimes on prisoners who committed suicide by surrendering, uh, having their bodies booby-trapped and then explode with a handful of Marines around them. The battle raged on through weeks of indescribable brutality in which every cave Every ditch, every slope was contested, and the casualties mounted. 
Finally, with all hope of victory gone, the Japanese would resort to bonsai charges one after another until in the end, virtually the entire Japanese garrison had perished, including the commander Kurabayashi, who committed suicide. The costs of the Battle of Iwo Jima were absolutely staggering. When the fighting stopped on March 23rd, over 6,000, 6,821 to be precise, Americans were dead, 17,000 were wounded. American losses at Iwo Jima for the first time in the war in the Pacific actually outnumbered Japanese casualties. The Japanese, of course, lost virtually their entire force, but the losses, uh, the losses uh, were staggering on both sides. Three Marine divisions were ground up in the fighting for Iwo Jima. One-third of all the Marines who were killed in the Pacific Theater died on Iwo Jima. It was an island four and a half miles long, two and a half miles wide. As the coverage of the battle sunk in, and at this point during the war, it's very interesting, I think part of the reason that we have this remarkable, this remarkable photograph and the coverage of the battle was that Navy censorship of the, of the combat had relaxed so that there was much greater coverage. And Iwo Jima, while it certainly provoked an enormous outpouring of, of patriotism at home, it seemed to be the, the, the very symbol of devotion to duty, of sacrifice, of fighting against in, in ter- terrible, under terrible conditions. It also created the beginning of, of a mounting firestorm of concern about an ultimate invasion of Japan. As American forces moved closer and closer to the Japanese home islands, the costs of victory were rising and rising astronomically. An issue was raised before the fighting at Iwo Jima was even completely over that, in fact, the entire campaign might have been a mistake, that Iwo might have been bypassed, given the casualties, had Iwo Jima been worth the cost. One of the major arguments subsequently made was that B-29s on their way to Japan made emergency landings uh, at Iwo Jima and were able to to uh, land there that about um, oh, 240 B-29s made it uh, down in the area uh, in the remaining period of the war. Eleven crew members per plane. If one calculates the casualties, it would seem that... Um, the the losses might not have been might not have been worth it. Certainly, this was raised at the time, provoking um, great controversy, as I said. And yet, no matter how one evaluated the military value of the island, none could dispute the valor of those who fought and died there. The battle yielded the most powerful visual image of the American war effort in Joe Rosenthal's stirring photograph, and twenty-seven congressional medals of honor. 17 of them posthumous were awarded for actions on Iwo Jima. Still, there was this lingering doubt. The battle had been a success. An airstrip was created there that was able to handle the B-29s. It did, in fact, give a, a clear beacon toward the Japanese home islands. But had it been worth it? Had it been worth it? If a, a marine historian would later argue an invasion of Japan had indeed been necessary, those three marine divisions that were chewed up so mercilessly on Iwo Jima would have been sorely missed indeed. 
with Iwo Jima in American hands, there would be one final assault before the ultimate invasion of Japan. And this was Okinawa, only 350 miles from the southernmost of the major Japanese home islands. This was not a small volcanic atoll or a tiny jungle choke speck on the map, but was a very substantial piece of real estate, 76 miles long and at some spots 18 miles wide. It held excellent airfields and two equally useful anchorages. It was, in short, an ideal base for the anticipated final assault on Japan itself. The Japanese defenses on Okinawa were predictably strong. 120,000 Japanese troops were stationed on the island, the largest force to confront the Americans in the Pacific. The southern portion of the island, where the Japanese determined to make their stand, was dominated by limestone cliffs, which were honeycombed with caves, pillboxes, and tunnels. The Japanese could also bring land-based aircraft to bear, and the greatest concentration of heavy artillery in the Pacific was also prepared for the invaders. The Japanese plan was to allow the Americans to land and to hold this heavily fortified southern portion of the island. For their part, the Americans assembled the largest invasion force in naval armada in the Pacific War. 1,300 vessels assembled off the shores of Okinawa, including 18 battleships, 200 destroyers, and 40 aircraft carriers. If one thinks about this, if one thinks about the, the, the distance traveled by the United States since that attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, when less than a half a dozen carriers were available, now 40 aircraft carriers have been marshaled for the invasion of Okinawa. In addition, 180,000 Marines and Army troops would be thrown into the fray. At one point during the battle, 250,000 American troops would ultimately participate in the assault force on Okinawa. The invasion itself began on Easter Sunday, April 1st, 1945. All went relatively smoothly for over a week with little substantial contact. I think there was a sense that it was, it was almost eerie, that the, one knew that there was an enormous Japanese force on Okinawa. The question was where was it located? When would there be contact made? When would the Japanese come? Would there be some massive bonsai assault? Would there be uh, more of the kamikazes? Just exactly how would this play? But instead of there being the, the climactic battle that had been anticipated or the withering fire on the beaches as there had been at Iwo Jima, Instead, the Americans came ashore and began to move in search of the Japanese enemy. Then, the force of 180,000 American troops encountered the main Japanese defenses. Six weeks of desperate combat would follow. At one point, in the final week of May, 12 inches of rain fell, turning the battlefield into an enormous quagmire of mud. Finally, on May 31st, the Japanese would abandon Shuri, one of Okinawa's two towns in the south, and withdrew to a final line of ridges and cave-infested hills. Another month of gruesome fighting was required before the last Japanese resistance was finally broken. 
The kamikaze assault around the island was particularly terrifying, sinking 34 ships and damaging 350 others in one last desperate spasm of violence. The Japanese mounted 10 mass kamikaze attacks of 50 to 300 aircraft. In these attacks, almost 5,000 American sailors would die. The battle did not end until June 21st, 1945. The anticipation was that this, uh, the assault on Okinawa would take four, maybe five weeks. It came closer to uh, eight. And the total, by anybody's reckoning, was hideous. 7,000 Americans had been killed on land, almost 5,000 at sea, 32,000 Americans wounded in combat on Okinawa itself, another 4,800 at sea. 20% of all casualties suffered by the American Navy in all of the Second World War in all theaters were sustained in the waters off Okinawa. 14% of all Marines killed in the Second World War died there. The Japanese also suffered grievously as well. 1,465 kamikazes of the 120,000 troops, all but uh, 11,000 were killed. 11,000 Japanese actually would surrender on on Okinawa. It was the largest uh, surrender of Japanese forces ever encountered by the United States. Most of those uh, surrenders came in the last days of the battle. Uh, For the most part, the Japanese troops fought as they had elsewhere to the absolute bitter end with General Ushijima and his entire staff committing suicide. It's also, I think, indicative of the intensity of the combat and the desperate nature of the battle that the American commander on Okinawa was also killed. That was the Army General uh, Simon Bolivar uh, Buckner, who was killed in action on Iwo Jima. There was something else that was different, uh, rather, on on Okinawa. There was something else that was different as well about the, the fighting on Okinawa, similar more to the situation in the Philippines than to Iwo Jima or the other major battles in the Pacific. And that was there was a large civilian population on Okinawa. 150,000 Okinawan civilians would die in the fighting uh, that raged across their island, an enormous number. Many caught simply between the Japanese forces and the Americans, not knowing which way to turn. Many had retreated to caves, seeking to get away, only to discover that uh, when American troops would approach them, ask them to come out, they were terrified, wouldn't do it. The Americans didn't know what to do, thought in many cases that these were Japanese troops, uh, tossed hand grenades in or uh, flamethrowers. One saw this over and over again on both sides as the Okinawan civilians now we're caught in the middle of this catastrophic battle. Both sides would suffer 35% casualties in what seemed at times like a return of World War I's artillery barrages and frontal assaults. General MacArthur and others were highly critical of the conduct of the land operation on Okinawa. General Buckner had sent his troops into frontal assaults into the teeth of highly fortified Japanese position, positions with 
the resultant terrible casualties. There was a growing sense of concern, I would say almost frustration at this point in the war, when June of 1945, the war in Europe is over. American forces are moving closer and closer to the Japanese home islands, and in each one of these assaults, it seems as if there is a new horrifying clue or a presentiment of what is likely to come if this invasion of Japan actually is necessary. Plans were already underway. The planning underway, the operational plans being laid for this final assault on Japan, which was to begin at the latest in November of 1945. Okinawa had fallen. The costs had been horrific. And so as the Americans advanced closer and closer to the home islands, the price of victory had grown and grown. And contemplating an assault on the Japanese home island was neither a popular thing at home nor certainly within the military itself. And yet the Japanese leadership showed absolutely no signs of buckling, no signs of surrender. It is true, and we'll talk about this in a subsequent lecture when we talk about President Truman's struggles about whether or not to use the atomic bomb. There were certainly at this point indications that some within the Japanese diplomatic community, within what would what might loosely call the civilian uh, element of the Japanese government, had been was interested in some sort of, of peace feelers to the United States, going through, in fact, the Soviet Union. But the military still called the shots in Japan, and there was absolutely no hint whatsoever at this juncture that the Japanese military was prepared to accept the outcome on the battlefield and surrender. What makes this, makes this even more incomprehensible in some ways and terrifying in another is that as these battles, these two great climactic battles in the Pacific, Iwo Jima and Okinawa, were unfolding in such grisly horror, the great air assault by the United States on the Japanese home islands had begun and had begun with great fury much as we've seen of, this, of the island hopping, of the attempts to seize new uh, bases closer to the home islands, had been based on the idea of creating forward jumping off points for the American air assault on Japan. The instrument for a massive campaign of high-altitude strategic bombing, as it had been practiced in Europe, was to be the new high-tech B-29 bombers with terrific range, with uh, the capability of carrying a much higher bomb load. And those B-29s would become available in early 1944, would, go on, uh, would be operational from bases in China initially. But because of mechanical problems in the early models and the meager supplies reaching the 20th Air Force in China, the B-29s, were unable to mount a sustained attack against Japan. The first raid against the home islands had come in, on June 14, 1944, when 60 B-29s attacked the iron and steel complex at Yawata with little damage. The attacking planes, flying at altitudes of 30,000 feet, had encountered very strong winds. We discovered something over Japan that we really hadn't had much of a sense of at this point, and that was something called the jet stream. At 30,000 feet, the B-29s attempting to move over the target using the Norden bomb site, using high-tech aiming devices, uh, with all of their calculations discovered that if they flew at 30,000 feet, they zipped across the target area. It threw all their calculations off, and so the bombing had been highly ineffective. 
in addition. Cloud cover uh, was common over Japan, particularly during the daytime, and Japanese industry tended to be dispersed. The early raids from the Marianas in the fall of 1944 were more intense and certainly more effective, but still plagued by these same problems and didn't produce the results that were to be expected. Then in the early spring of 1945, as the engagements at Iwo Jima and subsequently Okinawa would be underway, the commanding general, Haywood Hansel, was replaced as commander of the 21st Bomber Command by Curtis LeMay, a man who had been a pioneer in the daylight the tactics of daylight strategic bombing in Europe. LeMay, at 39 years of age, was the youngest general in the United States Army Air Forces, and he began by initiating a dramatic shift in American bombing strategy. Since the target areas in Japan were almost always covered by clouds in daytime and had to be bombed by radar, and since the tremendous strength of the jet stream and winds over Japan made accuracy almost impossible, LeMay decided to scrap the policy of daylight strategic bombing and move over to nighttime attacks. There, he discovered, if one went at night, the cloud cover was thinner, anti-aircraft uh, fire was less accurate, Jap the Japanese possessed very few night fighters, so that the planes could fly at lower altitudes, escaping the problems of the jet stream, sometimes as low as 5,000 feet, unheard of in any sort of air operation in Europe. A shift from daylight strategic bombing to area raids using incendiaries. Japanese cities with their wood and paper structures were highly vulnerable to this type of attack, and these t structures tended to be densely clustered around the um, decentralized industrial facilities. Finally, a new type of incendiary had been developed and used in Europe against the Germans, napalm, which would spread rivers of fire uh, through the attacked areas. LeMay ordered his bombers to drop their machine guns in order to carry the heavier loads, assured them that they would be safe. No one was very convinced about this. Bomber crews thinking if one flies low, anything lower than 20,000 feet is asking for trouble. Anyone who had had experience in Europe understood this. When LeMay started talking about five to 10,000 feet, this seemed absolutely suicidal, but LeMay insisted dropping their machine guns in order to carry heavier loads also seemed to be asking for trouble. But despite a good deal of skepticism in the, at this breach in Army Air Force doctrine, a move from daylight strategic bombing to nighttime bombing, in spite of this resistance, LeMay insisted, and on the night of March 10th, 9th to 10th, 1945, 334 B-29s appeared in the black skies over Tokyo. For over three hours, the giant bombers rumbled over the city, attacking a mixed area of private dwellings and factories, turning them into a raging inferno. A firestorm on a scale similar to that of the RAF's raids on Hamburg and later Dresden. Temperatures in Tokyo reached over 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, literally a firestorm that sucked the oxygen out of the center of the city. 
howling winds created that were so powerful that it literally sucked some of the planes out of the sky. When it was at last over, 16 square miles of Tokyo's built-up area was utterly destroyed, and between 80 and 100,000 people had been incinerated. It was probably the largest number of casualties from any raid during the Second World War. Within days, the 21st Bomber Command launched firebombing raids on Nagoya, Osaka, Kobe, and Yokohama, and others would follow. The raids would continue into the summer of 1945 so that the battles that we've been talking about of Iwo Jima and of Okinawa were being fought against a backdrop of these mounting raids against the Japanese home islands. The departure from Air Force doctrine was based on military considerations. There's been a good deal of talk since the war uh, about the role that race played in American uh, thinking about the conduct of combat against the Japanese. Curtis LeMay, who would make the decision to move over to nighttime raids, to area raids, away from the American doctrine of daylight strategic bombing, the notion of pinpoint bombing that had been pioneered, and of which LeMay was an enormous enthusiast. The decision to move away from this was based not on questions of morality, not on questions of race, but rather on what was militarily the most effective. The raids at high altitude over Japan had been a failure. This was Haywood Hansel's problem, LeMay argued. So that what had, if, if daylight precision bombing didn't work over Japan, then one went to the alternative. Before the war, American strategists had already made studies of the feasibility of bombing Japan, and it was very clear to everyone from the very beginning of the conflict that Japanese cities were ideal targets for the sort of incendiary bombs that we had used also against the Germans in Europe. So I think what added to the enormous sense of of frustration and puzzlement, bewilderment on the part of American policymakers as well as American military men as we confronted this final, the prospect of a final assault on Japan was here was a nation which had now suffered one string of catastrophic military defeats after another all the way through the Central Pacific, all the way through the Southwest Pacific as the Americans moved closer and closer and closer to Japan. And now as a backdrop, a series of absolutely horrific raids launched against the Japanese home islands. The war in the spring of 1945 was brought home to Japan. The bombing of Germany had been going on since 1940. A half a million German civilians would be killed by Allied bombing. The Japanese would come close to that figure in just through the spring and the summer of 1945. And yet... As the pressure mounted, there still seemed to be no indication that Japan was about to buckle. No sense that the military had come to its senses. Indeed, there seemed to be a growing conviction on the part of American policymakers and military men that the Japanese high command was perfectly prepared to go down literally in flames, taking every last man, woman, and child in Japan along with them. The planning for the invasion of Japan had begun already before the fighting on Okinawa had been brought to a conclusion. The tentative 
jump-off date was set for November. Okinawa, as well as the Philippines, were to be forward staging areas for the assault on the southernmost Japanese island. General Marshall, a man not given to exaggeration or hyperbole, estimated at this point that an invasion of Japan would cost the United States a million casualties. This was the prospect that confronted American policymakers as summer began to wane in 1945. Lecture 24, War in the Air. In our last lecture, we had begun to address the issue of strategic bombing, and particularly a shift in American strategic thinking with regard to air power in the assault on Japan in the spring and summer of 1945. The movement away from what the Americans had called daylight precision bombing to a campaign of nighttime area raids. What I'd like to do in this lecture is to examine the Allied bombing policy during the war, looking at largely the European case, uh, to talk about the experience of the air war in Europe and what it meant both to be on the receiving end and also uh, in the planes flying at 20,000 feet during the course of the Second World War. It was air power, but particularly strategic bombing, that transformed the nature of war between 1939 and 1945 and rendered the Second World War so terrifyingly different from its predecessors. In the First World War, the vast and grisly carnage had been confined largely to the front, to the soldiers, fortresses and trenches strung along no man's land, and to the sailors and their ships at sea. The use of air power to smash an enemy's capacity to wage war, to demolish its industrial base, its energy sources, its communications network, its system of transportation, and ultimately the will of its people to resist was a radically new departure for military planners on the eve of the Second World War, and it fundamentally altered the nature of warfare, not simply in this war, but for all modern war. Although Hitler, as we've seen, had used the threat of colossal air offensives against civilian targets for diplomatic advantages in the 1930s, the Luftwaffe was neither equipped nor trained for such a mission. Germany, for Germany, air strategy remained tied to land operations and was dominated by the army. It was a strategy that served the Wehrmacht well in its Blitzkrieg stage of war in 1939 through 1941, but its narrow focus would come back to haunt German air planners as the conflict progressed and Germany confronted powers whose, whose air doctrine was quite different. Among the major powers, only Great Britain and the United States adopted a broad view of air power which placed strategic bombing rather than tactical bombing at its center. Political as well as military factors weighed heavily in the decision of both countries. In Britain, a commitment to a general conception of air doctrine was an alternative to a large land army 
which the British did not have in the 1930s and didn't uh, feel they could afford. And unlike Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain, who in 1937-1938 had lobbied for international agreements to actually banish bombing, Winston Churchill had early on shown himself to be an enthusiastic supporter of Britain's strategic bombing program. One, Churchill couldn't find language bloodthirsty enough to satisfy him when it came to talking about bombing, especially in these early stages of, of the war when this was the only, only option, offensive option open to the British. In the United States, the concept of strategic bombing had been worked out in the Army Air Corps Tactical School during the 1930s and would guide its operations during the entire Second World War. Their Army Air Corps strategists developed the doctrine that came to be known as high-altitude daylight strategic bombing. It was a concept based on the premise that a massive fleet of heavy bombers, big four-engine planes, with high-tech aiming devices, this would be the Norden bombsite, and flying at altitudes above effective enemy anti-aircraft fire, that is above 20,000 feet, could identify and then destroy carefully selected strategic military and industrial targets. This was the idea. The concept offered Franklin Roosevelt a politically attractive prospect of American involvement in the war without heavy casualties. This is always the, the, the lure of, of air power. And it was embodied in what came to be known as AWPD-1, Air War Plans Department 1, a statement of American air power at the very outset of the war. The plan called for a general air strategy that would not only, and I quote, provide for the close and direct air support of the surface forces in the invasion of the continent, meaning Europe, and for major land campaigns thereafter, and a strategic defense against Japan and the Pacific, but also to conduct a sustained and unremitting air offensive against Germany and Italy to destroy their will and their capacity to continue the war. Air planners in the United States actually hoped that this air offensive quote, might make an invasion of the continent unnecessary, close quote. This was always the argument that would be put forward by Hap Arnold, the head of the Army Air Forces, by major uh, American air planners, as well as Bomber Harris of the RAF. Give us enough material, give us the priorities, and we will make a land operation, an actual invasion of Europe, not to mention uh, Japan, unnecessary. This Air Wars Plan Division 1 was replaced after Pearl Harbor with a new document, but still with a renewed emphasis on establishing complete air ascendancy over the enemy as a prelude to close support operations. But the United States, like Great Britain, entered the Second World War with a commitment to the concept of strategic bombing. The RAF would be the first to test the theory, during 1940, uh, RAF Bomber Command attempted daylight bombing of the Ruhr and other industrial and military targets in Germany on a very limited scale. But daylight operations were quickly abandoned because it was apparent that the bombers simply could not defend themselves against either German fighters or against anti-aircraft fire. In addition, the equipment and technology proved inadequate to the task. Bombing was carried out in 1940 and 1941 with smaller two-engine planes, the Stirlings, with very limited bomb loads, and navigational problems were, were really paramount. It quickly became apparent to virtually everyone in the command structure 
that the theory of strategic bombing clearly outran the RAF's ability to execute it. This disturbing fact was driven home in August of 1941 when a committee headed uh, by a man named D.M. Butt issued a report on the performance of bomber command against targets in France and Germany during the preceding two months. It did not make happy reading for Churchill or the head of of, uh, the British air arm. The findings of his committee came as a shock. Commissioned by Lord Cherwell, Churchill's science advisor, this independent report found that on any given night, one-third of all attacking aircraft failed to bomb the primary target, a third. Of the remaining two-thirds, only one in three had come within five miles of the aiming point. On moonlit nights, two of five aircraft bombed within five miles of the aiming point, but on the far more frequent moonless nights, especially in northern Europe with cloud cover, the ratio fell to 1 in 15. The problem wasn't so much one of aiming. The problem was of navigation. The crew simply couldn't find the targets. In addition, the shift to nighttime bombing, which had been in part to get away from the heavy casualties taken by the RAF in the daytime, didn't, didn't solve that problem either. Losses remained extremely high. There was one aircraft loss for every 10 tons of bombs dropped, The entire front line of Bomber Command had been wiped out, statistically speaking, in the last four months of of the war before the report. Clearly, something had to be done, and that something was a shift in bombing policy for the British that came in February of 1942, before the United States had really had a chance to enter the war in Europe. A new radar navigational aid had been developed to help the bombers find their way to the target. It was crude, but it was an improvement. It was called G, G-E-E. But also important technologically was the emergence of the new giant four-engine bombers, especially the Lancasters. They were capable of delivering a bomb load of 14,000 pounds. With the advent of this new radar equipment, it became possible to send the entire bomber force along the same route, Concentrated in both time and space, it was a great improvement for bombing over the earlier freelance approach in which the planes sort of found their way to the target, the individual navigators doing the work, uh, and uh, hopefully arriving more or less on schedule. Now a bomber stream could be sent, a bomber stream which was much better for delivering bombs to the target, but it was also, quite obviously, hardly... um, uh, a way to provide a tighter, close formation, such, such as the Americans would later employ. Thus, rather than abandoning strategic bombing, the RAF merely refined its approach. The 1942 also brought a very important shift in targeting as well. The, a new directive indicated that targets for future operations for the RAF were to be Germany's large industrial cities. So no group commanders would miss the point. Air Minister Sir Charles Portal explained it to them in a memo that read, quote, reference the new bombing directive. I suppose it is clear that the aiming points are to be the built-up areas, not, for instance, the dockyards or aircraft factories. This must be made clear if it is not already understood, close quote. The RAF, in other words, had decided to embark upon a strategy of area bombing. It was no longer going to be a matter of trying to pinpoint a military or industrial objective, but area bombing. Just a month later, 
In March of 1942, a new report elaborated that strategic decision and provided a means of measuring Bomber Command success. The RAF in 1942 would swing over to, to a new way of evaluating what was a successful raid and what wasn't. They came up with a formula, a formula that for every X square miles of urban landscape laid waste, Y number of Germans would be left homeless. The point, as Bomber Command put it, was to dehouse the German working class. This is the term that was used, to dehouse them, to destroy urban landscape. By concentrating on cities of over 100,000 in population, large targets that would be easier to find and to hit, over a third of the German population could be left homeless. From 1942 until early 1944, Bomber Command would measure its success by acres of built-up area destroyed. A correlation between acres of concentrated urban devastation and industrial man-hours lost. In February of 1944, however, the RAF went over to a new formula, a different one. It It was no longer to be acres that were to be measured, but rather a, a new labor target would replace the area target. Success would henceforth be measured by a formula which estimated the number of German workers killed per raid. So the point, we're not talking now about factories. We're really, by February 44, Bomber Command is talking about estimating the number of German workers killed. The man who would execute this policy was the new CO of Bomber Command, Arthur Harris, who would become the leading champion of area bombing. During the spring and summer of 1942, Harris gave a terrible hint of what was in store for the Germans when he launched three monster raids on German cities, using every available aircraft and all combat crews, trainees, instructors, as well as veterans, anything that would fly in order to be able to announce that a thousand planes had raided a German city. On May 30th, 1942, a thousand planes bombed Cologne, 900 were sent to Essen, a thousand to Bremen in early June. Harris couldn't sustain these sort of numbers in some ways. I'm not saying they were a publicity stunt, but it was clearly there was a propaganda element in this as well as a serious military objective. He couldn't sustain these sort of numbers, and subsequent RAF raids would be lighter, but he certainly had made his point not only to the Germans, but to the English public and to the other services, who were very unhappy at this time about the high percentage of the war budget that Bomber Command claimed. There was about a third of the entire British war budget was now being claimed by Bomber Command. But there were still terrific problems. The radar was reasonably, a reasonably good navigational aid, but it certainly wasn't much of an aiming device for bombing. Uh, The Germans, meanwhile, had developed jamming devices to frustrate English radar, and advances in German night fighter defense also raised Bomber Command's losses throughout the summer to above the 4% rate, which Harris considered acceptable. While the RAF was struggling in the summer of 1942 with these problems, the United States entered the air war in Europe. The Americans came with their own theories of strategic bombing, And the 8th Air Force became operational in the European Theater of Operations. This was the unit charged with executing American strategic bombing policy. And the commander was General Carl Spotts, who commanded the 8th Air Force. 8th Bomber Command was led by General Ira Aker. During the course of 1943, 
Baker would assume command of the 8th, and Spots would then move on to be the head of all U.S. Army Air Forces in Europe. Both men were avidly committed to the concept of strategic bombing, but with a, with a major difference in their approach from their British counterparts. Both of these men were eager to put American ideas of daylight precision bombing into practice to identify key industrial and military bottlenecks and using the sophisticated Norden bomb site destroy those targets. In other words, they were not at all convinced by Harris's commitment to nighttime area raids, which killed civilians without, they believed, delivering a decisive blow to German industrial targets. The buildup of American strategic presence was slow, uh, and there were a lot of conflicting priorities. Just as the 8th Air Force began to get its, to, to build up crews, to get aircraft arriving, to have the facilities in England, Operation Torch came along, the intervention of the Mediterranean campaign, and so the most experienced crews, aircraft, uh, technicians and so on were moved off to North Africa to be involved in the, uh, the raids there. The first mission flown by the 8th Air Force had been in August 7, on August 17, 1942. But by early 1943, thanks to Operation Torch, the 8th Air Force still had fewer than 100 operational heavy bombers. This at a time when the British were already launching these big thousand plane raids. At Casablanca in early 1943, Churchill the Allied High Command agreed on what was called a combined bomber offensive. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on the Americans at the end of 1942. Raids hadn't gone very well. We didn't have many planes up. The weather was bad. It's one thing to talk about daylight precision bombing if what you're doing is bombing in Alamogordo, New Mexico, or out in Arizona. A whole other matter if what you're trying to do is to find targets in northern Europe, which tends to be cloudy. The weather, even in a good spell, is, is not really conducive to this kind of thing. The Americans were under great pressure to shift their priorities, to swing over as part of, of the RAF's nighttime bombing campaign. The Americans resisted. Aker made a plea, particularly to Churchill, uh, and wrote up a look at, at Casablanca in which he, he argued, well, what we need to do is let the RAF continue to bomb at night. We'll bomb during the daytime, and what we'll do is bomb round the clock. And I think Winston Churchill, who never met a phrase that he didn't like, if it was a well-turned phrase, was really taken with this idea of round-the-clock bombing. This sounded good. The Germans would get no breathing space. The RAF would bomb them at night, the Americans in the daytime. He didn't believe daylight precision bombing would work at all. He thought the Americans were misguided about this. But this gave Aker the opportunity to continue uh, with the American air offensive. Um, what, came, what followed the Casablanca Conference into 1943 was something called the Combined Bomber Offensive. This was to be, this implied cooperation between the RAF and the Americans, this round-the-clock bombing. But the Combined Bomber Offensive was anything but a combined bomber offensive. It did not, was not coordinated. Um, despite the apparent coordination of air operations between the Americans and the British, there was no genuine coordination, and, but, but instead two distinct efforts. Bomber Harris routinely and maddeningly ignored all pressure to send his planes against priority targets and ostensibly agreed upon and instead continued to press against the large urban centers that he was so fond of attacking that he believed would win the war. He continued to talk about, 
In private conversation with the Americans, Harris would call these things panacea targets. The Americans believed you had to find, you identify uh, some sort of production bottleneck, ball bearings, for example. And then what you do is you hammer away at ball bearings production. Destroy that, you bring the whole war machine down. Harris thought this was absolute nonsense. Panacea bombing wouldn't work. Um, and as a consequence, never really followed raids up. The American idea was we would go over bomb Schweinfurt, let's say, in August of 1943, the first big American raid in Germany against ball bearing plants. The plan was for the RAF to come over at night. They didn't. They bombed Hamburg instead. Uh, Harris just resisted, and Churchill and no one else actually uh, called him on the carpet for this. He flagrantly ignored demands that he follow the uh, combined bomber offensive target priorities. And in November of 43, he claimed that 19 German cities had been totally destroyed by bomber command. Then he asserted with typical Harris rhetoric, quote, we can wreck Berlin from one end, from end to end, if the Americans will come in on it. It'll cost us between four and 500 aircraft, 10 men to a crew. It'll cost the Germans the war. But Harris's four-month-long battle for Berlin, it was called the Battle of Berlin, this big air offensive launched by the RAF with some American participation, not much. Between November of 43 and March of 44, it was a failure by his own standards. The city was relentlessly bombed, but the factories continued to produce, and Bomber Command lost 1,000 aircraft in this period alone. It was a disaster. By the spring of 1944, Harris had largely failed in his repeated promises to break Germany through saturation bombing and his losses at the Battle of Berlin and in an absolutely disastrous raid on Nuremberg uh, in March of 1944 when Bomber Command lost 100 planes in a single night. Big, we're not talking small planes, we're talking about these larger um, uh, bombers. Uh, had cost a great deal of his credibility with both Churchill and with the Allied military planners who were now getting ready to think about D-Day, Operation Overlord, not convinced by Harris. Harris and the American air commanders continued literally up to, I think, the day of D-Day to keep saying, this is unnecessary. We can do this. We can beat the Germans without an invasion if you'll just give us, if you'll just give us the, the priorities. Uh, but it was fairly clear to most objective observers, and Eisenhower was one of them, that um, they had oversold their case. For their part, the Americans were in no position to embark upon sustained bombing of Germany until mid-1943. The first major raid deep inside of Nazi Germany was the so-called Regensburg-Schweinfurt raid in August of 1943, and it proved to be a disaster. The planes made it through. They were not turned back. They bombed the target, hit Schweinfurt, one set of uh, several groups hitting Schweinfurt, some going on to hit Regensburg and the Messerschmitt factories there. But 60 B-17s were lost in that raid. Then in October... Of 1943, the 8th lost 148 bombers during a single week in a series of raids against targets in Germany, culminating in a second attack on Schweinfurt on October 14th, in which another 60 planes went down in one single day. It was the absolute low point of American operations in Europe. The losses during the first year of the American air war were indeed staggering. 
The tour of duty in the 8th Air Force was set at 25 missions, but between August of 1942, when we, uh, the 8th began flying its missions, and August 1943, only 30% of 8th Air Force bomber personnel actually survived 25 missions to the continent. 37% were lost before they'd completed five missions. Even in early 1944, the life expectancy of an 8th Air Force bomber crew was 15 missions. In fact, the rate of loss for bomber crews was higher than for any other branch of the American military in the Second World War, comparable only to losses in the RAF, Bomber Command, and to German U-boats. All combat is obviously terrifying, but I think there was something about this, the air war and, and bomber operations that was particularly unnerving. On the bomb run, the American idea of strategic bombing was that massive formations would fly in a very tight formation, not quite wingtip to wingtip, but close. Huge formations of these bombers moving, trying to bomb, hit precision targets, meant that when one began the bomb run, from what was called the IP, the initial point to the target. The planes had to fly at a set speed, at a set altitude. They could not take evasive action. They had to fly directly over the target in exactly this formation. What this meant was to fly directly into German flak, which began to be radar-guided so that the Germans, as the approaching planes, as the approaching formations were seen, uh, could lock on. There were different kinds of barrages flying through literally seas of flak, flak so thick, as bomber crews used to say, you could get out and walk on it. The planes themselves were, uh, by the, at, for the time, the, absolutely the cutting edge of, of technology. The B-17 Flying Fortress, the B-24 Liberator were enormously successful aircraft. But and they looked looked enormous as one stood outside them. But inside those aircraft, uh, these were not aircraft built for creature comfort. They were not pressurized, so that as soon as the planes went over ten thousand feet, the crews had to go on oxygen. Raids into central Germany would be nine hours or so on oxygen, so you were tethered to your oxygen mask. The windows of the B seventeen, the waist and on the the liberators, the windows. Uh, on the waist were open. The turrets were obviously not sealed, and the bomb bay doors would swing open so that in the aircraft itself, when the planes reached operational altitude at 20,000 feet, the temperature inside the planes in northern Europe would be 20 to 30 to sometimes 40 degrees below zero. To touch anything, any metal object without gloves at operational altitude meant you lost a finger, sometimes a hand. The 8th Air Force would lose as many people to frostbite in the first year of operations as they did to enemy action. And anoxia, simply passing out, people going off of oxygen, oxygen valves freezing up, bundling up in clothing of several layers thick with an electric flying suit underneath it, maybe. As, this was fine as long as the electrical system in the plane worked. If it didn't and you, that went out, uh, you were simply stuck. All crew members had to be tested for claustrophobia. The losses for the 8th Air Force would remain extraordinarily high, and also for the 15th flying out of Italy, um, where targets in southern Europe, from which targets in southern Europe were hit. The losses suffered by the Americans in these daylight raids prompted a fundamental rethinking of the American approach, 
in the end, American planners decided that it wasn't so much the strategy that was wrong, but our, the technological ability to carry it out, that the bombers simply could not fly into Germany without fighter support. They couldn't defend themselves. This had been the argument they'd made with all of the machine guns available on a B-17 and a 24. Now they were going to have to have fighter support, and in early 1944, the P-51 Mustang, which had already been developed, was now deployed in large numbers in Europe, capable of flying all the way with the bombers to the targets as far away as Berlin, and this marked a major turning point in American air operations. Um, It allowed the great bomber formations to fly on into Germany to defeat the German Luftwaffe, which was done in beginning in what was called Big Week in February of 1944, and then on down to the D-Day invasion. The Mustangs were given now permission to leave the bomber formation. They didn't have to fly along with the bombers, but could go seek out Luftwaffe planes wherever they were found. As a result, the Luftwaffe between February of 44 and the summer of 1944 had been defeated, and the American onslaught against German targets continued. Shifting in early 1944 from oil and aircraft production, submarine bases, to transportation to bomb the access to the D-Day invasion beaches. What at the end of the day did the American air assault and the English air assault against Germany achieve? What was the effect of strategic bombing, daylight strategic bombing or the nighttime raids of the British? Did it work? What was its contribution to the war? Here, I think we're confronted by a very odd paradox. As Allied tonnage of bombs dropped on Germany, increased by leaps and bounds during 1943 and into 1944, so too did German war production. Take your pick. Tanks, uh, planes, weapons, you name it. In fact, in virtually every category identified as a priority target by the combined bomber offensive, production increased dramatically between, the, the, between 1942 and the fall of 1944. The American Strategic Bombing Survey, which was done right at the very conclusion of the war in Europe, uh, indicates this, that ironically the apex of German war production came in the summer of 1944 in July at that point at which the Allies had established air superiority. Thereafter, from July to April 1945, the index for German industrial output plunged. What were the factors that limited Allied success? First one would have to note the lack of real coordination. This round-the-clock bombing sounded good, but it wasn't a coordinated effort. Second, the theory of strategic bombing as envisioned by the Americans to conduct a sustained and unremitting air offensive against Germany and Italy to destroy their will and capacity to continue the war. It simply didn't work. The theory implied a relentless attack on key priority targets, returning to hit them over and over again. But this the Allies were unable to do until the final six months of the war. Indeed, only in the campaign against oil, which really began after D-Day, was this sort of coordinated, sustained targeting carried out, and then it worked. Finally, the Allies discovered that theory simply outran operational capabilities. Even if the Allied air forces could have agreed upon one set of priorities and cooperated in attacking them, such a sustained assault was simply impossible until the spring of 1944. 
shortages of aircraft and crews remained until 44, and tactically, the doctrine of daylight precision bombing had proven impossible without long-range fighter support available, unavailable until early 1944. And finally, the technology of the period, the state of plane-based radar to locate targets and the operational problems, such as the effectiveness of anti-aircraft defenses, continued to make precision bombing a goal rather than a reality. On the other hand, part of the, re- the explanation for, part of the paradox is, some, is somewhat misleading. You'll recall from an earlier lecture when we talked about the Blitzkrieg strategy that we indicated that German war production had been based on a Blitzkrieg strategy, production in in breadth, not in depth. The Germans had remarkably not mobilized their economy, not even begun to mobilize it for total war until late, until finally 1943 and into 1944. There was so much slack in the German economy that the Germans finally, under Albert Speer, were able to get it out only in the course of 1944. Thereafter, then the the air offensive really did make a, a difference. We saw this in the Battle of the Bulge when the Germans really didn't have the oil necessary. In evaluating the impact of Allied strategy, strategic bombing, I'm inclined to agree with the British historian Richard Overy, the economic historian, who's argued that if anything, and I quote, the bombing was much more effective than the Allies believed. The important consequence of the bombing was not that it failed to stem the increase in arms production, but that it prevented the increase from being very considerably greater than it was. Bombing placed a ceiling on German war production, which was well below what Germany was skillful and more urgent management of its resources was capable of producing after 1943. Substantial, though, increases in German output appeared. They might have been greater still, but for bombing. The absence of bombing would have freed resources held down in anti-aircraft. Over a million people were involved in this in 1944 in repair work. Would have eliminated wastage caused by bombing and would have allowed the industrial planners the same freedom as that enjoyed in the United States to plan, build, and operate the war economy without interruption and as near to the economic optimum as possible. Lecture 25, Hitler's New Order in Europe. Hello. Welcome to our 25th lecture on the Second World War. We've been examining in our past few lectures the closing in of Allied forces, the American forces, on Japan, and looking also at Allied air policy, both in the Pacific theater and also in Europe. In the spring of 1944-45, the vice was closing not only on Japan, but also on Germany, the air war bringing the war home to both the Japanese domestic population and the Germans. And also, in the European theater, as the Allied armies began to close in on Hitler's Third Reich, the Russians moving relentlessly from the east, the Anglo-American forces from the west, the Third Reich began to yield its grisly harvest. As the Allies broke into Germany proper, to uncover the horrors of Dachau and Buchenwald, 
the Russians to uncover the truly astonishing and horrific uh, bestialities of Auschwitz and the German concentration camp system in Poland. In this lecture, I'd like to turn our attention then to Hitler's new order in Europe, the fruits of which were yielded up in these last months of the war. The racial war conducted by the Nazis in Europe against the Jews of Europe. We talked about, in an earlier lecture, Hitler's foreign policy, his ideological conception of an assault against the Soviet Union as being not simply an exercise in geopolitics, but also an ideological crusade, a crusade against what he considered to be the center of Judeo-Bolshevism, that the war against the Soviet Union was a war to eliminate communism, Bolshevism, but in Hitler's thinking, there was no distinction to be made between Jews and Bolsheviks. The war against the Soviet Union would be a war of annihilation, not only against the Red Army and the Russians, but also against the Jewish community of Europe. I'd like to look at the evolution of Nazi policy, to look at Nazi racial policy during the pre-war era, and then to look at the impact of the war itself on Nazi policy. In many ways, in fact, in a crucial way, it seems to me that what we now call the Holocaust, the systematic destruction of the European Jewish community, is virtually inconceivable without the war itself, that the war and the Holocaust must be seen together. In 1933, when Adolf Hitler was named Chancellor of Germany, he came to power with roughly a third of the vote in Germany. He was hardly swept into power uh, on a tidal wave of mass public support. The National Socialists had received, at the height of their popularity in the summer of 1932, just about 37% of the vote. Part of the Nazi campaign had always been the appeal, the ideological core of the National Socialist Party, the Nazi Party, had been anti-Semitism, to eliminate the influence of Jews from German society. In the shorthand version, as Hitler would talk about this and his paladins would talk about it during the rise to power, it wouldn't simply be to eliminate the influence of Jews, but to use a variety of ways of saying we want to eliminate the Jews from German life, to expunge the presence of Jews from German life. We know from studies of, the, of Germany in the period just before the rise to power that the anti-Semitism of the regime was not what drew the vast majority of Germans to it, but rather its radical nationalism, its determination to undo the economic woes of the Weimar Republic, and so on. But after 1933, with the regime in power, it is precisely this aspect of National Socialist ideology that would be translated into reality. The Nazis, as it turned out, had been deadly serious about their anti-Semitic, the anti-Semitic planks of the Nazi platform. In 1933, shortly after Hitler's appointment as chancellor, there had been a boycott called of Jewish businesses in Germany. The boycott was intended to last for months on end. It was called off after 24 hours. It had been an abysmal failure, unpopular at home, certainly unpopular abroad. It was bad publicity for the new National Socialist regime. In these first months of the regime, in 1933, the Nazis also introduced a series of laws to eliminate Jews from jobs in the civil service to restrict the practice of law, medicine, and so on by, by Jews. But between 1933 and 35, a period during which Hitler consolidated his grip on German society and the German state, 
the regime seemed to lose momentum in its Jewish policy. There were no new initiatives. There was a great deal of harassment and persecution of Jews on the local level. If one were Jewish in Germany, it depended on where you lived. You might be relatively free from harassment if you lived in Cologne, but if you lived, had the misfortune of living somewhere in Franconia, in Nuremberg, because the local Nazis there were far more radical in this sense, your life uh, might be a living hell. But there was no new initiative from the national regime. It tended to be local, regional. But then in 1935, the regime would introduce what came to be known as the Nuremberg Laws. These were laws which, in effect, would eliminate Jews as citizens of the Third Reich. Jews were no longer citizens of Germany with full civil rights, but rather subjects of the Third Reich. Those laws also introduced a series of strictures against Jewish intermarriage with so-called Aryans, in quotation marks, sexual relations, and so on. The regime after the Nuremberg Laws in 1935 once again seemed to lose momentum in its racial policy. There were no real new initiatives in racial policy between 1935 and 1938. It was not at all clear that the regime was pursuing a consistent policy. In this period, the SS, Hitler's elite Schutzstaffel, the uh, black-suited SS elite organization with Heinrich Himmler at the head and his uh, trusted lieutenant Reinhard Heydrich, certainly pursued Jewish policy, but Nazi policy with regard to the Jews of Germany in the period before the war was largely to encourage Jews to leave. There's a particularly ugly German term called Entjudung. Uh, it's, no, uh, it's, it's no less ugly in English. It means de-Jewification. The German government encouraged Jews to leave, did everything they could to make life unpleasant at home so that Jews would leave. It was not a situation like the Soviet Union after the Second World War where it was difficult for Jews to leave. The regime certainly didn't stand in the way, but Jews could leave basically penniless if they were, if they were to go. In 1938, there was a new ratcheting up of Nazi policy with regard to the Jews. In November of 1938, Uh, a pogrom occurred all over Germany. It was called the Night of Broken Glass, Kristallnacht, or the Reichskristallnacht uh, in German. It was a pogrom conducted all over Germany, largely by Joseph Goebbels, head of the Reich Propaganda Ministry, uh, in response to uh, the assassination of a German diplomat by a young Polish Jew in Paris. It was presented as a spontaneous reaction of outraged uh, German citizens. In fact, it was a very carefully orchestrated uh, pogrom carried out by Goebbels' propaganda minions all over the country. It's important because it really represents the first clearly orchestrated act of violence, violence against the Jews that was directed from the top. This was not local. This was not a regional phenomenon. This wasn't the work of local radicals. This was national policy, and it could not, it could not be uh, presented as anything but. So the regime, before the outbreak of war in September of 1939, certainly had pursued an anti-Semitic policy. One can look at it as a steady ratcheting up 
or escalation of steps taken against the Jews, first boycott, then made non-citizens in 1935, then this first act of violence in 1938, in addition, a series of economic uh, limitations on Jewish life in Germany also in 1938, and then the war. The war would be the major turning point in National Socialist racial policy. And I think it's important as one thinks about motivation, one thinks about the the evolution of Nazi policy, that on January 30th, 1939, the anniversary of Hitler's appointment as chancellor, he'd been appointed chancellor on January 30th, 33, Hitler spoke to the German Reichstag, the German legislature, the national parliament, and he made the following declaration. One more thing I would like now to state on this day, memorable perhaps not only for us Germans. I have often been a prophet in my life and was generally laughed at. During my struggle for power, the Jews primarily received with laughter my prophecies that I would someday assume the leadership of the state and thereby the entire folk and then, among many other things, achieve a solution of the Jewish problem. I suppose that meanwhile, the then resounding laughter of Jewry in Germany is now choking in their throats. Today, I will be a prophet again. If international finance Jewry within Europe and abroad should succeed once more in plunging the peoples into a world war, then the consequence will not be the Bolshevization of the world and therewith a victory of Jewry, but on the contrary, the destruction of the Jewish race in Europe. This is months before the outbreak of the war. And what we have in the statement is that typical combination in Hitler's mind, world finance Jewry on the one hand and Bolshevization on the other. But the invasion of Poland in September of 1939, and even more so the invasion of the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941, would catapult the Nazis into a position to, as Hitler had put it, solve the Jewish problem in Europe. Indeed, the invasion of Poland and then the Soviet Union put Germany in control of Europe's largest Jewish communities. The Jewish population of Germany before the war had been one half of one percent of the overall population. And now the Germans, with the invasion of Eastern Europe, found themselves in control of these large Jewish communities. In October of 1939, a month into the war, Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, was named Reich Commissar for the Strengthening of German Folkdom a new title that gave him responsibility for Nazi racial policy in all of the occupied territories. Himmler delegated that authority to his trusted lieutenant, Reinhard Heydrich, in the so-called Reich Security Central Office, where SS specialists were already at work at finding a solution to either the Jewish problem or the Jewish question. The Nazis used this term, variations on this term over and over again. Immigration, forced immigration, the policy of pre-war Germany would now really become expulsion. Expulsion of the Jews from Germany, expulsion of the Jews from those areas of Eastern Europe that the Nazis were going to incorporate into this new Großdeutsches Reich. In a memorandum drafted on September 19, 1939, entitled The Jewish Question in the Occupied Territories, Heydrich laid out the foundations of Nazi policy. In those territories annexed to Germany, all non-Germans were to be expelled. Those territories were to be cleansed of non-Aryans, both Slavs 
as well as Jews in preparation for future settlement by Germans. This meant the evacuation of Poles, Czechs, and so on to the so-called Government General of Poland, a new Polish state, a sort of rump Polish state created by the Nazis on October 12, 1939. This Government General of Poland would serve as the dumping ground for Jews rounded up all over Europe, and it would ultimately become the killing grounds for Jews, the Jews of Europe. Moreover, all Jews were to be rounded up and concentrated in a few selected urban areas. Heydrich's memorandum in September of 39 suggests that ghettoization was not the final aim, that creating big ghettos in the East was not the final aim, but represented an intermediate step. These ghettos, or concentration centers in the East, were to be located near major rail lines, he indicated, hinting that further transport was being considered. It was at this time that another idea was circulated very secretly among the top Nazi leadership, the idea of creating some sort of what they called a Jewish reservation, uh, almost like an Indian reservation in the United States, somewhere out vaguely in the east, somewhere off uh, in uh, Eastern Europe. The responsibility for executing this policy, the rounding up, the ghettoization, was placed in the hands of special SS forces, the so-called Einsatzgruppen, special SS commando units, developed for the move into Austria. These were men, for the most part, with special training and indoctrination in Nazi racial policy. Others were simply police officers. They numbered about 3,000 men. It's estimated that approximately one million people were rounded up and forced into ghettos in the government general of Poland in the course of 1939-1940. In fact, by October of 1939, the SS had begun the deportation of Jews from Austria and Czechoslovakia to the government general. But problems with this scheme emerged relatively quickly. The army high command was appalled at the sheer brutality of the Einsatzgruppen who moved in right behind the Wehrmacht troops, prompting complaints to various Nazi officials, including Himmler and to Hitler himself, that the Einsatzgruppen, the SS, uh, were, were causing difficulty with military operations. As the war continued and spread to the West in 1940, the German in charge of the government general, Hans Frank, complained that his area, the government general of Poland, was simply being reduced to little more than a dumping ground, and he could not be, he was not going to be able to manage the situation if the trends continued. By October of 1940, Jews were being deported from Western Europe to the government general. Himmler, at this point, ordered the construction of a camp at Auschwitz in Poland near Krakow. And in early 1941, the commandant was ordered to expect as many as possibly 30,000 inmates. Still, no ultimate solution to the Jewish question uh, had been found. The SS considered several options at this time. In February of 1940, the idea of a Jewish reservation somewhere in Eastern Europe seems to have been approved by Goering, by Himmler, by Hans Frank, and then was dropped. We're not quite sure why. The paper trail is not at all evident. But nobody could agree about where the location of this, this should be. At roughly the same time, another plan was put forward within the SS that had been discussed off and on really since the outbreak of the war. And this was an idea, sounds fantastic, 
in a way, of settling all of Europe's Jews somewhere in Africa, in fact, in the French colony of Madagascar off the southeastern coast of Africa. In May of 1940, Himmler wrote a memorandum to Hitler entitled Treatment of Foreign Nationals in the East, in which he stated, and I quote, I hope to see the concept of Jews completely obliterated with the possibility of a large migration of all Jews to Africa or else to a colony. In other words, the SS was taking this idea of, of the Madagascar plan, as it came to be known, quite seriously. They drafted numerous memoranda on issues of international law. They considered questions of transport and so on in pursuance of this option. But as 1940 turned to 1941, the National Socialist regime still didn't seem to have a very clear idea of what a solution to the Jewish question was going to be. The Royal Navy made the idea of Madagascar fairly unworkable since transport was not going to be possible. And, of course, by August of 1941, German troops were now deep inside the Soviet Union. And and as the war against the Soviet Union would progress, it would profoundly affect Nazi racial policy. We talked, when we talked about Operation Barbarossa, about this infamous commissar order delivered to German troops going into the Soviet Union, in which they were told that they would face four implacable enemies, commissars of the Bolshevik Party, partisan saboteurs, and Jews that these groups were to be eliminated wherever they were found, whether they were, it was act, they were engaging in active or passive resistance. The mistakes of the Polish campaign, where there were conflicts between SS Einsatzgruppen and the uh, German army, were now to be eliminated. The German army was given to understand very clearly that the SS going into the Soviet Union had, quote, special tasks to, to uh, deal with, and the army was... To, to give them leeway. Throughout the summer and fall of 1941, as the German troops dove deeper and deeper into the Soviet Union, the Einsatzgruppen moving along with them, the Einsatzgruppen conducted what was a massive bloodbath all over the Soviet Union behind German lines, the major victims of which were Russian Jews, Ukrainian Jews. They engaged in mass shootings, the Jews, partisans, Slavic untermenschen, subhumans, as the Nazis referred to their Slavic enemies. They also began experimenting in 1941. The shooting of Jews, where whole villages of Jews would be marched out, forced to dig uh, a trench, and then shot, shot by the Einsatzgruppen personnel, in some cases shot by regular German army troops who, who would be drawn into this in one way or the other. Whether or not the army troops were drawn directly into these sorts of actions or not, they saw it. German troops took photographs of this, sent the photographs home, wrote home about what they had seen on the Eastern Front with these mass shootings. Um, And at this point, the SS began to experiment with another means. This sort of action was too public, it was too sloppy, it was too inefficient. In the summer of 1941, the SS began experimenting with mobile gas vans, uh, special mobile units that would be drawn up behind the front uh, and uh, poison gas used. In September of 1941, Auschwitz was used for the first gassing of victims. The first victims of gassing at Auschwitz were 600 Russian prisoners of war. 
It is sometime in the summer of 1941, in this summer when the Germans believe they've won the war, when all is going well for them in their deep drive into the Soviet Union, when victory over the Bolsheviks seems at hand, that Hitler issued a verbal order to Heinrich Himmler to seek what was called a final solution to the Jewish question in Europe. The date is uncertain. We're never going to know. There's no paper trail. But it is quite clear that after, late in the summer of 1941 that Himmler, as well as Reinhard Heydrich, his deputy, began to speak of a Fuhrer order. This is the way Hitler did business anyway. Verbal orders, don't write it down. Began speaking of a, of a Fuhrer order to find a Gesamtlösung, or an Intlösung, a total solution, a final solution to the Jewish question. And that responsibility had been, was deputized, was delegated from Himmler to Reinhard Heydrich. He would become the real architect of what came to be known as the final solution. He drew together several existing policies and institutions. The concentration camp system, the camps in Germany, I think this is important that one understand, the camps inside of Germany were not big death camps. They were horrible institutions. People died there, tortured, beaten to death, starved to death, and so on. But they were largely for political prisoners. The camps now that were going to be created for the extermination of the Jews were to be built in Eastern Europe and Poland for the most part. These were to be Vernichtungslager, death camps different from those inside of Germany. The Jews of Europe would be, quote, resettled. The Nazis were keen on euphemisms. Rather than talking about mass murder, they talked about resettlement or special treatment. And at these concentration camps, these special Vernichtungslager, special gas installations, gas bunkers were to be created so that one wouldn't have mass shootings, but rather the the use of poison gas. What Heydrich had embarked upon had come to the conclusion that he would do by the summer, the late summer, early fall of 1941 was nothing less than a systematic plan for mass murder. I say Heydrich because it's clear that Hitler was, saw himself as a big picture man. He gave the direction to policy. It was Heydrich or Himmler or others who would work out the details of how this would work. And it seems clear that at some point Heydrich presented this plan to Hitler who obviously uh, okayed it. It is clear from testimony in October that Himmler already understood what was afoot. He told one foreign office official, and I quote, the destruction of the Europe of the Jews is being planned. Now the destruction of the Jews is imminent. An invitation was issued to a small group of Nazi officials, party officials, state officials, to the Berlin suburb of Wannsee to meet in December of 1941, in which this would be presided over by Heydrich, where he would present this final solution to those who were gathered. The meeting had to be postponed. It was postponed to January 20th, 1942, in part because of the Soviet counteroffensive before Moscow, the American entry into the war, and so on. And so it was pushed back until January of 1942. At this Wannsee conference, Hitler didn't attend it. None of the other major Nazi officials, not Goering, not Goebbels, and so on, not Himmler, but Heydrich presided over the meeting. And he announced to the SS representatives, state officials, and so on, gathered there, a meeting that took, oh, a little over an hour, what the plan would be. 
a series of death camps would be created in Poland. Those that existed, like Auschwitz, would now be expanded to handle thousands, hundreds of thousands, indeed possibly millions of victims who would be transported there. Many, he figured, would die in transit. Others would simply be worked to death. Once they arrived, still others would be liquidated on the spot. Mothers, small children, the old, the infirm, were on principle deemed unfit to work and would simply be liquidated as soon as they arrived at these camps. Poison gas would be used. The need for secrecy was emphasized. The German public, the Nazis felt, was not prepared for this sort of thing, not this kind of radical, this sort of radical action. They certainly didn't want foreign propaganda to get hold of this information. And the third thing was that the ignorance of the victim had, was, had to be maintained. People couldn't know, the Jews of Europe couldn't, weren't supposed to know what fate awaited them at the end of the long train journey. A series of these camps were created beginning in the spring of 1942. The process would largely be the same from camp to camp. There were some variations, but for the most part, the procedures were the same. Approximately 10% of, of any arriving shipment of Jews would be selected for work. The others would be instructed to undress. Women and girls frequently had their hair cut. The Germans used the hair for industrial purposes. They were marched between files of auxiliary police to what they were told were showers, shower stalls, a big bunker of underground bunker with shower heads sticking out of the ceiling. They were told, in many cases, you've had a long journey, you're going to, to now have a bath. In some cases, they went so far as to issue soap. The victims were led down from the train platform into these shower installations, and at this point, all pretense was lost. People were rammed into these uh, underground bunkers. The Germans calculated at one person per square foot, and then gas would be released from above. The gassing process itself could last anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes before the last person had finally died. Between 1942 and 19, January of 1945, when the camps were closed down by the advancing allies in the east, the Russians, over 6 million Jews would die in the camps, and millions more, Russians, Poles, Gypsies, and others, would simply vanish into the gas chambers, victims of Nazi racial policy. In recent years, there has been an increasing discussion about exactly what was known about this. I'm not going to talk about what the Germans knew. There were rumors. Certainly, there was a, this was not reported in the German press. The Nazis didn't talk about it. But there were rumors. People heard things about what was going on in the East. And, of course, a great many people were actually involved in the process itself. The Allies also had heard reports about a variety of sources about what we now think of as the Holocaust as early as the summer of 1941, and it's this I want to talk a little bit about. Allied intelligence services had begun to receive numerous reports in 1941 and 42 from Poland and the Soviet Union. There was a series of articles about this in the press over the last year and a half about disclosures, about what was known. In fact, what was known, and this was known at the time and talked about at the time, was the activities of the Einsatzgruppen, this, this kind of mass pogrom across the Soviet Union. About a million people, probably a million and a half people died as a result of these Einsatzgruppen. This was certainly known. But Allied governments were, had a difficult time figuring out what all the pieces of the intelligence added up to. The Soviet Union provided very little hard information stressing Nazi brutality and barbarism, but rarely singling out the Jews specifically. 
three so-called Molotov notes of January, April, and October of 1942 about the conditions within of in German atrocities in the East mentioned certainly atrocities, but against all Soviet peoples, not necessarily against the Jews. Then in December of 1942, now the camps had been up and running since March 42 for the most part. The Soviet Foreign Ministry's Information Bureau issued a brief unsigned statement dealing with Nazi plans, quote, to exterminate the Jewish population in the occupied territories of Europe, and went on to mention that millions of Jews from all over Europe were being concentrated, quote, for the purpose of killing them, close quote. The international press picked up such items but did not emphasize them. These bits and pieces of news from suspect sources, Polish underground, Hungarian soldiers returning from the Eastern Front and so on, were certainly there. There's a book by Walter Lacour called The Terrible Secret in which he talks about what exactly was already published in the, in the newspapers during the course of the war. But this tended to be swamped by more pressing and clearly documented news from the fronts. Nonetheless, in June of 1942, the BBC broadcast a report that 700,000 Jews had been killed so far. But only in the summer of 42 did the Allied government slowly begin to realize that these actions were not simply pogroms of a kind of traditional sort, but something far more sinister was afoot. A Daily Telegraph story in England, also in June, reported that a million were dead. There were mass meetings in Madison Square Garden in the United States in July and August and in other cities. The World Jewish Congress began to make appeals to the Foreign Office in Britain and to the State Department in the United States, encountering tremendous skepticism. The response, the official response, both in Britain and the United States, to Jewish groups and to others that raised the issue of what was going on insofar as one was able to piece this together, was that any sort of effort to, for example, bring the camps under attack, would sidetrack the Allies from military objectives. And to give you some indication of the lack of sympathy that was frequently heard by Jewish groups, a foreign office official in England uh, said, and I quote, that such efforts to rescue the Jews would, quote, waste a disproportionate amount of time in dealing with wailing Jews, close quote. There was considerable reluctance to publish, to publicize atrocity stories. The Ministry of Information believed in England that public thought, the public thought that people who singled out as victims were probably a bad lot. There was also, I think, a, the a fear that there had been a lot of Allied propaganda during the first war about German atrocities in Belgium, most of which turned out to be untrue. And so, there was, there was a reluctance to take this up. And finally, there was latent anti-Semitism in official circles, both in Britain and in the United States, skepticism uh, so about what was, being, what was being told. But here, I think, in, uh, I think one, can, one has to come to the conclusion the Allies were getting, by 1944, a considerable amount of information. It was only in 44 that we discovered what Auschwitz actually was. But it's also, what, could, what, what policies might have been undertaken? Bombing, certainly, the camps. Bombing the railroad tracks leading to the camps. Were, these things were discussed. But the Allies felt that while it was theoretically possible, if you'll recall, that raids deep into Germany were extremely costly to Allied planes, personnel, and so on, 
as late as uh, early 1944, mid-1944. And the other thing, the idea of bombing the railroads, one of the things the Allies had discovered about the bombing transportation in France, you don't bomb them once. You bomb railroad tracks, you bomb a marshalling yard. You don't just do it once. You've got to keep coming back and doing over and over and over it again. This, they are, the best way to save Jewish lives, the official position was, was to win the war as quickly as possible, and this would save, this would save lives. I think the other thing, too, is that if one puts oneself in the position of someone in, to make a decision, do you want to be the person who is willing to make a decision to say, yes, we are going to bomb the camp at Auschwitz to be responsible for the death of tens of thousands of, of, of Jews? One could say, well, possibly in the long run this might have saved lives, but I think it would have been extremely difficult for any elected official in the West to take on that responsibility. The BBC would broadcast in the summer of 1944 a warning to anyone in Europe who was participating in the deportation of Jews that they would be held accountable at the end of the war. Finally, I think one of the problems for the Allies was that if they could not prevent the murder of the Jews, then to talk about it, to raise it as a public issue, they felt would simply reveal their own, their own weakness. All of these things taken together meant that there was a great reluctance on the part of the Allied governments, even with mounting information. The simple fact was that this was not part of the war objectives of the Allied cause. To prevent further death, to save more lives, the Allied governments argued, the war had to be brought to a speedy conclusion, and that anything that detracted from that would only protract the war and cost more lives. It was a controversial decision, one that I think looking back we might, we might dispute. But at the time, I think there was a growing sense that the horrors, most of which were already in the past by the summer of 1944, could only be halted by the destruction of Hitler's Third Reich. Lecture 26, This Man's Army. Hello. Welcome to our 26th lecture in this series on the Second World War. We're going to shift our focus in this lecture and the next to examine two of the most extraordinary achievements of the Second World War feats of the Second World War. One is the creation of the American military machine during the course of the war, something that had not existed uh, when the war broke out in Europe in September of 1939. The construction of this enormous military machine, both in terms of the personnel as well as the equipment. And then our, in our next lecture, we're going to look at the United States on the home front during the war, the arsenal democracy, the mobilization of the home front, victory gardens, uh, rationing, and so on. American production would be one of the real miracles of the Second World War, creating a military machine, an industrial machine of unparalleled proportions, and the American army too, considering that on September 1st, 1939, that it was the 19th largest army in the world, that the Poles had a larger military establishment than the United States at that point. 
the juggernaut that we've talked about pushing its way across the Pacific, driving across North Africa, up the Italian peninsula, and onto the continent of Europe in 1944 was a product of a, it was a civilian army, a, the citizens in uniform, and a creation um, that had really appeared from virtually nothing. It was one of the most astonishing accomplishments of the war. The army that would storm ashore at Normandy or even Guadalcanal simply did not exist in 1939. Its creation was the act of extraordinary imagination, organization, and will. Within five years of the end of the First World War, the American army had fallen to a strength of 132,000 troops. The Germans, who had complained so bitterly about the Treaty of Versailles with its limitations of manpower to 100,000 troops, had an army virtually as large as that of the United States. The army of the Depression years was the army at its nadir. Pay was dismal. Promotion was rare. The hard-drinking club of officers and NCOs of the interwar army is captured, I think, best in James Jones's classic, From Here to Eternity. Hoover, President Hoover, would cut officers' pay by 15%, enlisted men's pay by 30%, and Franklin Roosevelt, upon his coming into office, threatened to slash the military budget by 51% in the early days of the Roosevelt administration. His chief of staff, Douglas MacArthur, was so infuriated by this that he threatened to resign, he rebelled, and FDR would back off. Beginning in 1935, appropriations for the military began to rise after years, four straight years particularly, of decline. Still, as we've said, when the war broke out in Europe in September of 1939, the United States Army could muster only 190,000 troops. Three infantry divisions in the United States, one in Hawaii, one in the Philippines, all drastically under strength. Even the outbreak of the war failed to bring significant increases in manpower. A ceiling was set in 1939 of 227,000 troops for an army that might be able to protect the frontiers of the United States, but not much else. When General Marshall begged for emergency funds in May of 1940, Franklin Roosevelt refused. There was still no pressing need. The turning point, the turning point, as it was for so much else, was the fall of France. For the British and for the Americans, this sense that France would hold out, that there was time, that one could play for time, now was gone. Now there was a real crisis, and the crisis was that the Germans dominated all of Europe, and there was no, there was no room for maneuver. Roosevelt in the situation relented, and the army was actually flooded with funds, $9 billion worth uh, from 1940 to 1941. It was more than all of the money spent by the War Department since 1920. Marshall at this point envisioned an army of one million men by October of 1941. One thinks about this, going from 190,000 to a million by October of 1941. Two million men by January of 1942. So quantum leaps forward. Where was all of this manpower to come from? Who would be the troops? Well, the country's first peacetime draft would be introduced, legislation to that effect coming in June of 1940. It was enormously controversial, tremendously unpopular at this juncture as well. But on September 16, 1940, FDR would sign the Selective Service Act, 
instituting the draft. The law authorized the induction of 900,000 men for a year, called up the National Guard, that was 270,000 troops. It raised regular army strength to about 500,000 troops. A civilian-run system of draft boards began operating within 30 days, and every male from the age of 21 to 36 was given a number from 1 to 7,386, which was the largest number that any one draft board had on its books. The president himself did the first drawing, and the first number pulled was number 158. So important, I think, and so etched in memory are these, these experiences from this period that all the way through my childhood, the man in my small town just outside of Chattanooga who had, who had that number and was the first one drafted was Frank Calloway who ran Calloway's uh, service station. And there on the back all the way through as long as he lived, there was this, there was the, the photograph of him taking the number saying, Frank says he's ready to go. I think this was, um, uh, not an untypical attitude. It would become far more typical after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. But would this be enough? How did Marshall calculate the men and the machines necessary to fight a war? He relied, improbably enough, and this is one of the whole series of improbable things in this, he relied very heavily on Major Albert Wiedemeyer. Wiedemeyer had just recently studied at the Kriegsakademie in Berlin. He impressed Marshall. And this, I think this is also one of the typical things of Marshall. And this is one of the reasons that Roosevelt didn't want to let him out of Washington to go run Operation Overlord, is that Marshall was a very, very good judge of personnel. He impressed Marshall, and in July of 1940, Marshall charged him with coming up with a plan to figure out, to calculate manpower needs and the equipment needed to create the army that Marshall had in mind. Army intelligence at this point estimated that Hitler and his allies could field 400 divisions by the end of 1943. Since the standard military wisdom of the time insisted that one needed a two-to-one ratio for offensive operations, Wiedemeyer then was charged with coming up with manpower for 800 divisions. The British had maybe the potential for 100 the Russians had the potential certainly for hundreds and hundreds, but at this point, when, when Wiedemeyer begins his calculations, uh, it is not at all clear that, uh, that the Soviet Union was going to be able to withstand a German attack. Indeed, and as, as the plans continued, uh, it seemed that the Russians were about ready to fold in the summer and went fall of 1941. To put a division of 15,000 troops into combat, another 25,000 would be required to handle supplies, training, communications, and so on. So doing the, doing the math, 700 divisions at 40,000 men worked itself out to about 28 million troops. The American population in 1941 was approximately 135 million. Since a modern economy, in a modern economy, only about 10% of the population could be spared for military duty without wrecking industrial productivity, the armed forces could safely take only 13.5 million, he calculated. After making the calculations for the Navy and the Air Corps, Wiedermeyer established that at its peak strength, the United States could field an army of perhaps 8.8 million men. This, of course, would then set off a chain reaction of needs to move 5 million men to Europe, 
and to supply them would require at least a thousand ships of at least 7,000 tons each. To build such a fleet, again starting virtually from scratch, he figured would take two years. To raise and equip such an army would take also at least two years. And planning was necessary to establish production schedules for everything from GI soap to trucks to tanks. Bases had to be built. The army alone was going to require huge camps to house and train troops. The existing ones had to be expanded and new ones had to be built. In 1940-1941, there was a land rush by the, by the federal government, buying up land, seizing land, all over particularly what we now call the Sun Belt, to establish a series of military camps for training of army personnel. By May of 1941, so in very rapid-fire order, the army had 46 big new camps waiting for a flood of inductees. I think what's, what's remarkable to me about this is that, that so many of these temporary barracks and buildings, annexes and so on, that were built in this, this land rush era at the very beginning of the Second World War and were built largely to last a, a matter of several years were still in operation, wooden structures still in operation, still being used during the Vietnam era. So the Army was now preparing for a flood of new inductees. The Army Air Corps always wanted to do things slightly better, leased 100 Miami Beach luxury hotels uh, for basic training for, its, for its, uh, its men. What about equipment? What about munitions? FDR and others had worked on the assumption, if, as, as Roosevelt thought about this in the approach of war, had worked on the assumption that the United States would simply outproduce its enemies. The American economy still had an enormous amount of slack in it as a result of the Depression. We hadn't tapped nearly the, 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 any, anything close to the potential of the American economy. But how was it going to do this? How was one going to mobilize the economy? It was quickly pointed out to the president that nothing was inevitable about success in this. The United States in 1941 did not have a big munitions or arms industry. One had to be created. During the First World War, American soldiers had largely used equipment provided by Great Britain and France. As one general wrote in a memo to the War Department, and I quote, it would be unwise to assume we can defeat Germany simply by outproducing her. Wars are won by sound strategy implemented by well-trained forces which are adequately and effectively equipped, close quote. Marshall and Stimson reorganized the military and the War Departments, respectively. Stimson believing that the War Department needed a great deal of change, a great deal of uh, reform. It's just like the Alimentary Canal, he said. You feed it at one end and nothing comes out at the other but crap. Something had to be done to make this an efficient organization capable of handling the monumental tasks foreseen for it. One didn't have to start absolutely at scratch. In one of the most foresighted aspects of American military thinking in the interwar years, the Army had established the so-called Army Industrial College in 1924, conducted annual surveys of industry, yearly updates and detailed annexes. Uh, what we saw, thinking about potential needs, what one was seeing already here is the beginning of what would later be called the military-industrial complex, thinking about, about needs and the relationship of industry to the military. Still, the American Army was never to reach Wiedemeyer's projections. The total number of divisions was 91. 
at its peak, 5.9 million soldiers, 2.3 in the Army Air Corps. It was slightly smaller than the German Army and only slightly larger than Japan's. It was only half as big as the Red Army. And even in 1941, when the Selective Service Act had to be renewed in October, it passed by one vote. There was hardly a great commitment uh, to this enterprise at this juncture. For those who found themselves now caught in the selective service system, or for those who after uh, December, on the Monday following December 7th, 1941, would rush off to join the Army, they would be introduced into a world of khaki and OD. It was a time when OD referred to olive drab and not overdose. Um, And a new phenomenon was born in American life, the GI the government issue. The introduction came via a series of steps. The reception center, the citizen soldier entered another world. After being inducted locally and given two weeks to settle his affairs, the soldier traveled by train to one of the vast reception centers that were set up around the country. Here began the introduction to the army. Civilian clothes were shipped home, haircut, GI clothing issued, the, the usual complaint, does anything here ever fit? An utter lack, the, getting used to the utter lack of privacy, the utter lack of individuality, um, life in the barracks, the latrine, and so on, learning all of the things that would become the, the standard sort of approaches to this, that there was the right way, the wrong way, and the army way to do everything. They would be subjected to a series of tests, the general classification tests, the mechanical aptitude tests, given a social, an army serial number, and then on to another camp for basic training. 17 weeks of inculcating army discipline, then on to unit training, the parole process expected to take 52 weeks. What was created was was a, a, a remarkable organization. One saw in the army of the Second World War the United States really as melting pot. In an era when people didn't travel very much, when there wasn't a lot of what social scientists call spatial mobility, something that had also been inhibited by, of course, the, the privations of the Great Depression, suddenly the human variety of America came as a revelation to most young men, especially from rural or small uh, town backgrounds. One of the things that's very interesting, David Reynolds, a a wonderful English historian, several years ago wrote a book called Rich Relations, The American Occupation of England, 1942-45. And one of the things he points out is that something like 40% of the American soldiers who found themselves in Great Britain prior to the D-Day landings, 40% of them had come from homes that did not have indoor plumbing. For many people who entered the Army in in 1941-42, uh, this was uh, this was a step up in in some ways. Regular food, regular work after the depression, uh, and certainly this ethnic and regional kaleidoscope in a period, as I said, when people didn't travel very much. If one reads through the letters or gathers experiences of of veterans from this period, uh, many of them have to do with encountering the inevitable person from Brooklyn or the the Texan or hearing the first Southern accent and so on. Uh, one has the sort of the, the World War II image of the standard bom- bomber crew, where there had to be, there had to be usually the the 
somebody from Brooklyn had to be on the crew. I think central casting dictated that every bomber crew in, in the United States, uh, Army Air Corps, and probably naval aviation had to have at least one person from Brooklyn. Some, some slow-talking Southerner or the, the, the big uh, Texan, the sort of Van Johnson, peaches and cream complexion, blonde-headed Midwestern guy, uh, all were there. And in fact... Much of the, much of, I think the wartime experience actually does reflect that, that Hollywood stereotype that people were thrown together for the first time. And if one reads letters from servicemen from this time, it's commented on the sort of north-south, uh, uh, battles that were fought and so on. The exception, of course, to this, within all of the ethnic diversity and intermingling of crews and, and, and companies was, uh, with black soldiers, with African Americans, who would remain during, during the Second World War as, as one said, second class citizens, whether in the army or not. A 1940 directive set racial policy for the war. It promised that the percentage of blacks would correspond, in the military would correspond to the uh, percentage of blacks in the overall population, about 10%. African Americans would serve in every branch of service, combatant and non-combatant, uh, but were still terribly overrepresented in, this, in the so-called service units. 25% of the quartermaster corps, 15% in engineering, 5% in, in the infantry, only 2% in the Army Air Corps. No blacks were to be members of bomber crews. There was, of course, the, the first black fighter squadron, the 99th, established in, in uh, 1941. They would become quite famous during the war. Separate but equal was the policy. No blacks were to command white units. Most black units were commanded not only by whites, but in, in a perverse twist that I, that I think defies understanding by white Southerners. No intermingling of black and white enlisted personnel in the same uh, regimental organizations was permitted. As General Marshall put it, pragmatist to the end, a policy of integration, and I quote, would be tantamount to solving a social problem which has perplexed the American people throughout the history of this nation. The army cannot accomplish such a solution and should not be charged with the undertaking, close quote. Once this would, this situation was driven home uh, in the war in a number of different ways. There was a very famous incident written up in Yank magazine uh, where a Corporal Rupert Trimmingham, who was stationed in Arizona, had, was traveling with another, a number of other black soldiers and had had to, to stop over in Louisiana uh, and had gone into the only place they could get something to eat was at the railroad station, had gone into the railroad station, were, were not permitted to enter. The white uh, personnel there refused to allow them to enter. They had to go around to the back which was a standard operating procedure in the South at this time, where they would be fed by the kitchen people uh, out back. While he and his, his uh, soldier friends were out back eating, a number of German prisoners of war were brought into the main dining room of the train station. They sat down, were served, laughed, joked, treated very well. And, and uh, Trimmingham wrote um, a biting letter to Yank, and I'd like to read it. Here is a question that each Negro soldier is asking. What is the Negro soldier fighting for? On whose team are we playing? Myself and eight other soldiers were on our way from Camp Claiborne, Louisiana, to the hospital in, in Arizona. We had to lay over until the next day for our train. On the next day, we could not purchase a cup of coffee at any of the lunchrooms around here. As you know, old man Jim Crow rules. 
The only place where we could be served was at the lunchroom at the railroad station, and then he proceeds to tell the story I've just related. I could not help ask myself these questions. Are these men, talking about the Germans, sworn enemies of this country? Are they not taught to hate and destroy all democratic governments? Are we not American soldiers sworn to fight for and die if need be for, the, for our country? Then why are we, they treated better than we are? Why are we pushed around like cattle? If we're fighting for the same thing, if we're going to die for our country, then why does the government allow such things to go on? Some of the boys are saying that you will not print this letter. I'm saying that you will. He certainly did print it, and it provoked a huge outpouring of letters to, to Yank, the weekly uh, Army magazine, uh, all registering the same sort of outrage that something like this uh, would take place. The Army also was determined during the war. Well, I, I, one of the complaints about the Army during the Second World War subsequently was, well, there just wasn't enough political indoctrination. The troops just didn't know what they were fighting for. This was borne out over and over and over again in various surveys that were done uh, about troop morale. What were we fighting for? The four freedoms, uh, nobody seemed to know quite what those were. Less than 13% of the men in one survey could identify even two of the four. Um, the average GI didn't, clearly did not have a clear set of ideals for which he was fighting except to get the thing over with and go home as quickly as possible. There is a very famous uh, there was a very famous story written by John Hersey during the war. He had been a uh, he would subsequently write an, uh, a number of things, as you know, Hiroshima, uh, Belfort, Adano in 1945. But he was a war correspondent early in the war and was at Guadalcanal. He'd been with a group of Marines tramping through the jungle, had been in firefights and so on, and they'd stopped at a clearing to rest. And he, as they were all sitting around, he said, you know, what do you think this war is all about? What are you, what are you fighting for? All of the Marines, I'm sure 18 to 19, maybe 20 years old, all looked down at their boots, embarrassed by this, this question. Nobody said anything. Uh, he kept looking around. Nobody said anything. And then finally somebody said, Jesus, I'd love to have a piece of blueberry pie. Then somebody else said, well, I prefer mints. <laughs> then somebody else went on, well, I like uh, apple crumb, southern style, or whatever it was. And they went on talking about this for a few minutes. And Hersey said, you know, well, what this was really about, this was what they were fighting for. And it wasn't mom and apple pie. It wasn't that. But this was the way they articulated their war, that this is what it meant to them. Uh, he wrote this up, sent it back as an article that became an enormously uh, popular piece during the Second World War. Marshall understood this, and he believed that rather than attempting to indoctrinate troops, although the troops were supposed to see all of the Frank Capra Why We Fight films, uh, which were even for Frank Capra, who made such wonderful films as uh, It Happened One Night and, um, oh, the Jimmy Stewart film for Christmas Time, the, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, the Why We Fight series is pretty heavy-handed, heavy-handed, tough going. Marshall understood that what troops wanted was it was morale. It wasn't it wasn't ideals in this sort of propagandistic sense. And so much of what Marshall insisted upon was a series of things to make life better for soldiers, sailors, everyone in the military. One of those things was mail. One of the most uh, innovative aspects of the Second World War was something called the V-mail system. Not email, but V-mail, um, which was to take a form, uh, an actual letter-sized form, 
uh, write on it, and then this would be taken and uh, microfilmed to a much smaller version, which could then be sent. 63 million V-mail letters a month would originally have weighed 400 tons. As V-mail, they weighed 400 pounds, so that it was possible to send massive amounts of mail back and forth from the most obscure places in the Pacific, not always with great delivery, uh, but uh, or from Europe. So mail, the USO system with entertainment, Movies, though certainly people would complain that they saw the same Hopalong Cassidy movie for a year and a half uh, on ships in the South Pacific. Beer was supposed to be three bottles a week per man. I'm sure that some had more than their quota, some less. Food was, was for many people, although soldiers love to complain about everything, and food is one of them. Uh, the food was regular. Pay compared to any other armed forces in the world was extremely, was extremely good. Still, the citizen soldier could always complain. He was, as one author has written, suspended between two ways of life. Physically, he, left the, he had left civilian life, yet mentally he, had, he never joined the army. He was in the service, but not of it. I think one gets uh, a wonderful sense of this in the letters that were written into both Stars and Stripes and to Yank magazine. I, I'd like to read you a couple. This is from 1945. Dear Yank, on the troop carrier I was on, the PX, ration chocolate. One day I purchased a Hershey bar with almonds, as did the soldier in front of me. It developed upon eating our chocolate bars that his Hershey contained nine almonds, while mine only seven. Is this fair? <laughs> this provoked a response a couple of weeks later in another letter. Dear Yank, in a recent issue of Yank, T5 Nebling stated that the man preceding him in the chocolate bar ration line received nine almonds in his Hershey bar, whereas he himself only received seven. We feel that we can clearly clarify the situation by pointing out that through some gross and unpardonable error, the other soldier undoubtedly received an officer's Hershey bar. <laughs> Lest one think that only letters were the, were the form that, with which GIs could express themselves, there was also poetry. It was a st standard feature of Yank. Some of it I'm, I'm afraid I can't uh, actually <laughs> pr provide you with here. Uh, but this is one that I particularly like dealing with a real source of trouble for all uh, GIs, and that was supply. Back in Texas, where, where I took my training, I had no galoshes when it was raining. Straight to supply and down on my knees... No soap, said the sergeant. It's all overseas. Then to England we sailed. No supply troubles now, I wailed. Went to the sergeant with my song and dance. T.S., my boy, it's all in France. Someday soon I'll cross the Rhine. Everything then should really be fine. The supply angle would be terrific. When I get there, it'll all be in the Pacific. These aspects of day-to-day -day life for this new creature, the GI, it would be this institution, this, the GI, the serviceman, would become the central figure of the United States during the Second World War, a new, a new citizen in uniform. But lest one think that all of the letters and all of the poetry was, was funny, uh, there's also a very moving poem that I would like to close with written by Sergeant Harold Applebaum at an army camp in North Carolina, also in 1945. It's called The Death of Private Jones. Let's say that Private Jones died quietly. Let's say that when the first wave stormed the shore, a single shot went through his heart, 
and he slipped lifeless to the sand. Not one man saw him die, so busy they with lying hid and crawling on, yet all men felt the breath of leaden wings come close, and when they did, it made his passing seem a public death. So much for Jones. He died as one of scores and on a distant beach. But when they bring the news to those who count the costs of wars, a private's death becomes a private thing. How strange that war's arithmetic discounts the spread of sorrow as the sorrow mounts. Lecture 27, Daily Life, Culture, and Society in Wartime. Hello. Welcome to this lecture on the American home front during the Second World War. In our last lecture, we had focused on what was really one of the remarkable achievements of the war years, and that was the creation of an American army, a gigantic American military establishment from virtually nothing. In this lecture, we're going to focus on what is an equally remarkable feat, an extraordinary achievement of the war years, and is the transformation of the American economy from largely a depressed economy on the eve of the war to the most productive, astonishingly productive industrial economy in the world. We're going to look at the social changes that the war would bring uh, in its wake and examine some of both the social tensions, social achievements of the war, uh, and also what I would call the transformation of everyday life, to look a little bit at popular entertainment and so on during the war years. At the outset of the war, the United States was still lingering under the effects of the Great Depression, and yet within a very short period of time, really from 1939 to America's entry into the war in 1941, in late 1941, one see, sees already an enormous spurt forward in production, prodigious feats of wartime mobilization. The numbers are absolutely staggering. Aircraft production rose from less than 6,000 in 1939 to over 96,000 in 1944. Naval tonnage grew by 42% in the same period. Already during 1942, the United States produced production equal that of all the Axis powers. In 1943, it was one and a half times as great. By 1944, the United States was producing twice as much as Germany and Japan combined. In that same year, the United States would produce 40% of the world's armaments. The United States had become, by 1944, quite genuinely, the arsenal of democracy, as it was frequently called at this time. The, this drastic acceleration or expansion of the economy was possible in part because at the outbreak of the war, American industrial facilities uh, were nowhere close to their potential because of the Depression. Although the United States produced more steel than any other country already in September of 1939, we were using only one-third of our capacity at that point. So there was a great deal of slack in the economy. There were still 10 million men unemployed in 1939. The New Deal had not uh, in, solved the problem of unemployment. 
wartime production certainly would. The economy began to accelerate with the war. Contracts in 1939 and early 1940 acted to jumpstart the economy. These contracts were not simply American, but also French and British, um, placing orders with American factories to produce all sorts of armaments for the war in Europe. It began the crossover for American industry even before the, the United States has entered the conflict in order to meet these orders from, from Europe. With the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, American industry was primed for expansion. The real turning point, when, just as it was when we talked in our last lecture about the mobilization of American manpower, it was really the fall of France that acted as the shock. The shock that, that, that sent this uh, uh, virtually a, a shock wave of, of warning to the United States that there was no time. There was no, there was not going to be a long run up to war. That France, which had been expected to hold out for some time, had fallen rapidly and now we were moving very quickly toward the front lines. Automobile plants, particularly after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, began producing tanks, trucks, aircraft. One of the most, uh, I think probably the most famous of all of the various industrial sites of the Second World War in the United States was Henry Ford's extraordinary bomber site, 27 miles west of Detroit, Willow Run it was called. It was, by its very proportion, staggering. The main building consumed 67 acres. The final assembly line to build B-24 Liberators was one mile long. Willow Run would produce 8,564 B-24s over the course of the war at top speed. This was absolutely astonishing. At top speed, one B-24 came off the assembly line every 63 seconds. When one thinks about Hermann Goering's the head of the German Luftwaffe's observation in 1940-41 about American production. He says, well, they make good razor blades. Didn't think that uh, there would be a way for the United States to mobilize its economy for any sort of major effort in, in Europe. Uh, this sort of, these sorts of numbers would have been absolutely mind-boggling. One sees similar sorts of, of achievements in other fields of industrial production, in shipbuilding, for example, where Henry J. Kaiser, who had become easily the most famous industrialist of the war, before the United States entry into the war, Kaiser had not produced a ship, not laid a hull, not uh, been involved in this sort of thing at all. But he seemed to be, he came to represent this sort of can-do attitude of the war, a captain of industry who was capable of taking... Uh, uh, any sort of mission uh, and performing remarkable feats. He would become the world's largest shipbuilder during the course of the war, employing 250,000 workers, 12 shipyards. When he came on board in 1941, it took a year to produce the basic sort of ship involved in, in transport, the so-called Liberty ships. Very quickly, Kaiser would accomplish this in a matter of days. In fact, at one point, produced a Liberty ship in fewer than five days. He would build a third of the Liberty ships produced during the Second World War, uh, giving him the nickname Sir Launchalot. These sorts of entrepreneurial initiatives, achievements, also took place within a context of economic planning provided by the government. Franklin Roosevelt would begin uh, with a series of, of production boards, boards, agencies, 
created to evaluate martial resources. In 1939, he had created the War Resources Board. There would be a War Production Board established in 1941, an Office of Economic Stabilization, and then finally the Office of War Mobilization, headed by James Burns, the senior senator from South Carolina and a Supreme Court justice to to head it. It would be this Office of War Mobilization that would really coordinate these these various uh, endeavors. Needless to say, this arsenal of democracy, this transformation of the American industrial scene produced considerable social change and considerable social tension. It's remarkable in some ways that uh, the war years would pass with as little labor trouble as there was. In part, at the beginning of the war, there was hardly a problem with labor. There was a labor shortage. Um, but there would be strikes, John L. Lewis's uh, mine workers, United Mine Workers Strike of 1943 being the most, the most obvious one. But for the most part, the war years would pass with remarkably little labor strife, with um, labor and management pulling together for the war effort. Um, the labor shortage at the beginning of the war was so acute that there were signs placed around in various places, even in restaurants. One, which I particularly like, this says, please be nice to our waitresses. They're harder to get than customers. Um, that comment, talking about waitresses, actually also points to one of the most obvious changes in the labor force during the Second World War in the United States, one of the most obvious changes, social changes, that the war would bring on the home front, and that would be a massive influx of women into the American labor market. Women would move into the labor market in enormous numbers. The the number jumped from 25% of the workforce before the war to 36% of the workforce during the course of the war. Between 1940 and 1944, the number of employed women rose by half, reaching a high of 19 million. And for the first time, married women in the workforce would outnumber single women. Women over 35, in fact, accounted for 60% of the increase in women coming into the labor force. By 1944, at the peak of women's wartime employment, the percentage of the female workforce in clerical, sales, or service jobs had declined to 34%, while the percentage increase in the number of women employed in what were called war industries, in metals, chemicals, rubber, and so on, stood, had grown uh, by 40, 460%. So they had, the women were moving out of the traditional sort of women's clerical sorts of jobs into jobs that had traditionally been held by men. Although most saw this influx as temporary, to be reversed when the boys came home, the changes wrought in the gender composition of the workforce by the war were indeed historic. From a relatively small labor force composed largely of young, unmarried women to an enormous force comprised for the most part, of older married women over the course of the war. This is in stark contrast, and I think this is a point that one ought to make, it's in stark contrast to, for example, Germany, which during the war did not want to employ women, despite the tremendous strains on German manpower during the course of the Second World War, the National Socialist regime was very, very reluctant to introduce women in significant numbers into the workplace. They, I think we alluded to this in a, pre, in a previous lecture, that while American factories, British factories, certainly Soviet factories, were really operating 24 hours a day, running shifts, 
German factories never would do this during the course of the war. They didn't employ women to the same degree as certainly we did in the United States or in the other allied countries, um, and instead tended to rely on slave labor, which was notoriously and obviously unproductive, uh, worked in abysmal conditions, and so on. So this, this introduction of women, successful introduction of women into the labor force was a considerable and important change during the course of the war. Uh, certainly the most potent symbol of this entry of women into the labor force would be Rosie the Riveter, uh, as sort of f- becomes a sort of folk hero, folk uh, uh, emblem for women who have taken on now men's jobs. And it bore some relationship to reality. Women held 20% of the jobs in the aircraft plants in Detroit, in Seattle, the home of Boeing, it was 47% of the workforce was female. There was no wage parity, of course, in the period, but raises for women during the course of the war far outstripped those of men in the labor market. For example, in the air, aircraft industry, over the course of the war, women saw their wages go up by 100%, whereas men's rose by only uh, about a ninth. So there were very real gains. and the the The... the picture of women we have here in the studio, for those of you who are, who are listening on, simply on audio, we have here in the studio a picture of one of the most famous posters from the Second World War, uh, the War Production Coordinating Committee. We can do it with this, this uh, woman with her hair up um, in a kerchief showing her, her bicep. This, I think, was certainly one of the most powerful images of the war going along with the, the Rosie the Riveter idea. Another change in the labor force also needs to be mentioned as one looks at the war years, and this is the introduction of black Americans, African Americans, into the labor force and the the spatial change, the geographic shifts that would take place. Black Americans would leave the South in record numbers during the course of the Second World War. One of the things about the war, of course, was that the this entire society seemed to be in transit producing enormous uh, strains on the transportation system, the trains for the most part. And one of the greatest migrations was the migration of African Americans out of the South, leaving for industrial jobs primarily in the Midwest, but also in California along the West Coast. The Army had no plans to utilize black labor, even the black men, even the black men who who were taken into the army would be underutilized in the military. There were about 5 million employed blacks, over one-half male in 1940, virtually none in well-paying war industries. So before the war began, even before the war began, there was already the beginnings of some sense of protest about this state of affairs, when A. Philip Randolph, the president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which was really the only really influential black labor union, one, the only one with any real clout, called for a march on Washington in the summer of 1941. He did this in part, having seen the figures on the low employment of blacks in war industries, and also having seen a report that indicated that something like 40 percent of all management personnel in war industries so that they didn't have any interest in employing blacks. 
So A. Philip Randolph called for a march on Washington in the summer of 1941. It was estimated that about 50,000 black citizens were, would come to join in this march to protest racial dim- discrimination in both industry and in the federal government. This was a source of great embarrassment to FDR and to the government. Um, Randolph's plans were supported by the NAACP, and only four days before the march, President Roosevelt invited Randolph and Walter White, who at this point was the head of the NAACP, to Washington. The upshot of this visit was an executive order. The president issued an executive order to establish the Fair Employment Practices Commission. It would prompt employers to break with past practice and to see that certainly the major war industries would be integrated. This was considerably, this initiative on the part of, of FDR was certainly aided by the labor shortage that would be felt in 1940-41 and into early 1942. By 1944, blacks held 7.5% of all jobs in war industries. This still meant that blacks were underrepresented, but it represented a vast improvement over uh, their status at the beginning of the war. Still, racial tensions in the United States were never very far from the surface, and they regularly erupted. There was a great deal of tension on military bases or in areas where there were military bases with black population uh, around. Fights between black and whites, riots between soldiers in El Paso, Texas in 1943, a gunfight between black soldiers and MPs at Camp Stewart, Georgia, left one dead and five wounded in 1943. Um, Also labor trouble having to do with the integration of the labor force. When 12 blacks were promoted at a shipyard in Mobile, Alabama, white workers went on a rampage, injuring 20 blacks. And the easily the, the low point of race relations during the war would come in the summer of 1943 in June when a riot broke out in Detroit that would leave 25 African Americans dead, nine whites were killed, the National Guard had to be called out to restore order. Over 700 people were wounded and 1,300 people put under arrest during what was really a massive race riot in Detroit. These kinds of tensions would surface at different points. Detroit was the worst instance during the war, but in the summer of 1944 in August, white transit workers in Philadelphia struck the Philadelphia Transit Company to protest the promotion of eight black porters to the status of drivers in the Philadelphia transit system. So bitter was this resistance to this sort of change that once again the regular army had to be called out by President Roosevelt to run the transit system in the city of Philadelphia, this in the summer of 1944. So while there was enormous unity in the country at one level about about the war effort, Social changes brought by the transformation of the labor market would be felt in all sorts of ways. The NAACP would see its membership rise tenfold during the course of the war, reaching a half a million by 1945. And although gains by blacks, both within the labor market and within the military, 
were certainly held within bounds. We talked about the policy of, of racial segregation really within the military uh, in our last lecture. The Second World War would act as a, a accelerating factor uh, in the momentum that would build after the Second World War for racial integration in the United States. The low point of wartime domestic affairs, however, did not come even with the race riots in Detroit or the labor trouble in Mobile or in Philadelphia, but rather had come earlier in February of 1942 when the president bowed to pressure and approved an initiative to remove 112,000 Americans of Japanese ancestry and resident Japanese aliens from their homes along the West Coast and placed them in what were euphemistically referred to as, quote, relocation centers. This was Executive Order Number 9066, issued on February 19th, 1942. It was for this great bastion of democracy, a country at war with oppressive regimes in Asia and in Europe, a, sh a shameful violation of civil rights. It was the result of a widespread hysteria along particularly the West Coast at the very low ebb of American military fortunes at the end of 1941, beginning of 1942. There was considerable fear of uh, fivers, fifth columners, uh, Japanese gardeners, barbers, and so on. If one's ever seen the Frank Capra Why We Fight series, um, uh, there's a film called Know Your Enemy, Japan, and there is a, there is a, a, a passage there where the, the, the camera focuses in on the Japanese barber who doesn't talk as he's cutting Americans' hair, or the Japanese gardener who, while tending the roses along the seacoast, is actually flashing, flashing signals to Japanese submarines off the coast. This, and this is a film made much later in the war. On February 23rd, a Japanese submarine had actually shelled an oil refinery near Santa Barbara. And the next night, a weather balloon had gotten loose and strayed over the skies of Los Angeles. It was mistaken for a Japanese air raid, and in the uh, hyper-tense uh, feelings of the period, panic and virtual hysteria swept the West Coast. Still, it was not until March of 19, uh, March 29, 1942, that the forced evacuation of Japan, Japanese Americans began. Most evacuations were completed by August of 1942. Anyone with one Japanese great-grandparent was to be interned. The FBI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, and the Army's G2 had actually done investigations of Japanese civilians before the outbreak of the war, identifying those Japanese residents, Japanese Americans, who they thought were genuinely subversive, or who might be guilty of some sort of anti-American act. So there already had been research done, investigations done to actually to arrest or at least take into custody, protective custody, those individuals. So that this kind of massive sweep of the Japanese population of the West Coast was by and large unnecessary. Earl Warren, Attorney General of California, was very much in favor of this action, indeed argued to, I suppose, his everlasting regret that while it might be possible to determine whether Italian-Americans or German-Americans were loyal, that these inscrutable Orientals were simply impossible to understand and therefore uh, these measures were going to be necessary. There were 10 major camps 
most of them in barren uh, settings, severe climates, two in California, two in Arizona, one in Arkansas, one in Wyoming, one in Utah, and for reasons that have always defied my understanding, two in Arkansas, where Japanese Americans from the West Coast were put to work in the Mississippi Delta over the course of the war. Beginning in 1943, with the fortunes of the war having changed considerably, Japanese Americans were allowed to, to begin to leave the camps, but the relocation centers remained in operation until January of 1945. In early 1943, the Army began accepting recruits for an all-Japanese military unit. It came to be known as the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, the Nisai, In all, 33,000 Japanese Americans would serve in the Second World War in the European theater. The 442nd became an elite unit with the strength of 3,000 men. By war's end, it counted 9,486 dead and wounded. It was the most decorated combat unit in the American Army. One Congressional Medal of Honor uh, and a series of of, uh, silver stars, distinguished service crosses, and so on. The treatment of Japanese Americans, the racial tensions within the United States, represent many of the problems that one encountered during the course of the Second World War. There were other aspects of American day-to-day life that were more obvious to the vast majority of Americans. A spirit of volunteerism. One always obviously can talk about rationing and the blackouts. Car production stopped. Gas began to be rationed on December 1st, 1942. Tires became invaluable. A 35-mile-per-hour speed limit was passed uh, for the country. Pleasure driving altogether was outlawed on the east coast of the United States in January of 1943. It was impossible to go anywhere without the slogan, Is This Trip Necessary?, being seared into one's consciousness. Don't you know there's a war on as a comment for uh, anyone complaining about the lack of uh, any particular item? Blackouts were slow to come, but did on both coasts. The government, it's it's interesting that during the First World War, the government had sponsored and been very much behind the idea of victory gardens, that is, private people growing small plots of vegetables around. The government during the Second World War didn't initiate the program. Civilians, simply assuming that this had been done during the First War, it was going to be done again, began to... to, uh, a project to create these victory gardens. There would be 18 million of them, small vegetable plots uh, all over the country. 18 million victory gardens, as they were called. In 1943, 8 million tons of produce was grown on 20 million individual plots, from tiny little backyard gardens to in cities, uh, minuscule little plots. What couldn't be What couldn't be eaten was to be saved or canned. One of the slogans from the war, eat what you can and can what you can't, uh, was uh, current about the Victory Gardens. It was impossible to get through any particular period of the war on the home front without seeing children in particular involved in scrap collections of one sort or another, collecting string, rubber bands, um, aluminum of all sorts. At one point, the government claimed that there was a shortage of aluminum um, for aircraft production, and so women voluntarily pr- came forth with all sorts of pots and pans, only to discover the sort of aluminum necessary for aircraft production was not that kind of aluminum. The stuff was melted back down and then sold back to women later on. But it was indicative, I think, of the spirit of volunteerism that people came with 
without being asked, volunteered to bring in the pots and pans and so on. The scrap iron collections, tin cans, tin foil, as I said, rubber bands. These were collected in balls, bottle caps, chewing gum wrappers, flashlight batteries. Collections, particularly by children, would become part of the everyday scene. Bond drives. The government was going to was determined to finance some of this enormous expenditure during the war by uh, selling bonds. There would be eight major bond drives during the course of the war, smaller ones as well. Hollywood was mobilized for this, the stars uh, going on big motorcades and train trips around the country for bond drives, buy bonds. Carol Lombard was actually killed uh, flying uh, back from one of these bond drives. Dorothy L'Amour, the, the co-star of Bob Hope and Bing Crosby in the various road pictures, was credited with raising $350 million worth of bonds during the course of the war, showing up uh, all over the country. It was a time when, if one thinks about the austerity of the war, it was also a time, though, of great nightlife in the United States. Nightlife flourished. Um, night spots, bars, um, all over the country. One saw this particularly reflected, I think, in November of 1942 with this awful uh, fire at the Coconut Grove uh, in Boston in which 500 people were killed, trapped in this nightclub that that evening. Um, the government certainly tried to mobilize Hollywood, mobilize the music industry in particular, uh, to establish a sort of wartime anthem, there were a number of very patriotic songs that various government agencies fastened onto as being things that would would, would fire up the home folks. Uh, Remember Pearl Harbor was one. This didn't do very well. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition was somewhat better. Uh, we've, we did it before and we'll do it again. All of these to, to inspire patriotism on the home front, but these songs were a lot, there were some that were a lot less elevated. You're a sap, Mr. Jap was one. The most popular wartime song, by a long shot, uh, was actually never played on the radio, either in the United States or in Britain, because it was seen as scatological, and it was Spike Jones, uh, Der Fuhrer's Face, in which the, the, the chorus was, and it's Heil, Heil, right in Der Fuhrer's Face. This was just seen as too much. It was a wildly popular song in the United States and in Britain, and yet never, ever was actually allowed to be on the airwaves. The most popular song of all time also came during the Second World War. It emerged in a film that it came out in, of all times, August of 1942, called Holiday Inn, and Bing Crosby sang it. It was Irving Berlin's White Christmas. It would become the all-time leading song. Hollywood, though it churned out a number of propaganda films, war films, by far the most popular were simple entertainment films. People didn't want to be propagandized during the course of the war. By 1944, one could see, despite the enormous mobilization and support for the war, overwhelming support for the war. By 1944, a war weariness had begun to set in on the home front. Already in 1942, the Republicans had scored big gains in congressional elections. And in 1944, FDR had won re-election, but by his smallest margin ever. After D-Day in the summer of 1944, Two, the assumption seemed to be that the war, with its privations, was basically over, that the Germans were on the verge of collapse, that the end was finally in sight. The German offensive in the Ardennes, the Battle of the Bulge, would change all of that, 
but the public as a whole series of, of indicators suggested was growing increasingly restive with the demands of total war. This would be particularly acute after the fall of Germany and VE Day in May of 1945, just as the American policymakers began to confront the daunting task of planning for the invasion of Japan and possibly a war that would carry on into 1946 or even beyond. It was against this background that Harry Truman, who would become president in April of 1945, would have to make his decisions about the future course of the war. Lecture 28, The Race for Berlin. In the spring of 1945, the war in Europe was reaching its final climax. In this lecture, we're going to examine the thrust of the Russians on the Eastern Front from the aftermath of Stalingrad down to the final climactic battle in Berlin. We'll examine Western strategy, the controversy over Eisenhower's decision not to press on to Berlin, the role of Yalta, the political decisions involved in this and then take stock of the final fall of Hitler's Third Reich. We had stopped our discussion of the war on the Eastern Front with the German defeat at Stalingrad. It had been an enormous, catastrophic loss for the Wehrmacht, and it did represent the final offensive thrust of German power in Eastern Europe. After Stalingrad, after the fall of Stalingrad in the early spring of 1943, there would be no new major German offensive on the Eastern Front. There would be a number of what might be called tactical offenses, but nothing in the way of a major offensive along the lines of Operation Barbarossa, obviously, in the summer of 1941, or the renewed German offensive toward the Caucasus in the summer of 1942. Instead, for the first time, in the war, it would be the Red Army that would now begin to be able to mount a sustained series of offensives aimed at breaking German power in Russia itself, driving the Germans from the soil of the Soviet Union, and then pursuing the Germans back inside the frontiers of the Third Reich. The beginning of that Soviet rollback of the German position would begin in the summer of 1943 in what was the Battle of Kursk in July of that year. The Red Army had at last marshaled its forces, preparing not so much to counter, to counterpunch a German offensive, but was now planning a major armored assault aimed at the German positions. The Germans, too, at this point, were also planning a minor tactical assault on a Russian salient. What one had with the Battle of Kursk is two forces both planning an offensive that rushed literally into one another. It would become the largest armored battle in history. At the high point of the battle, 3,000 tanks were employed on the field. There had been nothing like it. There has been nothing like it since. Both sides suffered grievous losses. But at this point in the war, the Soviet Union, whose factories were producing on a scale that was not quite that of the United States, but still remarkable production, 
figures, the Soviets could afford to accept those losses. The Germans could not. The Battle of Kursk in July of 1943 marked the end, really, of the German ability to launch panzer offensives. After this, the panzer forces of the Wehrmacht really never recovered and would be largely used for defensive purposes. In November, Kiev in the Ukraine was retaken by Russian forces. And by the end of that month, the Soviets had reached the pre-war border of eastern Poland. So the Russian offensive from the summer continues to move across this great line in the east. It would be the summer of 1944, just as the Allies were beginning there to to launch the, the great offensive Operation Overlord in Normandy. The Soviets were also preparing a major offensive in the east. The two things were to correspond, to put enormous pressure on the Germans, to stretch them as much as possible. The summer offensive, which would be aimed at Army Group Center, the German Army Group Center, began in June. It was an even greater defeat for the Germans than the Battle of Stalingrad had been. The Russian offensive in June destroyed 25 divisions of the Wehrmacht with a total of 350,000 German casualties and prisoners of war. It was an absolutely devastating blow. In some respects, it's hard to imagine how the Germans, that that army group center, right, with this uh, almost like a beacon aiming directly into the heart of Germany, with the collapse of army group center, it's almost hard to see why it was that the Soviets couldn't simply continue to, to move in this juggernaut sort of fashion into Germany itself. But the Russians began to encounter some of the problems that the Germans had a year before and two years before, and that is as they began to move west, they began to outdistance their own supply lines. They were now fighting over terrain that the Germans had used, had devastated, and now their supply lines were going to be be stretched uh, to the maximum. It would be difficult uh, to maintain this sort of momentum. Nonetheless, the pressure was clearly on. It is also at this point in the summer of 1944 that real tensions within the German high command between the high command and Hitler in particular, make themselves felt. In July of 1944, on July 20th, Klaus von Stauffenberg, a colonel in the, a colonel in the German army, badly wounded in North Africa, in Rommel's Africa Corps, would place a bomb uh, just a few feet from Hitler at Hitler's briefing room at East, in Rastenburg in East Prussia, the Wolf's Lair it was called, Hitler spent more and more of his time, less in Berlin, rarely back at his residence down in Berchtesgaden of pre-war years, more and more time at his field post in Rostenburg. It was called the Wolf's Lair. Stauffenberg placed a bomb less than six feet from where Hitler was standing at an enormous oaken table. An elaborate plot had been hatched within elements of the German army called Operation Valkyra. Stauffenberg was to place the bomb, kill Hitler, make it back to Berlin, and then a code word would be, would be issued to the German high command all over Europe. So that even those generals who were not involved in the plot would, hearing this code word, think, ah, something's happened now. This was a, a, a plan to deal with the question of the probability or the prospect of some sort of sabotage or the assassination of Hitler. Even those who were not involved in the actual plan would hear the code word, assume that something had happened, and then take, take 
um, take action. The bomb went off. Stauffenberg had been placed the bomb down, escaped from the room. Ordinarily, the briefing would have been held in Hitler's underground bunker, concrete, reinforced, and so on. But on this day, it was held in a small wooden annex. Stauffenberg, who had excused himself after placing the bomb, walked out of the building, made his way toward a plane that was going to take him out, talked his way past the first guard, past the second. At that point, the wooden structure where Hitler was holding the briefing blew sky high. Stauffenberg assumed uh, that Hitler and everyone in the room was killed. Miraculously, Hitler survived. We don't know for certain, but it seems, in trying to reconstruct it, it seems apparent that one of the people sitting beside Stauffenberg had kicked the briefcase holding the bomb. It was uncomfortable and must have taken it and placed it on the outside of a huge open uh, table leg so that when the bomb went off, the main thrust of the blast went down one side of the table, killed two people there, severely wounded others. Hitler had his pants blown off, his eardrum perforated, uh, but survived. Nonetheless, after the 20th of July, Hitler never regained full trust in his military, was always wary that there would be another plot, that, there was, that the army, he'd always felt that these old Prussian traditions, it was Klaus von Stauffenberg, an aristocrat, that the army couldn't be trusted. And on the Eastern Front, this was particularly the case. There was a great deal of tension as the Russians began to press relentlessly from the east. And, of course, then with Operation Overlord, a real sense that, that, that Hitler was moving into a kind of never-never land where he was beginning to move divisions that didn't exist. Many of his closest military uh, advisors would find themselves fired uh, or removed from positions of authority. This was the situation then in August of 1944 as the Russian troops approached the city of Warsaw. There were logistical problems of the nature that we've just described. The Russians were at the end of their supply lines. But in August of 1944, the Polish underground, the so-called Polish Home Army, staged an uprising in Warsaw. The Polish Home Army was loyal to the so-called London Poles, the Polish government in exile that had very strong Western attachments. The Soviets, on the other hand, had recognized their own representatives, the so-called Polish Committee of National Liberation, which they would set up themselves later in the city of Lublin. And the Red Army, just as the Polish, the Warsaw Uprising broke out, by the Polish Home Army aimed at, at defeating the Germans, the Soviets stopped. They stopped east of Warsaw, did not give aid to the Polish Home Army, and the, the Warsaw Uprising was brutally crushed by the Germans. It was a foretaste of what we would come to know as the Cold War, already a sense that the Russians uh, were working on a political agenda that was not shared by the Western allies. The failure to support the Warsaw Uprising to help lift the siege around Warsaw of the Germans uh, was seen by the allies, Western allies, as an act, a, a very suspicious act on the part of the Soviets. The Red Army Offensive would continue in the fall of 1944. In September, units of the Red Army would push into Finland. Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, and Hungary would all now begin to desert their alliance. They were satellite states of uh, the Großdeutsches Reich, and now would begin to desert the Axis as the Red Army approached. 
Hitler's Eastern European empire was collapsing. In the Baltic states, Hitler issued an order saying that no German troops should retreat one inch. They should hold, they should hold, they should hold. So that even as Guderian and others were urging Hitler, withdraw the troops, pull the troops back. Let's have defensible lines here as to keep the Russians out of Germany. There was a growing sense of doom and foreboding, not only among the German high command, but certainly among German civilians, that these years of brutal repression, brutal actions in the Soviet Union were now going to be repaid and repaid uh, in spades by the Russians as they approached Germany. Guderian and others urged Hitler, pull the troops back, pull them out of the Baltics so that there can be a defensive line to hold. Hitler refused to do it and uh, uh, over a dozen divisions would be left dangling up in the Baltics, literally cut off from Germany and played no role in this final act of the Third Reich. The drive through Poland would begin in January of 1945. The Russians, to give one some sense of just exactly what sort of military force the Soviets now were able to marshal, as they began to launch the offensive in Poland in January of 1945, just as the Allies in the West were, were finally breaking the, uh, blunting the German offensive in the West, the Soviets marshaled a million and a half troops for this offensive into Poland. 3,300 tanks, 10,000 aircraft, 28,000 artillery pieces of varying sizes. Against this force, the Germans had available 600,000 men, 700 tanks, 1,300 planes. They were in a desperate position that where there was simply no remedy. One of the things that the army had hoped to achieve with the assassination of Hitler in this coup d'etat in July of 1944 was to make a separate peace with the West but hold in the East. Hold in the East, hoping that they could split the alliance and keep somehow the Bolsheviks, keep the Red Army out of Germany. This was clearly not going to happen. Warsaw was finally seized. And by February 1945, Russian spearheads were, were 60 miles from Berlin. In front of this advancing tidal wave of the Red Army, a flood of German refugees uh, now filled the roads. German civilians from the eastern provinces, from western Poland, Germans who had been resettled in the annexed parts of Poland now all took to the roads in sheer panic. The, it was difficult for the Wehrmacht in some cases to maintain uh, military positions because of this flood of civilians who were, who were moving west. If one reads through the National Socialist newspapers from the last, these last few months of the war, there is, of course, there's no bad news ever given in the, in the Nazi press. But over and over again, around the periphery, one has this awful sense of German civilians in full panicked flight from the Russians. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming really was the great fear of the German population at this point. Fanatical resistance was going to be necessary. And, of course, it was clear to the German intelligence people that the Red Army now was simply unstoppable, absolutely unstoppable. Meanwhile, in the West, as the Russians began to close in on Berlin, 
the Western Allies had finally shaken themselves free of the aftermath of the Battle of the Bulge. The Ardennes Offensive of the Germans had been blunted, and now Eisenhower was able to plan the advance into Germany itself. The plan was for a three-pronged advance to clear the Rhineland. The British and the Canadians would strike southward toward the Ruhr. Bradley would drive toward Cologne and Bonn, and then pivot south to link up with Patton's third army moving along the north bank of the Mosul. Farther south, Patch's seventh army would make contact with Patton near the city of Koblenz. The plan went well, but the British and Canadians moved very slowly. They didn't reach the Rhine until February 21st. There was bitter resistance on the part of the Germans that flooded fields, um, did everything they could to thwart the advance. Um, it was Montgomery's understanding that his troops in the north were going to be given the top priority. Although he had accepted Eisenhower's overall strategy of a broad-based push into Germany, it was, there was an understanding that Montgomery had the priority to cross the Rhine. And that once the Rhine was breached, this was really going to be the, the, the breakthrough point. Cologne fell to the American First Army on March 5th. And as American troops entered this city, this great city on the Rhine, it was a picture of sheer devastation. As American and British troops got into Germany and saw firsthand on the ground the devastation brought by the Allied air forces, they were astonished. Instead of cities, cities that they had seen on the map, cities that some of them might have even seen photographs of from the pre-war years, shells of buildings. If Cologne in particular, there's, as many of you must know, this, an enormous cathedral in Cologne, a huge cathedral. In 1945, as American troops entered the city, the cathedral was still, was still standing. It had been certainly been damaged, but it was still there. Remarkable, since right beside it was the main Cologne railroad station, which was completely devastated. The cathedral was virtually the only structure left standing and intact in the center of Cologne. The full devastation of Germany, of Germany's cities, would now be witnessed firsthand. Fifteen miles south of Cologne, elements of the First Army probing, probing along the, the mountainous area there, came across an astonishing sight. There at a small town called Remagen, they saw a bridge, a bridge across the Rhine. It was a sight that no Allied soldier had ever seen because the Germans had blown all of the bridges across the Rhine. And here, where it was not supposed to be, was an intact structure going across the river. On March 7th, 1945, the troops stormed the bridge and quickly established a bridgehead. Within 24 hours, 8,000 men were across the river. It was an astonishing, it was an astonishing achievement. Also astonishing because uh, they weren't supposed to cross the Rhine. The Americans, this was not the plan. But there was the bridge, they crossed it. Um, the, the bridge itself, to say that 8,000 troops got across it in 24 hours is important because shortly after it, the bridge collapsed. The Germans had been sending frogmen down the river, uh, trying to bomb it, trying to shell it. They had, they had, they had mined the bridge, set off the charges, it didn't go. And so these 8,000, 
uh, troops get across uh, the river at this moment. Hitler was so furious that the bridge had not been destroyed. He fired Rundstedt. This, I think this was the third time that Rundstedt had been fired by Hitler for uh, one thing or another. The Third Army would then secure a foothold on the east bank of the Rhine southwest of Frankfurt on March 22nd. And only then, on March 23rd, did Montgomery launch the attack that was to have been the main Allied offensive in the west across the Rhine. The Rhine was, if, if one has never seen the Rhine, it is, it is certainly a, a big river and it is a fast moving river and especially in the spring. So when that bridge at Remagen went, pontoon, a pontoon bridge was set up across the river. It was, that by itself was an extraordinary engineering achievement. It was a major defensive position and now it had been breached. By March 25th, 1945, all organized resistance west of the Rhine had ceased. Now Hitler paid the price for his decision to fight west of the river. Rundstedt had told him, withdraw across the river, make the river the barrier, but those German troops that were west of the Rhine were now trapped, and the Allies were able to inflict huge casualties. In March and into early April, 290,000 prisoners of war would be taken uh, by the Allies in this position. By March 27th, all seven Western Allied armies were across the river, and Germany's position in the West was now utterly hopeless. Now the Allies faced another strategic decision. Could Allied forces reach Berlin? Now what was shaping up in the spring of 1945, if not among the political leaders, among the military men looking at the situation, now it seemed as if we were in, the West was engaged in a race for Berlin. Who was going to get to Berlin? Could the Allies, the Western Allies, reach Berlin? Certainly looking at this northern German plain, it seemed to beckon. It was ideal terrain for rapid tank movement. The Ruhr was the next obvious objective, the one that Eisenhower had singled out. The Ruhr would be encircled on April 1st, and after two weeks of fighting, the Ruhr pocket collapsed. 325,000 Germans surrendered. At this point, well, at this point, there was absolutely no point for the war to go on. The, the war was lost, uh, but the National Socialist government refused to surrender. Simpson's American Ninth Army reached the Elba River on April 11th, and on April 13th established a bridgehead on the eastern bank. He was 50 miles from Berlin. Eisenhower Simpson, at this point, anticipated orders, giving him the go-ahead to make a dash for Berlin. Eisenhower issued orders for him to halt. Why was this? This would become one of the most controversial decisions of the war. In fact, I think it is probably less controversial than it should be. For one thing, Simpson, although it is true that he was only 50 miles from Berlin, his position was greatly overextended. He was short of supplies. He had 50,000 troops available to him to attack the city of Berlin. Eisenhower and the Germans were preparing a last-ditch major defensive effort for the capital city. Hitler had gone to Berlin in January, on January 16th, and would not leave the city. The Soviets on April 16th were poised at the Oder River, ready for a great jump across the river in the final assault on the capital city. And also in February of 1945, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin at Yalta, 
had agreed on zones of occupation for a defeated Germany. Berlin lay deep within the Soviet zone. Eisenhower, evaluating this situation, realized that, well, it might be possible, it might be, that would be a dangerous attempt for this relatively small and undersupplied force to make a dash for Berlin. But having reached the city, the Germans lose, the Americans were simply going to have to turn this territory back over to the, to the, to the Russians for the Russian occupation zone. He decided to wait. Eisenhower also at this point, one, we didn't know where Hitler was. Eisenhower and the West in general had been really hoodwinked, taken in by a German plan to, be, to construct what was called the Alpine Redoubt. Uh, the intelligence sources had been getting uh, information that the Germans were funneling elite troops, supplies and so on down to the area around Berchtesgaden that this was where Hitler was and that Hitler was going to conduct a last-ditch defense in the Alps that might go on for months, months, and months. Instead of sending troops on a dash for Berlin for territory that he was going to have to give back to the Russians, Eisenhower sent the main thrust of, of the American offensive at this point into the south, into Bavaria, with Patton headed toward the Czech frontier and then south into, into Bavaria itself. Meanwhile, the Russians were prepared for the assault on Berlin. On the 16th of April, 1945, the Soviets launched their long-awaited offensive. They were not overextended. It was the largest military force the Russians had been able to marshal in the entire Second World War. When they began, the artillery barrage, the rocket barrage, the Stalin organs, they call them, the uh, rocket launchers that fired off uh, uh, rockets with this incredible whooshing sound, the barrage that the Russians set off on April 16th was so thunderous, so enormous, that in the eastern suburbs of Berlin, 60 miles away, one could see the eastern horizon lit up and one could feel the tremors of the earth that far away. So intense was the barrage. The Russians pushed ahead toward Berlin, reaching the suburbs on April 22nd, and then in a great pincer movement, Russian troops linked up west of the city on April 25th. They began fighting within the city, block by block, house by house. By April 28th, they were less than a mile from Hitler's Reich Chancellery, where Hitler was, in the bunker, from the Reichstag building close by as well. On April 30th, with the Russians literally a block away, Adolf Hitler committed suicide in the bunker in Berlin. If one thinks about the cost of the seizure of Berlin for the Russians between April 16th and May 8th, 1945, in this last battle for Berlin, the Soviets lost 304,887 troops, killed, wounded, or missing. More casualties than suffered by the United States and the European theater in the war. This was something that Eisenhower understood. It was the biggest battle. The battle for Berlin was won by the Russians at enormous cost. And this was against an understaffed, underarmed German defensive position with teenagers, uh, elderly men uh, left to fight. The losses suffered by the Red Army in the battle for Berlin were the largest suffered by the Red Army in the entire Second World War. To have suffered those casualties coming from the West 
and then to have turned that territory over to the Soviets, as according to the Yalta Agreement, would have been uh, a very difficult thing indeed for Eisenhower and for the West. When Hitler committed suicide in the bunker on April 30th, 1945, he wrote out or dictated a last political testament. Unregenerate to the last, he closed his political life with one final blast of hatred at those people against whom his entire political career had been directed. It is not true, he wrote, that I or anyone else in Germany wanted war in 1939. It was desired and provoked exclusively by those international statesmen who were either of Jewish ancestry or who worked for Jewish interests. Centuries may pass, but out of the ruins of our cities and cultural monuments, hatred will again arise against that people who are ultimately responsible for our misery, international Jewry and its accomplices. Within days after Hitler's suicide, an attempt to continue the Third Reich, to pass the leadership on, uh, failed. The Third Reich unraveled without Hitler. And finally, on May 8, 1945, VE Day was declared in the West, May 9, 1945, by the Russians. The war in Europe had finally come to a close. The great evil of National Socialism had been defeated, but at absolutely staggering costs. For the Germans, a million eight hundred thousand military dead, a million two hundred thousand missing, five hundred thousand civilians killed, four million evacuees in this great wave of people moving to the west, escaping the Russians, four million of them simply vanished. No one knows what happened to them. The Russians, of course, had suffered unbelievably. Eleven million military casualties. Two and a half million Russian prisoners of war would die in German captivity. Seven million Russian civilians, not counting those uh, murdered in the Holocaust. Ten percent of the population of the Soviet Union had perished by the time the Germans surrendered in May of 1945. Hitler's death in the bunker, the link-up of American and Russian troops, finally brought the war in Europe to a close. But the war in Europe did not bring the Second World War to a close. That final chapter would have to be written all the way across the globe in the South Pacific and in Asia. Lecture 29, Truman, the Bomb, and the End of the War in the Pacific. The war in Europe had come to an end in May of 1945. It was a bitter disappointment in one sense that the American leader who had led the country through the war had been the architect of much of the great alliance aimed at National Socialist Germany, was not alive to see the conclusion of the war there. 
Franklin Roosevelt had passed away on April 12, 1945 in Georgia and had been followed as president by Harry Truman. And it would be Harry Truman, a man uh, not terribly well known to the American public, who would be responsible for making some of the most fateful decisions of the entire Second World War in the spring and summer of 1945. Looking at the international situation from Washington in the late spring, early summer of 1945, Truman was faced with some very difficult decisions. The war in Europe had been brought to a close, but there were ongoing troubles with the Soviets. The relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union, which had always been tenuous, always been problematic, now threatened to become even more difficult. Franklin Roosevelt had always believed that his great charm, his personal uh, appeal would be enough to continue to draw Stalin into some sort of post-war international uh, order. But Harry Truman would have less of Roosevelt's idealism, less faith in the powers of his own personality, and a great deal more skepticism about the Soviet Union in Europe. But in the spring and summer of 1945, it was not so much the position of the Soviet Union in Europe that weighed heavily on Truman's mind, but rather the war that was not yet over in the Pacific. For months, it seemed that the war, that the end of the war against Japan was in sight. And yet the Japanese had shown no signs of surrender. There had been peace feelers. There had been indications of a willingness on the part of some within the Japanese ruling class to make some sort of arrangement. Uh, no direct contacts with the United States or with Great Britain, but through the Soviet Union. But the real power in the Japanese government was not, were not people in the foreign office, but rather the Japanese military. And there, there was absolutely no sense at all that some end of the war uh, might appeal to them. In the three months of Truman's presidency, the United States had suffered nearly half of all the casualties inflicted upon it by the Japanese in three years of combat. The specter of Okinawa loomed extremely large in Truman's thinking. Iwo Jima, Okinawa had seen, as we've talked about and discussed, tremendous American casualties. Truman wanted a careful review of American options. It was estimated in a discussion with the Joint Chiefs of Staff that an invasion of Japan would bring catastrophic casualties. Truman listened at one such meeting with the Joint Chiefs as Admiral Leahy estimated that an invasion of Kyushu, the southernmost main island of Japan, that 268,000 of the 770,000 Americans participating in the planned invasion would become casualties. More casualties, in other words, than in the entire Pacific War to date. It was estimated that the Japanese possessed 14 divisions on this island alone. They had had two reinforced divisions at Okinawa, and that thousands of kamikazes remained in place and available to the Japanese for a final defense of the home islands. And, of course, looming beyond Japan itself, the Japanese had the largest concentration of their military forces still in China. So 
an invasion now seemed for Truman an enormously high price to pay. He had been made aware upon taking office as president of the progress now of something called the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project had begun in 1940 as a joint British-American endeavor to find out about the feasibility of an atomic weapon. Fear of German engineering and knowledge that the Germans had embarked upon a similar project certainly acted as a spur to the Americans and to the British. And all through the early years of American participation in the war, the assumption was that if the bomb were available, if it were possible to actually develop such a weapon, that it would be used against Germany if necessary. The prospect, I think, that was particularly haunting to Roosevelt, certainly to the, to the American scientists, it ultimately became an American project, working on this was the prospect of the Germans developing an atomic device, an atomic bomb, and also the missiles uh, to deliver it. Although the American government ultimately came to the conclusion that the Germans had dropped out of the nuclear race, that they had given up on their project to develop a nuclear bomb, the Manhattan Project, as the American undertaking came to be known, would continue on in preparation for ultimate use of an atomic weapon should it have been necessary. Truman's choices at this juncture in the war were all difficult. War against Japan, an invasion of the Japanese islands were expected to take maybe a year and a half before the fall of Japan. Casualty estimates varied enormously. MacArthur estimated over a million. Marshall tended to agree with this. Some argued that the casualties would be nowhere nearly as high, a mere 63,000 American dead uh, for an invasion of Japan. Hardly a very happy prospect for Roosevelt or, or Truman, anyone else thinking about an invasion of Japan. The fighting in Iwo Jima and Okinawa led Truman to believe that Japan would resist an invasion with absolutely fanatical determination, fighting down to the last man, woman, and child. Moreover, the Japanese still had 2 million troops in the home islands, over 10,000 aircraft. They still had looming across uh, onto the Asian mainland the, the, Jap the Japanese army in China. So the bomb might prevent the same kind of bloodbath that had been seen on Okinawa and prevent not only American casualties, but also Japanese as well certainly reduced them enormously. Nonetheless, preparations were underway on Okinawa and in the Philippines for an invasion of Japan set to begin in November of 1945. It's clear looking through the papers of both Roosevelt and Truman that both men tended to think of the bomb as essentially a much larger explosive device, a kind of a conventional weapon only of a much greater scale. And maybe if the weapon were even as remotely destructive as they anticipated, its use might shock the Japanese into surrender. There was no real sense, looking through Roosevelt's papers or Truman's either, that at this stage of, of the war, that Truman believed that had any understanding of the nature of what one was talking about with an atomic weapon. 
The bomb was tested on July 15, 1945, and it revealed that it was even more terrible than the scientists or the political or military people believed. Truman received word about the successful test of the bomb while attending the Potsdam Conference in Germany and for the first time informed Stalin that the United States possessed a weapon of enormous destructive power. Truman was reserved in the way he put this, um, but he was surprised a bit. The Americans were surprised that Stalin didn't, wasn't more inquisitive or didn't seem more surprised about this disclosure, some new weapon that had been developed. Well, Stalin already knew about the bomb. He'd found out through the Soviet espionage ring. Uh, and Stalin had some news for Truman. He informed the president that the Japanese had been making peace overtures to the Soviet Union for the possible surrender of Japan. Uh, Stalin was a little surprised that Truman was not more interested in this, but of course Truman already knew this because Truman had been receiving this information through the code breaks with, uh, of the, the Japanese. Truman insisted at Potsdam on maintaining the policy that Roosevelt had enunciated at the Casablanca Conference in early 1943 of unconditional surrender. This had been the formula in Europe, and it was going to be the formula applied to Japan. At Potsdam, Truman would push for what came to be known as the Potsdam Declaration, signed by the United States, Great Britain, and China. That Potsdam Declaration demanded of the Japanese that they put an end first to Japanese militarism, that there would be a punishment of Japanese war criminals, there would be a military occupation of Japan, the Japanese would have to evacuate all occupied territories, and would have to agree to complete disarmament. This was really unconditional surrender. The Allies, on the other hand, promised to establish a democratic government in Japan, to help rebuild Japanese industry destroyed in the massive American air raids on Japan, and to end the military occupation of Japan when it was clear that the Japanese had established a, quote, peacefully inclined and responsible government, close quote. Should the Japanese fail to accept the Potsdam Declaration they were warned that they would face, quote, complete and utter destruction, close quote. The Japanese response to the Potsdam Declaration was vague and evasive, and it convinced Truman and his advisors that it was tantamount to a rejection. The Japanese were clearly, the councils of state within Japan were clearly discussing some form of surrender. One of the big problems about the, the formula of unconditional surrender was the position of the emperor. The emperor was not a mortal, but a god in Japanese society, Japanese culture, and unconditional surrender could conceivably mean that the emperor would go. And this, no one within the Japanese hierarchy, civilian or military, was really willing to contemplate. So military advocates in Japan for continuing the struggle prevailed, at least for now. The British government at this point gave its approval for the use of the atomic weapon. On August 7th, 1945, Colonel Paul Tibbets Jr. at the controls of the Enola Gay took off from Tinian and the Marianas 
carrying a 9,000-pound bomb with a destructive power of 20,000 tons of TNT. Just before 8.15, the giant object tumbled from the bomb bay. The plane had been seen approaching Hiroshima. It was, a, it was by itself. The Japanese on the ground thought it might, must be an observer plane or a, a, a spy plane, but certainly not a, a single aircraft off on an attack. But the giant object, the bomb, tumbled from the bomb bay just after 8.15. When it reached a point 660 yards from the ground, a blinding flash illuminated the sky, and a split second later, a gigantic fireball burst over the unsuspecting city. Shock waves of colossal force roiled like a typhoon of scalding air, leveling almost everything in its path. A cloud, a mushroom cloud, something that had never been seen by anyone before, rose to an altitude of 55,000 feet. In his logbook, Robert Lewis, the co-pilot of the Enola Gay, wrote simply, My God. Beneath the cloud, 60% of what had been the city of Hiroshima disappeared. No one knows how many people died in Hiroshima on that day, but estimates range from 80,000 to 100,000 in that initial blast. The estimates virtually double when one talks about casualties a year later, uh, and so a year and a half later from radiation. Later on that same day, Truman warned the Japanese leadership that unless surrender was forthcoming, more cities in Japan would experience the same horror. He gave the impression to the Japanese leadership that more of these bombs, a stockpile of these bombs, was available and would be used. On August 8th, the Soviet Union, one week earlier than anticipated, declared war on Japan. One of the major motivations of the Yalta Conference and much of the motivation of the Roosevelt administration in its dealings with the Soviets, as well as Churchill, was to, to coax, cajole, convince the Soviets to enter the war against Japan, which the Soviets had not done uh, because of, for the obvious reasons of its, its, its uh, life and death struggle with the Germans. Now, when it became possible for the Soviets to enter the war in Asia, the United States was far less interested in Soviet participation. Stimson, Secretary of War, at this point urged Truman to make a concerted effort for peace, some new overture to the Japanese leadership. But Truman continued to insist on the Potsdam Declaration. And the Japanese, at this point, still did not seem willing to accept those stark terms. Truman was getting different advice. Certainly Stimson, the Secretary of War, Admiral Leahy, in fact, most of the naval personnel were very wary of the bomb, uh, not at all convinced that it was necessary. Navy, the Navy leadership in particular argued and argued quite correctly that the American Navy could blockade Japan, was in fact already doing it, and doing it very successfully. A ring of submarines around and surface vessels around the Japanese home islands had effectively strangled Japanese trade. Japan was slowly starving to death. A blockade, they argued, as well as continued, 
uh, air raids, fire bombings could bring the Japanese to their knees, and it would not be necessary to use the bomb. Marshall and MacArthur, on the other hand, had had certainly argued in favor. No one was eager for an invasion. The army people were certainly not eager for an invasion of Japan. Among the army personnel, among the army leadership, Dwight Eisenhower would really be the only one who would speak up forcefully against the bomb, and that would be in retrospect, not prior to its use. What were, the, what were the options that Harry Truman, this man who had not anticipated being president, certainly had not anticipated being in this position at this juncture, what were the options that he actually had in the summer of 1945? Was the bomb really necessary? Why couldn't Truman wait? Why not accept the idea of a blockade? Why not accept a blockade in conjunction with additional air raids, conventional air raids on Japan? Well, Neither an effective blockade, which had already been in effect for some time, or terror bombing had worked. The Japanese military seemed unwilling to accept the realities of this situation. The Japanese military simply wasn't listening. They seemed to be willing to go down in a great flame of glory. Um, It hadn't worked. Conventional, Conventional bombing and the blockade, Truman felt, simply hadn't worked. How long would this take? How long would it drag out? There was some discussion about the possibility of, well, why not a demonstration, that is, a use of the bomb on some sort of atoll or off the coast of Japan to demonstrate that the great, great explosive power of this new weapon. The problem with this was that despite the implication of there being a stockpile of such atomic bombs, there, in fact, were two. One that was used on Hiroshima and the one that would be used uh, on August 9th against Nagasaki. If, the first, if one of these two had been dropped on some sort of Pacific atoll or off the coast of Japan, it would, and you had only one other one, uh, then how effective would this be? What happened if it didn't work? What happened if, it, if it, the Japanese didn't accept this? What happened if it didn't go off? There was always the possibility that it wouldn't work. So that didn't seem to be uh, much of an option. On August 9th then, a second bomb, a plutonium device this time, was dropped on Nagasaki, killing 35,000 people. The force of this bomb, although it was a more powerful bomb than the Hiroshima bomb, was reduced by the geographic position of, of, of Nagasaki, held in by the, the force held in by the hills surrounding it. One could, might argue that there was some question about, if one could say, the first bomb was necessary, that Truman really didn't necessarily have the options, hoping that the bomb would have a shock effect on the Japanese leadership. I think a more legitimate question could be raised about the use of the second one so quickly. Just 48 hours later, it was not at all clear, reading through the papers of the Japanese government, it was not at all clear that they understood what, in fact, had happened to them at Hiroshima. At this point, however... No one in the White House, no one, uh, certainly Harry Truman, was not willing to wait. The second bomb coming so quickly would have even more shock effect, hopefully to finally bring the Japanese military to their senses. Also, I think there is, but in, in the debate, especially a debate which 
incidentally, was not much of a debate in 1945 or even 1946, but as time passes, has become more of a debate about whether or not the bomb, this awful weapon, should have been unleashed. In many ways, I think it's an ahistorical argument. In the course, in this context of 1945, to be the president of the United States with a war-weary population facing the prospect of an invasion of the home islands of Japan, which might take a year and a half, where the worst-case scenario was a million American casualties. Who knows how many millions of Japanese would have perished in such an invasion? What choice, one might argue, would Harry Truman have? One of the most unsavory aspects of the debate, I think, about the bomb um, that had erupted in the United States over the the display of the Enola Gay on the anniversary, the 50th anniversary, was the argument made to say, well, only 63,000 Americans might have died in an invasion of Japan rather than uh, a million. I think as President of the United States, sending telegrams to 63,000 more families would not have been a terribly attractive prospect in the summer of 1945. As One military man who was in the White House, served in the White House map room at the time remembers, and I think this is absolutely true. He wrote, quote, Truman made no decision because there was no decision to make. He could no more have stopped it than a train moving down a track. It's all well and good to come along later and say the bomb was a horrible thing. The whole goddamn war was a horrible thing. On the day after the second bomb, the Nagasaki disaster. Hirohito, the emperor of Japan, took an extraordinary step. He broke a deadlock in the Supreme War Council, overcoming the military's continued opposition to surrender, even after the second bomb. The Supreme War Council had deadlocked with the military still resisting surrender. Hirohito, who was, whose presence at these councils, he never spoke, ever at these meetings. His presence was largely symbolic. He intervened and he broke the deadlock, speaking in favor of surrender. He directed the cabinet and the council to to consent to the Potsdam Declaration. There was some hope there would be at least one proviso, that is, that the emperor himself would retain his position for domestic stability within Japan itself. On August 11th, A compromise seemed to have been worked out whereby the emperor would be retained, but under allied supreme, uh, an allied supreme commander. Still, at this point, the military within the circles of government in Japan resisted the idea of surrender. After the war was over, in much of the debate about the use of the bomb, much of the criticism of Truman has been that, well, he didn't, he didn't give negotiation a chance. He really wasn't willing to wait, talk, that the Japanese were going to be brought to their senses by either blockade or by the, continual, the, the continuation of the American conventional air raids against Japan. There's absolutely no evidence from the internal documents of Japan to support this view. The Japanese military, who still exerted enormous powers within the policymaking bodies of Japan, absolutely refused to see reality. And even after the emperor had intervened, making the historic step of actually speaking in one of these councils, plans were hatched among junior officers, close to their equivalent in the sense of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to actually kidnap the emperor, 
uh, arguing that, and to tell the Japanese public, well, that he had fallen under the influence of defeatist, subversive elements. Uh, a number of, of conspiracies were hatched in these last frantic days of, of August, uh, trying to prevent the actual surrender of Japanese forces by the emperor. Nonetheless, Hirohito would once again break a deadlock on August 14th, once again reiterating his conviction that surrender simply had to come, that Japan could not continue to face this kind of destruction. On August 15th, 1945, Hirohito, emperor of Japan, addressed the Japanese nation for the first time. No one had heard his voice. He was uh, a deity and now was speaking to the Japanese nation, announcing that the war at last was over. He didn't instantly say that Japan had surrendered, but it was obvious. The Japanese had failed in their efforts, and the war, the suffering, was at last to come to an end. August 14th was then to be VJ Day, though the war officially did not end until September 2nd, when the Japanese formally signed the document of surrender aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. At that signing, historic signing, Douglas MacArthur made the following statement. It is my earnest hope, and indeed the hope of all mankind, that from this solemn occasion, a better world shall emerge out of the blood and carnage of the past. A world founded upon faith and understanding, a world dedicated to the dignity of man and fulfillment of his most cherished wish for freedom, tolerance, and justice. The war in the Pacific had come to a close, and with that signing, the Second World War, a war that actually linked these conflicts that we've talked about over the past lectures finally drew to its bloody conclusion. Lecture 30, The Costs of War. Hello. Welcome to our final lecture in the series on the Second World War. In this concluding segment, we want to turn our attention to the historical consequences of the Second World War, to talk about its political implications, the long-term economic implications of the war, and also to talk about the human costs of this greatest of all conflicts in human history to examine the epoch of the Second World War, which is really only now, 50 years after the guns fell silent, coming to a close. We began our examination of the Second World War by pointing out that the war fundamentally altered life in the 20th century on this planet. The balance of power in international politics was dramatically changed by the course of the Second World War. It marked the emergence of the United States and the Soviet Union 
as superpowers. The United States before 1939 obviously had been a major power, certainly a major economic power, but had not yet, despite American intervention in the First World War, had not yet emerged as a major player on the international scene. That obviously would change with the powerful events of 1941 to 1945. The Soviet Union would emerge from the Second World War with its ghastly casualties, the terrific devastation of the war in the Soviet Union, as the other great superpower. The political conflicts between the United States and the Soviet Union, between the Soviet Union and the West that began to emerge in the final year of the conflict, would, of course, cast their shadow over the subsequent 50 years of history. The Cold War was, of course, born out of the Second World War. The war, with its great devastation of Europe, Europe at the end of the war found its cities, major cities destroyed, its populations displaced, economic turmoil, There was great concern that Europe itself might be convulsed by political revolution and more conflict. And yet the division of Europe, which would certainly follow in the Cold War, would finally be ended, and ended only actually, in this decade of the 1990s. The period of the Second World War we tend to think of as beginning in 1939 with the German invasion of Poland. But in fact, this epoch of the Second World War, I think in larger historical terms, is really going to be seen as beginning in 1914. I think that these two great conflicts of this century, the Great War, as the First World War was called in the Second, are ultimately going to be seen, despite some differences in motivation and certainly differences in the nature of regimes involved, as one great war of the 20th century, total war in which the, the resources, human, economic, psychological, were mobilized for conflict. It would intensify demands for a greater intervention of state in domestic affairs. The millions of returning veterans everywhere would demand of their government something more than uh, simple benign neglect, uh, having made great sacrifices. One sees in Europe, certainly, to a lesser degree in the United States, but certainly in Europe, really the emergence of the modern welfare state in which the domestic populations of France, of Germany, of Italy, of Great Britain, all would demand of their states some sort of support and and repayment, in a way, for the great sacrifices made during the course of the Second World War. The nature of the state itself after the Second World War would be ultimately different. Also if one thinks about the human costs of the Second World War, 55 million people would perish across the globe in this conflict. No no corner of the globe would be left untouched. We talked in our last lecture about the casualties in Germany. A million, 800,000 military dead, a million plus missing, 500,000 civilian dead, four million who simply vanished in a trek from Eastern Europe to the West. In Great Britain, 390,000 fatalities. In France, 810,000. The United States, 259,000. Japan would lose 1,800,000. Poland, 4.5 million, over 4 million of whom were civilians. The Soviet Union, with the most dramatic of all, of course, as we've seen, 11 million military casualties, deaths, 
two and a half million who died in German captivity, seven million civilians, 22 million altogether, a tenth of the entire population of the Soviet Union. Death on a scale never before imagined. And of course, the six million who would perish in the Holocaust. These numbers are staggering, impossible, I think, to comprehend. And yet, those human costs, I think, are things we must struggle to understand, must come to terms with. And the numbers themselves, in many ways, leave us blank. They're too big, too staggering. Individual stories, I think, bring the meaning of this war much closer to home. And so, as we conclude this series of lectures on the war, I'd like to tell a story, an individual story, a story that begins in the final days of the Second World War and I think captures both the devastation, bravery, and heartbreak of the war. In the, la- in the final days of the war in Europe, American and Soviet troops were linking up on the Elba, The Allies had overrun almost all of Germany. The Russians had reached the very suburbs of Berlin. The Third Reich was in its death throes. On April 21, 1945, at just after 10.30 in the morning, a formation of 137 American heavy bombers, giant B-24 Liberators, took off on its way to a target deep inside Nazi Germany. Only three days before, the Allied High Command had declared the strategic air war in Europe to be over. There simply were no more strategic targets left for the heavy bombers. There would still be air attacks, certainly, but those attacks would be carried out by dive bombers and by small, uh, lightweight uh, attack aircraft. Still, one last mission had been ordered. General Eisenhower was convinced that Hitler was preparing one last-ditch stand in the Bavarian Alps and was funneling men and materiel into this Alpine redoubt. So the target for the bombers on this day was a railroad bridge in the vicinity of Salzburg, considered to be a key transportation link that was to be destroyed. But the weather had been terrible all morning. Low clouds and fog hung over the bases in England, And over the continent, the situation deteriorated. Banks of leaden cloud, like mammoth slabs of concrete, stretched out in every direction. The weather ship, flying in advance of the formation, in all of these formations, big bombing raids, it would be a weather ship that would fly out in front of the main body of the formation to check weather conditions at the target. The primary was to be bombed, in this instance, visually. This weather ship flying in advance of the formation sent back a steady stream of directions, leading the formation on a meandering course through the cloud banks. Like explorers crawling through the murky crevices of a cave, the formation twisted and turned as the ships climbed and dropped, swung to the left and right, seeking a gap in the mountainous clouds. Buffeted by strong winds and pockets of turbulence, The formation formed and reformed, swinging at last to the southwest toward the IP. Maintaining a tight formation was out of the question. Holding to the briefed course was impossible. Then, just past 10.30, the weather ship reached Salzburg to discover a towering weather front. Solid cloud, thunderstorm and rime ice from 15,000 to 20,000 feet the weather ship advised abandoning the mission. 
the command pilot riding in the lead aircraft who was in charge of the mission. It was his decision to make, ultimately. Turn back, proceed onto the target, proceed to the secondary. The secondary target on this day was also a target in the Salzburg area. So the command pilot felt that he could not move to the secondary. Also, because American troops were moving through the area, moving into the southeast towards Salzburg, finding a target of opportunity, which would have ordinarily been another alternative, was also ruled out. The command pilot reluctantly agreed to abort the mission and return to base in England. He gave a signal for a turn to the right. But such a course, navigators and pilots throughout the formation realized, was a mistake. It would lead them directly over the city of Regensburg, one of the most frequently bombed and heavily defended cities in Germany. It was the home of a Messerschmitt factory that had been bombed in the first major American raid deep into Germany in August of 1943. The command pilot insisted, despite protests from various navigators throughout the formation, and high above Regensburg, the giant formation became, began a sweeping turn to the west. On this day, April 21st, 1945, luck was with the formation. It might have been a disaster. But on this day, only one flight battery was still operating in the city. And it cut loose with only two salvos. A bomb group used to seeing a sky filled with deadly black puffs of smoke saw only eight, nine of these sooty bursts in the sky around them. Anti-aircraft fire that morning was later described to be meager, but it was accurate. One plane, the lead ship of the 3rd Squadron, appropriately enough named the Black Cat, was not lucky that morning. At 10.32 a.m., an 88-millimeter shell ripped through the left wing of of the plane between the number one and number two engine. Instantly, a plume of red-orange flame shot back, and then within seconds, the wing folded, and the plane flipped over onto its back and began a long, lopsided spiral into the clouds below. Throughout the formation, men strained to see parachutes to see if anybody got out. Just a few weeks later, on May 8, 1945, in a small town in Tennessee, Callie Goodner was waiting for her husband to return home from work when across the street the Western Union truck pulled up. It was a dreaded sight, one that anyone living at home through the war recognized with great terror. The Western Union boy crossed the trolley tracks and approached the front porch. He handed her a telegram. It was from the War Department. She opened the telegram on May 8th with cars blaring, their horns blaring, bells chiming throughout the town. It was VE Day in Europe. The war was over. The radio broadcasts from London were already talking about celebrations in London, chanting crowds of happy civilians in the capital of Great Britain. And with her hands trembling, she opened the telegram. It read, The Secretary of War desires me to express his deep regret that your son, Technical Sergeant Goodner Howard G., 
has been missing in action in Germany since 21 April. If further details or information are received, you will be promptly notified. Within a matter of hours, Callie Goodner was in touch with families in St. Louis, in New York, in Peoria, Illinois. The crew, the families of the crew of the Black Cat, who had remained somewhat in touch throughout the last part of 1944 and into 1945. Have you heard anything? Have you received a telegram? Rushing to her bedside table where she kept letters from her son, she tore open the last letter that she had received from him and looked at the date. The date was April 21st, 1945. Howard had written the letter. In it, he said that the war was winding down, the Russians were approaching Berlin, um, but he had to get to bed and get this war over with. But he sure wished he was at home in Tennessee in the springtime. It didn't look like he would make it this spring. But the letter was from April 21st. How, she, she thought, could it be possible that he, that he was missing on April 21st when she had a letter? That evening, phone calls began coming in from New Jersey, from Chicago, from various places where families of the crew also reported that they too had received a missing in action telegram. In the following weeks, one by one, the 11-member crew of the Black Cat's families would receive a second telegram confirming that their son or husband were not missing in action, but in fact had been killed in action over Regensburg on April 21, 1945. It was a typical bomber crew. It could have been a typical outfit, a squad in the infantry, part of a ship's detachment from any branch of service. They're from all over the country, Jewish, Catholic, Southern Baptist. The youngest, a young Armenian from Brooklyn, was 18. The, uh, one of the waist gunners was 17, actually, when he enlisted, uh, his forged the papers, got into the Army Air Corps, and was 18 when the plane went down. There were two married men on the crew. The old man of the crew, a waist gunner, from Peoria, Illinois, was 29. They called him Pops. He had two children. One by one, the families received the second telegram, but not the goodners. No telegram arrived, and days passed, and days passed. Could it be? Then a second word began filtering in. Parachutes had been seen coming out of the plane. The whole crew might not have gone down. And then a remarkable phone call from Brooklyn. The tail gunner was alive. He'd been liberated from an American, from a German prisoner of war camp just outside of Munich. He was alive, and so was the bombardier. Two of the crew members. Were others still alive? What about Howard? Was he alive? There'd been no second telegram. Members of the 466th Bomb Group began returning to the United States uh, in this period on their way to, for redeployment in the Pacific in the preparation for the invasion of Japan. The families interviewed, called, wrote, or were contacted by other members of this bomb group, desperately trying to find out details, information about what had happened on this mission on April 21st. Some people said there were two shoots, three shoots, four shoots had been seen coming out of the black cat as it spiraled into the clouds over Regensburg. Then on June 24th, a second telegram was received at the Goodner household. Callie, her hand shaking, 
received the telegram and ripped it open. She read only as far as the first line. It began, the Secretary of War desires me to express his deepest regret. It, too, confirmed that her son, Howard Goodner, 21 years old, had been killed over Regensburg. Resigned and despondent, her husband, Ernest, in November of 1945, now the war over, the veterans returning, triumphant, appealed to the adjutant general in Washington for information, posing the same question that had tormented all of the families of the Black Cat since May. We've had very little information from your office in regards to how my son met his death or where he is buried, the letter read. We've talked to several members of the 466th Bomb Group who were on the mission, and they've offered different, they have differed on the number of shoots that we have seen, they saw coming from the ship. According to records that you sent me, Howard was killed in action over Regensburg, Germany on 21 April 1945. Could you tell me whether he, my son was found in the ship or did he parachute out? I would also like to know what means were used to identify him. The family was tortured with the idea that somehow he had escaped, was wandering around somewhere in, this, in the chaotic state of occupied Europe at this point. In a final plea, he added, I know you have thousands of letters like this and that your office is a very busy place, but please try and understand my position as a parent and that I want to know every detail regarding my son for the sacrifice that he made for our country. I feel sure his country will give me all the details that we have on my beloved son. The War Department was unable to provide those details, and the family, as all the members of this crew and the families of servicemen all across the United States, uh, would now suffer from the lack of information. There would be no more news from the War Department. Only in 1948, the return of his body from Europe. If any war can be described as just or successful, the Second World War would be a prime candidate. It was the good war, with hard-won victories over the barbarism of Nazi Germany and the aggressive militarism of Imperial Japan. But to Callie Goodner, whose son Howard perished over Regensburg on what proved to be the last Allied bombing raid in Europe. It was the last American bomber lost over Europe in one of the war's bitterest ironies for, for her and for the family. Triumph over Hitler was a cold consolation for the loss she had suffered. For almost half a century after her son's death, she could not believe that he was never coming home. For Vincent O'Brien, the war ended and his struggle with its meaning began on the day after Christmas 1944 when his son's personal effects arrived home in a small box. Opening the parcel, he found a neatly folded dress uniform, a few dog-eared photographs, and a small paper bag containing a jeweler's ring, the silver wings of a navigator, a wristwatch, a pair of sunglasses, and three coins. I sat staring at the box in which these things had come, he wrote. It was such a small box to hold all the laughter, tears, all the hope and apprehension which had been packed into it. So much gaiety and tenderness, so much virile beauty. It was hard to believe that it had all vanished 
leaving only a little heap of clothes and a torn paper bag. It was incredible that of high adventure in a far land, nothing was left but a threepence and a watch that had stopped ticking. That scene of quiet anguish was repeated in hundreds of thousands, indeed millions of homes throughout the United States, England, Germany, the Soviet Union, Japan, all across the world convulsed by war. After all these years, its memory lingers like a wound that will never heal. Remembering the war, the Second World War, which consumed 55 million lives, means remembering not only the extraordinary acts of unparalleled heroism, bravery, self-sacrifice, devotion to duty that would be the hallmark of that war, but the grief, anxiety, and heartbreak in which it was shrouded. We must, in short, preserve and remember not only the remarkable triumph and valor of those traumatic years, but also the colossal human tragedy that lurks in the cold and unforgiving heart of every war, no matter how just. On the 50th anniversary of the Black Cat's demise, on April 21st, 1995, the families of the crew of the Black Cat convened in a village just outside of Regensburg where the plane had come down. Remarkably, the villagers there had constructed a cross and a small plaque for the crew of the Black Cat. And as the families of that crew gathered with about 150 German villagers, many of whom had been children or young adults, and watched that awful scene of the plane cartwheeling out of the sky on April 21st, 1945, we gathered to mark the end of the war and the epoch that it dominated. And as we did, the memory of that crew is for all the losses of war spoke out to us across the decades, reminding us that in war there are no winners and that even in victory there is heartbreak. Thank you. We genuinely hope you've enjoyed these lectures from our Great Courses series. Our courses are available to order online. Visit our website at www.teach12.com or call our customer care representatives at 1-800-TEACH-12. That's 1-800-TEACH-12. Thank you very much. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.